Welcome, everybody, to the Legislative Seminar. We thank you so much for being here today. We thank you for sharing your time, your talent, and your treasure to be part of this organization. We would not be able to accomplish what we, we, we accomplish together as a team without all of us and all of you working so hard to make lives better for the blind and visually impaired community. Never forget our mission statement. The American Council of the Blind strives to increase the independence, security, equality of opportunity, and quality of life for all blind and visually impaired people. Thank you for being here today. And um, I just, um, give yourself a big round of applause. And as someone for many years that was sitting out in those seats and not standing up here at the podium, I'm going to take a moment and go off mic just so all of you all can focus on where we're actually at up here, okay? So bear with me one minute. I'm right here. Can everybody hear us? This is the podium in the front of the room. Are we, are we good? All right. Very good. Now, uh, before I turn it over to Eric to give us uh, some logistics, I just want to say a special thanks to Clark and Claire for putting this wonderful program together today. And a special shout out to Clark, who I think, again, this just shows the advocacy that we do here at the American Council of the Blind. Clark worked with the hotel staff along with Kelly and and. and Eric and Claire and others, but the exercise room, the fitness center in this hotel, all the ellipticals, all the treadmills are marked with braille and markings so they're accessible for all of our members. So special shout out to Clark Rackful for all his hard work there. And now I'm going to turn it over to Eric Bridges to say a few words and help us with our hotel logistics. Eric. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a a pleasure to be here. Uh, This is my, I believe, my 13th legislative seminar in a row. Uh, The first seven or so I had a lot to do with. Um, So we're going to talk a little bit about logistics, but before we do that, I want to recognize... Uh, some of the sponsors, some of our corporate partners who have uh, generously agreed to support not just this meeting, but the series of meetings over this past weekend. Uh, Our presidential sponsor, uh, $10,000, J.P. Morgan Chase. Our congressional sponsors, $5,000, Cisco Systems. Charter Communications, and Vespero. Then our ambassador level, $1,000. Ira, Envision America, Cruise Automation, and Uber. Now, as many of you are aware, uh, these companies haven't just agreed to support us financially, but we actively engage with them. And in fact, 
Uber and cruise automation are going to be in attendance and actually participating uh, this morning or this, at some point today uh, on panels. So uh, with regard to Uber, uh, we'd like to thank them for the promo code that I think Clark and Claire yep. may go over with you all at the end of the day. It's, I believe it's in your, uh, in your legislative seminar packets as well. Uh, as well as Ira for lighting up this hotel and all of Capitol Hill. So with that, let's get on to bathrooms, shall we? Uh, as you exit this ballroom, uh, turn to the right, walk down the hall, and just after the archway, the bathrooms will be on your left. Uh, I believe ladies first, men second, as you're looking at them. Ladies left, men right. I was, I was, uh, I made a joke yesterday and was reminded I probably shouldn't have made that joke about <laughs> men always being right. I still, I still believe it in my heart, though. Um, anyway, um, and uh, t- I wanted to uh, say. Uh, to you all from my son Tyler, good morning. He wanted me to say it on the microphone. I took him to school before I came, and uh, the best moment yesterday, I asked him, I said, what was your favorite part of yesterday? He said, I got to talk on the microphone (laughs) twice. So, yes, that's right. So, I tell you what, without uh, any further ado, I I wish you all a, a great day today and uh, successful Hill meetings tomorrow, and it is my pleasure to hand off uh, the morning program to our Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, Clark Rackfall. Clark. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Eric, and good morning, ACB. Good morning. Good morning. Dan, was that, is that what we're going for this morning? You think they can do better? I think said, they can. Good morning, ACB. Good morning. There we go. I know everyone's not worn out after the, the president's meetings yesterday. That was some of the, the liveliest and most interactive I've seen the group. Uh, but what great content. And Claire and I are hoping that we can rise to that level here today as well. Um, it is a packed agenda. There is very little wiggle room. So I will not belabor the point, but we are privileged to be joined by several um, cabinet-level officials from the government, the Department of Education and Department of Transportation, as well as the Federal Communications Commission, several of our uh, nonprofit and advocacy sector partners are joining us as well as industry partners, some of which are sponsors and some of which are participating on panels with us here today. So, again, thank you all. And before we get started here, I'll turn it over to Claire Stanley to introduce herself as well. Good morning, everybody. I don't know. Clark said that we should rise to the level of the president's meeting. I think we might have to take it a little step further. So I'm excited today, everybody. 
Um, so as Clark said, I'm Claire Stanley. I'm the Advocacy and Outreach Specialist at the American Council of the Blind. We're really excited to talk to you guys today about our three imperatives that we'll be working on for 2020 um, and recapping some of the stuff we've been doing with, like Clark said, some of the federal agencies as well as our past imperatives. Um, so before we get started today, we're going to go and do an around-the-room introduction of all our members. I know we've done it a couple of times already, but for any new members, and so our presenters can also get to know you as well. Um, as always, we have very limited time, like Clark said, so we're going to do it really fast. We just want to know what your name is, and you can say what state slash city you're from. Yeah. Frank you to Washington State. Alan Peterson, uh, North Dakota, and man, do I have raffle tickets to sell. <laughs> Donna Hepper, Bismarck, North Dakota. Trampas Brown, Minot, North Dakota. Zelda Gebhard, Edgeley, North Dakota. Connie Sims, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Melissa Smith, San Diego. Beth Ann Garcia, Washington, D.C. Brian Charlson, Watertown, Massachusetts. Hello, Kim Charlson, Watertown, Massachusetts. Carl Richardson, Brighton, Massachusetts. Linda Allison, Knoxville, Tennessee. Robert Spangler, Vinton, Iowa. Carrie Muth, Coos Bay, Oregon. Uh, James Edwards, Oregon. Paul D'Addario, Arlington, Virginia. Shri Roy, Springfield, Virginia. Vicki Radcliffe, Alexandria, Virginia. Marie Brinius, Fairfax, Virginia. Doug Powell, Falls Church, Virginia. Donna Browning, Alexandria, Virginia. Dennis Sims, Austin, Texas. Catherine Rutledge, Austin, Texas. Kenneth Simeon Sr., Beaumont, Texas. Peggy Garrett, Missouri City, Texas. Michael Garrett, Missouri City, Texas. Phyllis Burson, Bethesda, Maryland. Mary Beth Cleveland, Rockville, Maryland. Cindy LeBong, Gaithersburg, Maryland. Karen Campbell, Glen Ellen, Illinois. Ray Campbell, second vice president ACB from Glen Ellen, Illinois, home state of the Division III North Central College Cardinal football champions, (laughs) and home state of the 2020 ACB convention. Y'all better come to Schaumburg. Charlotte Glass, I'm from Envision America. Suzanne Erb, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Chris Hunsinger, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Bob Shingleton, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 
Julie Brannon, Washington State. Deanne Hart, Muncie, Indiana. Don Coors, Indianapolis, Indiana. Larry Woodard, Raleigh, North Carolina. Nicholas McNeil, Florida. Vicki Pran, Columbus, Ohio. Karen Spry, Cincinnati, Ohio. Jill Noble, Cleveland, Ohio. Molly Marsnick, Cleveland, Ohio, OH. <laughs> DA Pimley, Mentor, Ohio. Ann Pimley, Mentor, Ohio. Sean Thiel, Columbus, Ohio. Deborah Allen, Boise, Idaho, honorary Ohioan. <laughs> Cindy, Cindy Van Winkle, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Dan Dillon, Nashville, Tennessee. Beth Corley, Nashville, Tennessee. Alice Richard, Brunswick, Georgia. Cecily Nipper, Covington, Georgia. Ian Foley, Buffalo, New York. Sheila Young, Orlando, Florida. (laughs) Patty Cordell, Orlando, Florida. Jim Crott, Miami, Florida. The Orlando contingent is here. Jack Jordan, Orlando, Florida. Representing the real South, Mikey Wiseman, Miami, Florida. Leslie Spoon, Orlando, Florida. Dan Spoon, Orlando, Florida. (laughs) Steve Bauer, California. Artis Bazin, Burbank, California. (laughs) Gabe Griffith, Concord, California. Becky Davidson, Charlotte, North Carolina. Lacey Coward, Marion, North Carolina. Kendall Gibbs, Raleigh, North Carolina. Sarah Conrad, Madison, Wisconsin. Bob Collier, Missouri. Go Chiefs! (laughs) Chip Haley, Joplin, Missouri. Naomi Sewell, St. Louis, Missouri. Anthony Corona, New York and Florida. (laughs) Gabriel Lopez Cafati, Miami, Florida. Sandra Sermons, Rockville, Maryland. Merrill Schechter, Windsor Mill, Maryland. Beverly Thompson, Baltimore, Maryland. Vivian Friedas with National Industries for the Blind. Catherine Salome from Bradenton, Florida. Hi, Debbie Grubb, Bradenton, Florida. Penny, I got the mic for you. Penny Reader, Montgomery Village, Maryland. 
Deb Cook Lewis, Clarkston, Washington. But we're only a, about a block or two from the Lewiston-Idaho border, so I can almost raise the Idaho by one. <laughs> Denise Colley, Lacey, Washington. Good morning, everyone. Michael Talley, Birmingham, Alabama. Representing the unreal South, Paul Edwards, Miami, Florida. <laughs> David Dreit, Treasurer, American Council of the Blind from Talladega, Alabama. Rhonda Trot, Tour Coordinator, come see me this summer from Talladega, Alabama. Pat Sheen, Silver Spring, Maryland. Good morning, Lynn Heddle, President of Friends in Art, Birmingham, Alabama. Roll Tide. Somebody had to say it. Uh, Fratado, uh, Lakeport, Michigan. John Jarzina, Ray, Michigan. Pierre Keurig, Gonzales, Louisiana, home of the LSU Fighting Tigers National Champions. <laughs> and we would also like to thank Ohio for sending Joe Burrow to Louisiana. <laughs> Teresa Curry, Gonzales, Louisiana. Ellen Telker, Milford, Connecticut. I'm fine. Margie Donovan, Folsom, California. Men might be right, but women rule. John McCann, Tucson, Arizona. And folks, do not forget blind information technology specialists. We're on a roll. From the world's largest resort city, Virginia Beach, Virginia, Ken Jessup. Who's there? Chris Bell, Pittsburgh, North Carolina, president of the North Carolina Council of the Blind. Okay. Are we done? Is this on? Uh, this is Rob Marnie from Sprint. Thanks. Patty Cox, Louisville, Kentucky, outside at the mini mall. Shirley Kane, Northern Kentucky. Debbie Persons, Louisville, Kentucky. Hey, Mike Moran, ACB Radio. Rick Moran, Waltham, Massachusetts. All right. (laughs) And because they're too bashful to do it themselves, we also have Nancy Becker, Kelly Gask, and Sharon Lovering from ACB staff. And listening out there uh, all across the U.S., folks who are unable to make it here in person or who had to leave early, I've already gotten a message from one ACB board member who's listening on ACB radio. So hello to everyone out there in ACB radio land. And I'd now like to introduce our first speaker of the morning. Uh, The sermon is Mr. Mark Schultz. Mark, in 2019, became the Commissioner of the Rehabilitation Services Administration, RSA, as well as the Acting Administrator 
Uh, in these roles, Mark leads the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitation Services, OSERS. And he and the team there at RSA uh, work to provide resources and technical assistance to state VR programs. And they do this so that people with disabilities can be successfully employed as well as live independently within the community. So prior to joining RSA, Mark hails from Nebraska, uh, where he was a deputy commissioner of the State Department of Education and also has a background uh, working with the Centers for Independent Living. So please give a warm ACB welcome to Acting Administrator of RSA and Commissioner Mark Schultz. I guess I'll try this as well. So good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you. So I can't let the gentleman from Louisiana's remarks uh, go without some kind of rebuttal, but uh, Joe Burroughs, actually um, his whole family played for the University of Nebraska. And when he was looking to transfer from Ohio State, he really wanted to go to Nebraska. And we made one of the biggest mistakes ever, right? Turning down a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback and saying that we already had our quarterback. So I think we regret that decision. But So congratulations to you. As Clark said, um, I have a varied experience and primarily in the area of serving individuals with disabilities. So I started out years ago as a director of a, uh, not a director, as a barrier-free design specialist for a center for independent living. And to be honest, I got the job because I needed one. I was... I had a degree in architecture, and it was at a time when construction really was down. And so I saw an ad in the paper for the Center for Independent Living, and they were looking for someone that had some experience in design. And I applied, got the job, thinking that, okay, I'll be there two years. It was a special grant program. It was probably going to go away. That would force me to look for another job. And here I am. Um, almost 40 years later, and I'm still working with people with disabilities. So, yeah, I caught the fever. I really enjoyed what I was doing. I could see how meaningful the work was, and really um, that started my career. So I went from the Center for Independent Living, where I was running a program helping to modify people's homes for accessibility and helping to modify businesses as well, to a program running the Assistive Technology Partnership, which was the AT program in Nebraska. So I ran that program for 18 years, and we provided technology support and solutions to individuals with all types of disabilities. So a lot of my experience working with individuals who are blind or visually impaired comes from the AT program and providing that technology. Went from there to being the um, working as the director of the VR program for the state of Nebraska. And I did that for about 11 years before the commissioner of education asked me to uh, come on board as a deputy commissioner. Uh, that experience really was valuable because we reorganized the department, and as a part of that reorganization, I not only had vocational rehabilitation under me, but also special education, career and adult education, and some of the federal title programs, and special education. So that really helped me to start looking across all those programs and how we could better collaborate and coordinate our services um, no one has enough funding to do everything. But when we work together, that really helps to enhance and extend the services that we do have available. So 
From there, I was at, um, I was encouraged to apply for the um, RSA commissioner position and put my name in the hat. And I did, never expecting that something would actually happen with it. Um, little did I realize once I was nominated how long I was going to have to wait. Um, <laughs> so for those of you that don't know, I waited 500 days um, from my nomination to actually be confirmed by the Senate. And, and I've shared this story often because this is a true story. But you wake up when you're nominated and you, what do you do? You look in your home paper for the announcement, right? You want to see it? Well, it wasn't on the front page. Um, so I started going through the paper, and then I saw my picture and a little story about the nomination. And as I fully opened the picture, uh, paper, I noticed there were a lot of pictures and stories on that page because it was the obituary page. <laughs> I, t- I tell you what, that really puts things in perspective when you... When you see your picture on the obituary page. So I was, I was just glad to be alive for 500 more days. Um, so I was asked to come here this morning and share my vision for RSA and to talk about the changes that we've seen since the um, passage of the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act and some of the changes that have occurred since then. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to talk a little bit about my vision, but then I'm going to share some data with you. And not necessarily to tell you what it means, because I think that's up to you, and and I'll ask you what you think it means, but just to point out some of the things that we're seeing now through the data that's occurred since the passage of WIOA and since states have begun to implement that. So I'm really looking, as you go to the Hill, to raise some questions for you so that you can think about these things and things that you might want to do as a result of seeing the data. So let's talk about my vision. And I'm going to start by looking back 100 years, because for those of you that don't know, 2020 is the 100th anniversary of the VR program. So June 2nd was the actual date of passage of the Smith-Fess Act, which expanded a veterans program to Americans with disabilities. So we're going to start celebrating that. Those changes um, put VR into the center of many major shifts in policy for people with disabilities. That was the real beginning of a push. So if you think about that, there's Section 504, which talks about program access for people with disabilities to federal programs, really was the first civil rights legislation and that became the precursor to the Americans with Disabilities Act. You think about Section 508 in the Rehab Act, That spurred a lot of innovation and change, not only at the federal level, but in state-level programs as they look to enact similar standards for software, web-based information, and telecommunications. So a lot of great changes started to occur there. So VR has often been a catalyst for change in programs and systems. So it really should be no surprise that we're part of that change again today, and the WIOA is helping to spur a lot more change. So I'm going to read you a quote um, that one of our staff, when we asked him to put together just kind of a perspective about the last 100 years, talking about some of the major milestones and benchmarks, um, found. The quote starts out, over this period of time, the program has reinvented itself numerous times to meet the ever-changing employment needs and challenges faced by individuals with disabilities and the demands of public policy. 
While the basic purpose of the program has remained constant since its inception, the program has adapted itself to capitalize on and make use of new and more effective interventions and modalities to empower individuals with disabilities, particularly those with significant disabilities, to achieve high quality employment outcomes to which they aspire and choose. So it sounds like that was something that was written just today, but that was written 50 years ago. So we're still about what we do. The basic is to help people with disabilities get jobs, right? To help them get meaningful quality employment. And that's really the basis for um, our values as well. So when we look back 50 years ago on the 50th anniversary, here are the major issues of the day. Healthcare changes, social security, the need for partnering with other agencies, lack of funds to serve everyone. So I ask you the question, what's changed? <laughs> I mean, it's, those are the same issues we face today and more so, right? Um, so when people ask me about my vision, I talk about, well, how do we make a difference? How do we make a difference? And I think that's because we need to lead. We need to take ownership of these issues and we need to be in the forefront of them. So the 100th anniversary of the VR program provides the perfect opportunity to start that, to start increasing the visibility of the program. And by increasing the visibility, we'll help make those issues more meaningful and being brought to the forefront in all discussions. So we're starting that process by celebrating the 100th anniversary of the program. That's a pretty significant milestone. So we've done a few things I'm just gonna share with you briefly, but we put out a VR 100 logo that we're hoping that anyone that's associated with the VR program can attach to their email um, uh, signature line, um, to other correspondence that identifies you as connected to the VR program. And that's significant because across the country, the VR programs go by many different names. They're known by many different things. And one of the issues we've had is always connecting those programs across the country. Here's a perfect opportunity to do that for the use of that VR logo. And I've already seen it showing up on correspondence. In addition to start a discussion about many of these issues, we've set aside, a, a, we've created a VR hashtag, VR 100 years. So if you're someone that's really into social media, make sure you use that hashtag and it will connect you with that community and that conversation. We're also um, in the process of implementing what we're calling the 100th anniversary framework. So in January, we started to put out some of these ideas and suggestions through this framework. February is transition month. So we're focused on the collaboration between schools and VR programs across the country. And within this framework, we're looking at what kind of special events and activities that we can carry out under each of these themes for the next year. Um, so, as I said, transition this month, we're looking at what other announcements around policies and processes we can make, as well as what success stories we can share about the activities that are going on across the country. Again, as a way to elevate the program, um, but also as a way for you to go to what we're, what we're doing is compiling all these stories and events and activities on a single web page so that you'll be able to go to that web page. And if you choose to have these celebrations within your own state, um, 
regarding your programs, you can access that information and you'll be able to use some of the materials and as well as the success stories in your own celebrations. So there are some things that I was hoping to be able to come here and announce because we were working very hard on getting some of these things done before the end of February. Um, so I'll share these as things that we're working on that you will hopefully see um, in the very, very near future. So one of those, of course, is a change that occurred as a result of WIOA, and that was the focus on pre-employment transition services. A lot of states are struggling with this um, because of the lack of flexibility within what counts as an expenditure under pre-employment transition services. So we've been exploring what flexibilities we can provide, and we are hoping to make an announcement um, within days uh, about what those flexibilities are as a way to support the work of states. So you can look forward to that. In addition, we are in the final stages of getting clearance on a transition guide, one that's been out there, but we've updated that based on changes in WIA as well as some other things that have gone on. So you'll see that very soon as well. So. Our goal is to get those out to you in February during transition month. Um, so we've got a couple days left. Um, so hopefully we'll meet our goal, right? Um, March, we're gonna be focusing on career and technical education and the collaborations that are going on and some of the success stories that can go there. I'm hoping to take that further because with this framework, it also creates an opportunity for me to start talking to our federal partners about the work that we should be doing together. So we've already been having discussions with the Office of Career and Technical and Adult Education around our collaborative efforts. So you can look forward to hearing more about that in the month of March as we start to celebrate those achievements and accomplishments. So if you go to the web page, we will soon be posting the framework for the entire year. And I would expect through the first half of the year, we'll be talking about the things that have occurred over the last 100 years and most recently celebrating the activities and the achievements of the VR programs. And then as we start to get into the latter months of the year, we're gonna start talking about looking forward, about how we can again lead and what the future of the VR programs should look like. If we're really true to WIOA and talking about some of the basic values of the VR program and carrying those forward into the future. So when we talk about what is my vision, I think one of the things that brought me to DC uh, was my frustration is that we were always reacting to things. We were never in control of anything. We always seemed to be responding. And I think VR programs need to be proactive. You need to be cutting edge. You need to be at the forefront of things. And I think we used to be. If you look back 50 years ago, we were. And we need to be there now 50 years later, 100 years later from the beginning. So our values haven't changed. We need to be at the forefront and leading with the values that we have as a program. We need to be leading proactively. We need to lead as a role model for change. And I say that because I think within RSA, we're taking a look at ourselves. And we know that we are, we've had some backlogs um, within certain programs in terms of reviewing and monitoring. And we're looking at how we can be more effective and efficient in that so that we can once again lead as we provide support to states. So um, there are other efforts that if, um, as we go through the framework that we'll be announcing that will show how RSA is starting to move into more of a leadership role, not just within VR programs, 
but within other agencies and programs at a federal level. So I look forward to being able to share that with you as we move forward into the future. So here we are, once again, at the center of change. Um, and there are many areas, I think, that are of concern um, in, in terms of when we start to implement it, how do we achieve the reality of, those, of the uh, change that we were asked to make? So you look at those changes. Pre-employment transition services was a big one, right? The focus of, on students and, and, and youth with disabilities. The partnerships with workforce development programs. WIA, the Workforce Investment Act, started to hold out those partnerships. The Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act now actually has some teeth and requires some funding through the infrastructure financing agreements to go to those one-stops. It creates a greater expectation of alignment of the services that we provide across all the partners. Competitive integrated employment is another challenge. And that's, I'll talk a little more about that in a second. Um, but as I look at WIA, the biggest thing for me is doing away with the myth that we're about getting individuals a job, and any job counts. So I worked in a VR agency, and I know how much the outcomes drove the work of counselors. You wanted to get a successful outcome, and that's how you were judging your work. Well, WIOA changes that. It's focused on quality. If you look at the indicators, it's talking about wages, it's talking about how long you've been in a job, it's talking about benefits, it's talking about quality employment. So one of the things that we have to look at is what does that now mean for VR programs across the country? What does a successful program now look like? It's not just about getting someone any job and thinking we're done. How do we continue to support them? In, in Nebraska, I used to say, um, Actually, our problem is not getting people jobs. With this economy, it was pretty easy for people to get jobs. And in fact, people didn't feel that they needed VR services because they could go out and they could find a job pretty easily. The problem was they couldn't keep a job. The services and supports that they needed were not available to them because they were not working with the VR programs. Um, so we need to take a look at how do we reach out to people um, but also to how we make the VR program meaningful to them once again. So it's not about just getting a job. It's about how we support their career pathway, how we help them make decisions about career pathways. And that's why you see those changes within WIOA. But seeing changes written on paper and then implementing them are two different things. So, um, But I think now it's our turn as we start to think about how to implement these things to be in the lead just as they were 100 years ago, um, it's now our turn. I think it's pretty exciting to be in the lead for what VR programs should look like for the next 100 years. And I know my staff laugh at me about the next 100 years because they're saying, we're not going to be here. So um, maybe you ought to just think about the next five to 10 years. But whatever it is, it sets the stage for the future. And that's where we need to be at the forefront and having those kinds of discussions. So let's talk for a minute about competitive integrated employment and where we're at with that. Um, I know there were a number of rumors out there about what we're going to do and what things um, uh, that RSA is looking at. And I have to tell you, I'm at the, in, the, in the middle of all that, and um, it, that's not true. <laughs> uh, so what you're hearing, really, right now, I'm in a listening mode. As many of you know, I've talked to many of you about the issues around competitive integrated employment. 
And I want to be respectful to all sides of this issue so that I can make an informed decision as we move forward. So going out and looking at this issue, um, kind of taking a fresh perspective as we look at that. So realizing that there may be some need for change here. Um, and talking to the people who actually worked on the legislation, talking to those people on the Hill, one of the things they talked about is that they really wanted to see VR monies directed to what they call competitive integrated employment. But when I asked them, what is, what is that? Um, I don't get an answer. It, it, it's up to us to figure out what that looks like. Uh, but in all my discussions, what I found is there is a commonality. There is a common vision for a couple in a couple areas. And one of those is that we value employment. That employment is valuable to the individual and that we should be about employment. The second is that we all want to maximize the potential of individuals with disabilities. So we have different ways of doing it and different ways of how we think that looks. So it's going to be my job to figure out how we best move that forward. The other thing that I think we have not really thought about, which we are starting to do, is reaching out to those other agencies that also are impacted by competitive integrated employment. So, for example, the DD agencies, right? They have a, the same directive, if you look at the settings rule through CMS, ab about being in the community and in integration. So we want to talk to them so that when we're talking about our definitions, they align. So you're not going into one system and having a different expectation and coming into the VR system and there's a different one. Um, so we're in the process of doing that, and this is taking some time. Uh, people ask me how soon we're going to be coming out with something. And what I can tell them is um, it was just a week ago that I've been in this job six months. <laughs> um, this is an issue that's going, been going on since the passage of WIOA. So give me just a little bit more time. Um, and I'm hopeful that we can come up with what will be a good solution for everybody. So, The other one that was on the list of things that I need to make sure and talk about was the homemaker exemption. So I know um, that was particularly important for those agencies who serve individuals who are blind. And so I want, I want to share. I've been pretty direct and upfront about this because I don't want to provide hope where there may not be as much hope. But when we look at the law and what it talks about, it really pushes VR programs to employment, to competitive integrated employment. That's the outcome. It actually moved the program, the independent living program, over to adult and community living. That's a message, right? And the message is, is that those kinds of independent living services really belong somewhere else. That shouldn't be the focus of VR programs. So who should be providing that support? In my mind, since I worked for a center for independent living, and I'll have to admit, I worked for a center that had individuals who were blind that helped to found that center. So they had a really strong focus on working with people with all disabilities. And I know that's not true across the country. Um, but in my mind, that's where the change needs to occur. And so when I look at what VR's responsibility, what RSA's responsibility is, perhaps not to provide those services, but we need to make sure they are available. So working with Centers for Independent Living, working with adult community living, to make sure that those services are being implemented and available in Centers for Independent Living across the country. So I've begun those discussions. I'm working with um, the um, Commissioner of 
uh, adult and community living, Julie Hawker, um, we've begun discussions and we're talking about how can we create a priority for them to start talking about how Centers for Independent Living and VR programs should be working together and whose role and responsibilities is it around the particular services. So we're beginning that discussion. It's not something I take lightly. Given my background, I know the importance of these services. So the other thing I would remind you is the services have not totally gone away from the VR programs. Okay, so for all those same, what I would call pre-employment transition services, those independent living skills development services, um, can still be a part of the individualized plan for employment. They can still be a part of the IPE. Don't forget that. And if they are part of the IPE and there's a goal of employment, those services are still available and can be provided. So it's just that you need to make sure the people that are coming to the VR program are, are going to need to have a goal of going to work. And so that's the difference. But we're also working with those independent living centers and we're gonna come up with strategies and how we can encourage them to also provide those kinds of supports and services. So, so that's the homemaker exemption. So I just, in looking at those areas, and I know those are, those are areas of concern to you, I think I just want to remind you again that um, it's, it's your turn. You can take on some leadership in these areas. You can help me out in working with ACL. You can help me out in looking at changes that um, need to be made by providing me your input, your feedback, um, because it's our turn to start leading. It's your turn to start leading, to take on these challenges that are before us. And I think some of that's going to be clear as I start to share some of this data with you now. And I'm going to go through some things that we've seen in the last seven, in the last 10 years, as well as the last two years, as we've implemented WIOA. Some of you may know that we're in the process of putting together a report to Congress on the changes that we've seen, on the trends that we've seen um, in the last several years since the implementation of WIOA. So. Some of the information I can't release to you until it goes to Congress, so the information I'm gonna provide you might be just a little bit dated, but I think it still will be evidenced in the trends that we see in the report to Congress. So that's why I'm going to share that with you today. So let's talk about the number of applicants to the VR programs. So in 2010, 10 years ago, looking back, and there were 701,779 applicants to the VR program. In fiscal year 2019, 446,919. Pretty significant drop, right? The number of eligible individuals, so not everyone that applies is eligible, obviously. So out of the 701,000, 693,000 in FY 2010, were eligible. Out of the 446,000 applicants, 399,587 were eligible in FY 2019. So still a big drop, as you see from 693,000 to just under 400,000 individuals eligible now in the VR program across the country. So those eligible individuals receiving services under an IPE in fiscal year 2010. So these could also be individuals from any prior year that are still being served. So the number being served during that year were 
395 individuals in FY 2010. It's increased in FY 2019 to 1,236,663. So it went up. But I think you'll see why it went up when I start sharing some numbers around the pre-employment transition services in VR. Um, what you need to know when you start looking at that data in that 10-year period, in FY 2014 through FY 2018, there was a gradual decline. So prior to pre-employment transition services, the program was going down in terms of the number of individuals served. So we went from 1,011,000 down to 932,000 in that period of time. So that's the trend that we're seeing in the data. So if you look at those individuals who exiting with an employment outcome, so in FY 2010, it was 152,587. If we look at FY 2019, it was 170,521. So it actually, there was an increase. The number of individuals exiting with employment and outcome in 2010 was 164,000. And that went up to 179,000 in FY 2016. But the trend now has fallen again to 142,000. So I don't know if I got that right. So let me, let me restate that just so I'm clear. So those exiting without an employment outcome, we've seen an increase from 152,000 to 170,000. Those exiting with an employment outcome, we've seen it decrease from 179,000 to 142,000 in the last four years, okay? So again, when I share the pre-employment transition data, that may help you understand why. The employment rate or the rehab rate was 51.9% in 2010, and that was rising to a high of 56.9% in 2016. But since that time, it's declined steadily to 45.5%. So that's fairly significant. That's gone down almost 11% in just the last four years. And that's for individuals with all disabilities. So let's talk about the students with disabilities because that was the impact in 2014 of WIOA is, was requiring VR programs to start to serve students with disabilities and have a greater focus through pre-employment transition services. So then um, we have data, and, and of course, many of you know that the reporting requirements changed with WIOA. So it went from fiscal year to program year. So some of this is a little difficult to correlate. But if we look at the program year for the number of students when we first started to have to report this in 2017, it was 525,000. So in 2018, it went up to 638,000. So that's uh, 110,000 additional students, an increase in just one year. And we expect that's probably going to continue as states are starting to reach out and do a better job of that. The number of students receiving pre-employment transition services in 2017 was 179,700. That increased to 248,300 in, in program year 2018. So... Those are, those are students that are eligible students. We also are serving students who are potentially eligible, which is a new group of students that were never served before. 
So in 2017, we served 85,245 across the country. That went up to 137,780 in program year 2018. So again, another tremendous increase. Um, students who applied for VR services and received pre-employment transition services increased by 17% in just that one year. So that's a, that's a huge trend, and you'll see how that impacts the program in a minute. Um, so let me talk about what we were doing around the provision of pre-employment transition services. So in, in 2017, the number of services provided, and remember, this isn't going to be a one-to-one -one correlation with the students because the students could be receiving multiple services over a period of time. So in 2017, 747,837 services were provided, pre-employment transition services. In program year 2018, it went from 700, just under 750,000 to 1.2 million services. Pretty significant increase again. So again, the kinds of services, um, um, job exploration counseling was the most prevalent service. 25% uh, of the students received that service, followed by work-based learning experiences, counseling and enrollment opportunities, and the second most prevalent uh, service, workplace readiness training. And then instruction and self-advocacy um, was 16.6% of students receiving uh, instruction and self-advocacy. So I think this is the most telling statistic so when we start looking at the percentage of participants 24 and younger in the VR program. So in program year 2017, it was 49%, almost half. But in program year 2018, it was more than half of the individuals being served in the VR program are under the age of 25. They're 24 and younger. That's a significant change due to WIOA. So what happens? When you start serving more students, what happens? Adults are getting fewer services. Okay. So that's why you're starting to see the numbers drop when we start talking about those individuals served. So let me, let me go again to program your data that we have just to frame it a little differently. So the number of applicants for all VR agencies, and then I'll tell you the number of applicants for blind VR agencies. So you can kind of see the trends in both programs. So for all VR agencies in 2017, 414,531 individuals applied to the program. Blind VR agencies, it was 7,752 individuals across the country. 2018, for blind VR agencies, it went down to 6,886 from 7,700, okay? So there was a decrease in the number of applicants. But there is also a corresponding decrease in the number of applicants for all VR agencies. So it went from 414,000 to 398,000. So there was a decline. The number of eligible individuals for all VR agencies from 2017 to 2018 increase from 473,000 to 479,000. So not a big increase, 6,000, but, but it was an increase, as contrasted with the blind VR agencies, where they went from 7,100 in 2017 
to the number of eligible individuals in 2018 being 5,453. So again, that was a decrease in terms of the number of eligible individuals. So let's go to pre-employment transition services so we can compare that. So for all VR agencies, the number of students with disabilities being reported uh, went from 525,000 to 638,000 in the course of the one year. For blind VR agencies, it went from 8,800, actually decreased to 8,500. So I'm not sure why. Like I said, I don't have the answers to why the data is saying this, um, but I'm sharing it with you so you, perhaps you can tell me what you're seeing and why. The number of potentially eligible students with disabilities went from 85,017 to 137,700 in 2018 for all VR agencies. For blind VR agencies, it went from 1,121 to 759. I don't know why. I don't know why there was a decrease. So the number of participants exiting with employment. Okay, this is the one I keep hearing over and over again is the number of outcomes are going down uh, for individuals who are blind. Well, that happens to be true for all VR agencies as well. So you look at 2017, it was 152,400. It went down to 142,700 for all VR agencies. Those are the number of people who exited with employment. For blind VR agencies, it went from 3,887 to 3,409. So that doesn't tell you anything really, unless I give you the percentages. So for all VR agencies, there was a 6.4% decrease. Um, for blind VR agencies, there was a 12.3% decrease. So I just pulled that group out because I was speaking here today. So what I need to do is look across other disability groups and see if there are comparable decreases to help me get a better understanding of why and what the significance of that is. So again, just sharing the data with you. Um, for um, the rehab rate itself, actually blind VR agencies are having a little better success with the individuals that you are working with. So the rehab rate for both years was 53.7%. For all VR agencies, it went from 49.3% down to 47.6%. And again, if you think about it, um, part of this is probably due to pre-employment transition services and students that are being brought into the VR program in order to access pre-employment transition services um, and not getting to an employment outcome. So it's affecting the rehab rate to some degree, as you can see. So the other effect that the changes in WIOA have had, and that includes pre-employment Transition services, the outreach around Section 511 to individuals in sheltered workshops, trying to bring them into the program to competitive integrated employment, the set-asides for the infrastructure financing agreements for the workforce development system. Um, when you start carving out all those pots of money for different services, what do you think is going to happen? You can't serve everybody, right? So the way that you can address that with NVR programs is through order of selection. So, yeah, so many of you are probably in states that are in an order of selection. Uh, in fact, 41 VR agencies are in an order of selection now. 
out of the 41, 31 of the 41 have at least one or more categories closed, which means there are a group of individuals who are not getting served, that they're on waiting lists now. Of those 31 agencies, eight are completely shut down. They're not taking any new referrals. They're only serving individuals who are currently have an IP and on their um, uh, case service list. So um, that's a tremendous impact when you start thinking about it, particularly eight states where no new individuals are going to get served. So that's an outcome. That's something we're seeing um, as a result of the changes in WIOA. So how do we address it? Um, that's a good question. I think if we look at across the requirements of WIOA, and one of the things we need to do is provide some flexibilities to states as they implement these programs. So that's one thing. That's one of the reasons I came to Washington, D.C., because as a director of a VR program, I knew the difficulties I was having implementing it and the impact it was having on the resources available to people with disabilities in our state. So as I travel across the country and I listen to other directors talk about the issues that they're facing, as I listen to you sharing your stories with me about the issues that um, people with disabilities are facing, um, I start to look at how can we provide greater flexibility to at least start to extend resources as much as possible how can we work with our partners to help bring additional resources to bear on serving individuals with disabilities? So right now, those are the things that I have that I can do. Um, I, I appreciate the advocacy that you're going to be doing because that's another strategy. You're going to be able to go and speak about those things, the issues, sharing some of the data that I shared with you today on the Hill, right? And it's up to them to figure out how to address those things within the requirements of WIOA. This is the year that WIOA was scheduled to be reauthorized. Um, <clears throat> if I had a bet on it, I don't think it's gonna happen this year. There are a lot of things going on, right? Yeah. Yep. But one of the things I shared is that we have a charge, I believe, to lead. To not just sit and wait for somebody else to tell us what those changes are gonna be, right? So we're starting to pull together groups. We're starting to talk about what changes we'd like to see that we think would improve services at a state level. Um, so I would offer to you, if you have ideas, you have suggestions, please let us know. You know, we wanna be able to think, and at least on the administration side of things, be able to see what we can do to move forward some things so that we're prepared for the next 100 years. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to you, I think, um, to see if you have questions that perhaps I can answer or address. So I see a number of hands going up. So. Can, me first? Okay. okay. We've got about 10 minutes, so I'll try right. and take as many as I can. Mark, my name is Kim Charlson. I'm from Massachusetts. I'm the immediate past president of ACB. Thank you for being here today, for giving us such a frank and honest and um, meaningful presentation. Um, about RSA, and um, it's really one of the first times I remember ever hearing from a commissioner with a presentation I could understand, which was good. <laughs> I'll tell you what. So. If, I figure if I can't understand it, nobody else is going to, so I have to figure it out so, for myself. So I do appreciate that, Thank and you. and um, I wanted to speak to a few things in your remarks. Um, I'm after hearing about those those words, order of selection. 
I, I am so happy that I am from Massachusetts because we do not have order of selection. Um, I am one of the five um, statutory board advisors to our agency appointed by the governor, so I know a bit about what's going on in rehab, not as much as um, oh, there's so much to know. And what you've talked about today, there's just so many facets of all of this. But um, I know that ACME is ready. We have a lot to say on this subject in a lot of areas. I think we agree with you in many. I think we disagree with you in some. Um, I'm not sure that we're ready to say that we believe that the needs of those who are not vocational rehabilitation ready individuals who are blind need to be served by independent living centers or are being served adequately by independent living centers. Um, That's been a problem for decades, and I don't think we're going to solve that easily, so we want to work with you on that. But I think what I want to say most is we cannot forget about the people, the majority of blind people who are over the age of 65, it might even be 60, the people who are older, the people who have lost their vision later in life, the people who will not be vocational ready. They are the majority of the blind people in this country. And somehow they are being forgotten. And there is a program out there that's meant to serve them the Older Individuals Who Are Blind program. And it is funded at such a poor level that it's, it's embarrassing. I mean, all they can get practically is a, a little tiny folding cane and maybe a talking watch and a, and a pat on the shoulder telling them that to have a good life. That's not inclusion. And you said that we need to be talking about inclusion for all individuals. And I just, we need a real solution, and we're ready to work for that, and we want to work with you. Thank you. Thank you very much for your remarks. I appreciate that. Uh, okay. Do you have a question? I'm sorry, your hand raised. Yeah. Hi, this is Trampas, oh, excuse me, Trampas Brown from North Dakota. Um, I actually have a, a bit of a unique perspective, kind of similar to yours. Um, I, I've been through the VR program myself, Um, And I work at a center for independent living. We actually do provide a lot of services to the visually impaired and all disabilities. So I kind of want to squelch that in some situations. I know they're not all the same in all states. Not even within our state are all the SILs providing the same types of services. Um, But our SIL also works with some VR grants uh, providing services in the pre-EDS programs we see a lot of really good results. So I do want to commend you guys on that. Like The programming that we can provide due to those grants is making a huge difference to the young people. We don't serve you know, 50 or 100 blind, blind students, but the ones that we do serve, we definitely help them reach their vocational goals as they transition out of high school. So thank you for that comment. I, I just want to add, if you, I talked about the framework for celebration. Um, July is the month where we're going to be talking about independent living um, and some of the activities and priorities that we're working jointly with the adult and community living uh, program. So be looking forward to July. 
Good morning, Mr. Schultz. My name is Michael Talley from Alabama. First and foremost, thank you so much for your precious time here today. Thank you for your vision and your commitment for moving RSA forward. And I promise you, there's so many of us in this room that are here to support you and help you in any way that we can. I have uh, two parts. One, it's kind of an invitation. I believe that you have said before that you are willing to take a look at different uh, NIB agencies. And I'd like to personally invite you to the Alabama uh, Institute for the Deaf and Blind. We have a really unique situation there in that our blind school, deaf school, our deaf blind school, and adult services and our industries is all within three mile radius. We have about 1,200 employed and only 300 of those are blind. But we have a conservative VR agency and it makes it tough for them to send people to our industry. So I have a team ready in place to be willing to pay for your visit uh, to, to our institute. We'd love to have you there. And Dr. Massey extends his warmest uh, invitation as well. Um, Number two is I'm an avid Randolph Shepard advocate and I speak around the country. And I'd just like to ask you, if you don't mind, um, what can RSA do and what is RSA willing to do about states that are knowingly not following RSA guidelines? Thank you. Okay. Well, Well, thank you for the easy question. Uh, uh, Clark just told me we're out of time. Um, No, and I'll have to be honest. When I came to D.C., probably one of the programs I had the least amount of experience with was Randolph Shepard. So I have had to learn a tremendous amount. And um, so I appreciate what people have done to provide my education. Um, There are a number of things I think that we've been trying to address there. Obviously, it's a program that's difficult because we have some federal oversight, but a lot of the control is pushed down to the local level. So as you know, we've just started monitoring again. We've gone out to three states, or will be going out to three. Uh, we've finished with Maryland. Um, but we're using that as basically our pilot to start to frame our work going forward in terms of monitoring and technical assistance. We've been short-staffed. We've hired three additional staff since I've been there. Um, we're starting to deal with the backlog on um, a number of issues that we have. So as we start to get those things caught up, we'll be able to start focusing more proactively again by going out and taking a look at those issues and then making our findings and recommendations known so that if you you have that information that if you're having that issue within your own state, at least you'll have kind of what we've said to another state available to you for support. So we're working on it. It's one of the issues that they've been very short-staffed for a long time. And um, so we need some time to get caught up. But I appreciate it. Thank you. Hello, Mark. This is Dan Spoon, ACB president from Orlando, Florida. Thank you for being here today. It's it's been uh, really uh, straightforward, honest, and in 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 a condensed way that we can understand it. And I really appreciate that. In Orlando, we have a situation that I don't think is unique, but it's it's really a personal story to me, and I'd like to share it with you. I'm I'm on the board of our Lighthouse Central Florida. And six years ago, we started an NIB-supported program called Lighthouse Works. We had never had anything like that in our Central Florida community. And now, six years later, we have 50 individuals that are working through that program, 38 of them in call centers. They're making between $11 and $15 an hour. They're working between 20 and 40 hours a week with the average time in the 29 to 30-hour-a-week range. And 
and they're 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 real people who have worked so hard you know haven't had a chance to have employment they're in their 30s 40s 50s they're what i would call maybe the the, the, the they were they were kind of hardcore unemployed and now these folks norma and kim and dj and josh and norma they're they're part of our chapter and working at lighthouse works has changed their lives they now have kim has six children she's a single parent whose husband passed away 2 years ago she can now provide clothing for her kids she can provide a vacation day at disney world for them you know i mean Josh has got, he's a technology buff. He can now get his iPhone, his latest iPhone. He can take his friends out and have a dinner. It's, it's absolutely changed their lives. And as I sit on that board, quote, unquote, integrated competitive employment, we don't qualify. NIB says in order to be a sponsored agency, 75% of your employees must be blind or visually impaired. VR services says, oh, if more than 50% of the people that work in your organization are disabled or blind or visually impaired, you're not entitled to VR services. That's what integrated competitive employment has meant to us. So these folks, we've worked around VR. We've got them the training they needed through donations. It's not easy to stand somebody up at a call center. It takes training to get to that point. But... We're not working together. We're working in opposition of each other. And, 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 and these are real people whose lives are positively changed. So how can we all work together so that's not where we're sitting 10 years from now? I really want to work with you to see if we can move that forward. Thank you. Good. Well, one more question. So I swear that Dan and I did not collaborate prior to coming in here. Um, hey, good morning, Mark. It's Mikey good from morning. Florida. Um, so, you know, I, I was sitting at the head of the rehab council when a consumer came to us from Lighthouse Works with an informed choice that he made. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly how much he was making, well above minimum wage, well actually what's considered a living wage throughout the state. He knew that he had health care benefits and he needed services. He didn't get those services because it was deemed non-integrated. Throughout the entire RSA, VR, there's something called informed choice and consumer choice. It's my position at this point that the definition of competitive integrated employment and a consumer's choice cancel each other out. Um, I know it's awful to say it in, in such a blunt way, but you, know, you said you're here to listen, and sometimes I think we just have to give it to you because I, I, I know you can take it. <laughs> I'm just not sure where you're going to take it to. Yeah, absolutely. It, 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 it's almost like busing. You know, we're seriously, we've crossed the threshold at this point. We expect our consumers to be educated. We want them to make decisions for themselves, and then we tell them they made the wrong decision. That cannot continue. Um, I would encourage you to take the folks from Alabama up on their offer 
to go out and check out these workplaces. I would encourage you to come to Florida and see what these call centers and some of these industries look like. Look at the contracts that they hold, these federal contracts. You know, we're talking serious money and serious work. Um, I, 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 it's disheartening to have to tell people that what they have chosen to do, their job is not deemed good enough by some type of regulation. My other thought, question, issue, which I'm sure you're aware of, is there was a lot of things that you brought up, some of the struggles you're dealing with, that individual states have the ability to start having these conversations and bring forth suggestions, especially when it comes to order of selection and stuff like that. You know, there is a very powerful tool in the box, and it is called the State Rehab Council. Um, that State Rehab Council has very specific instructions. It's drawn out as to how it should look, who's supposed to be on it. Um, however, as you know, most states and most territories are struggling, um, whether it's the fact that new administrations coming into positions don't know about rehab councils and why they're supposed to be there. But when is RSA going to start to say, well, we wrote it. We want this to happen. Um, we're going to provide some advisement. Maybe it's something as simple as when you're out monitoring each state to find out what the entity is that's in charge of appointments and educating them so that they understand why it's so critical that appointments come in timely, why it's important to have a full SRC. We are the voice at the state, and we get a lot done prior to coming to you. Um, however, our voice is being lowered and lowered and lowered, and there's some councils that are non-existent and some councils that can't function. Um, thank you for hearing me. I'm sure we'll cross paths again. <laughs> All right. Thank and, you, um, Mikey. The, um, just to be respectful of Mr. Schultz's time and the rest of our panel, we're already a little bit over, but I'd like to give Commissioner Schultz a chance to respond to, to you and Dan. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. And I'm sure we will cross paths again. But I, 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 is this on? Just need to get a little closer. Okay. So I, I do want to just briefly say I, I realize there are lots of issues around the case-by-case -case determinations and consistency across the country in terms of how we are defining competitive integrated employment and how we um, are excluding particular sites um, just with a blanket declaration instead of going out and actually taking a look at the work that's being done. So I am visiting sites. I'm continuing to do that. That's what's kind of slowed me down a little bit. I'm not going to get to everyone that's been able to invite me to come visit their site. Um, but I think at this point, I've got a fairly good idea about the issues that are there. It's just figuring out how we can address those. Um, the one thing I can probably guarantee is I'm not going to be able to make everyone happy. This is a very passionate issue, and people feel very strongly on very different sides of the issue. Um, but again, I go back to what we can find in common, which is we value employment. And we want to maximize the potential of individuals with disabilities. And I want that to drive my decisions as we go forward. So thank you all very much. I appreciate the time this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you for time today. All right. All right, everyone. Again, thank you, Commissioner Schultz, for your time here today. And everyone with your question and comments, thank you for that. Um, passionate and engaging session. At this time, I would like to welcome our next speaker to come. To
to come forward. Uh, Ms. Diane Burstein from the Federal Communications Commission. So Diane is the Deputy Bureau tree, Chief for the Consumer and Governmental Affairs Bureau at the FCC and is the head of the Disability Rights Office. Uh, Diane is no stranger to ACB and our work. Prior to joining the FCC, she worked at NCTA, the Internet and Telecommunications? Uh, yeah. yeah, Internet and Telecommunications Association. Right, the, the letters don't even mean what the, the acronym is anymore. Um, so, and Diane was involved with the process 10 years ago um, for drafting and passing the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act. So, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in giving a warm welcome to Diane Burstein. Thanks for that introduction. Um, I'm very happy to be here this morning at ACB's Legislative Summit, and thanks for allowing me to say a few words about uh, 10 years of the CVAA, learn what's new at the FCC. A lot of positive change has happened in the 10 years since President Obama signed the CVAA in October 2010, and I was fortunate to be there at that uh, moment, which was really quite something. Um, and this morning, I'd like to highlight some of what the FCC's many accomplishments have been under the CVAA to improve access for people with disabilities, especially those who are blind and visually impaired, and preview some of the steps to come in the near future. Uh, and I'd save some time at the end for any questions that you might have. Uh, first, though, for those of you who are not uh, regularly interested or interact with the FCC, I wanted to provide some background on the Disability Rights Office, or DRO. The DRO is staffed with many dedicated attorneys and analysts, and it's housed in the Consumer and Governmental Affairs Bureau of the FCC. I'm fortunate today to be with two of DRO's finest, Susie Rosen Singleton, who's chief of DRO, and Will Shell, who is one of DRO's attorney advisors, who many of you may know. They are two very knowledgeable members of the team, which acts as the FCC's internal expert on disability rights issues. DRO's responsibilities range from helping consumers with complaints about particular problems with access to communication services or equipment, to advising the commission on complex rulemaking proceedings, to organizing the disability rights, uh, I'm sorry, the disability advisory committee, to outreach to the disability community, and much more. Its subject matter expertise extends to accessibility issues related to video programming, telecommunications, the telecommunications relay service, and emergency communications. Because technology and types of services available are rapidly evolving, we rely on constant interaction with the disability community to keep informed. The national leaders at ACB, leaders like Clark, Eric Bridges, Tony Stevens, and Claire Stanley, and many more, many more have been a strong and consistent voice and invaluable contributors to inform us about the needs of the blind community. I can't thank them enough and the others who, many in this room, have filed comments at the FCC on our open proceedings. 
Filing comments is one effective way to ensure that the commission addresses issues of importance to the blind and visually impaired community. Another valuable way is to file complaints with the Disability Rights Office. We look at individual complaints as well as broader trends to help ensure that our rules are being followed and that <coughs> excuse me, and they are working as intended. Many of those rules arise from the FCC's work implementing the CVAA, uh, which I'd like to talk to you about a little bit more in depth this morning. The CVAA requires telecommunications devices to be accessible to individual with, individuals with disabilities, compatible with accessibility devices such as refreshable braille displays, and usable by individuals who are blind or visually impaired. In addition, the CVAA mandates that internet browsers on smartphones and other mobile devices must be accessible by people who are blind or visually impaired. People who are blind or visually impaired should be able to use internet browsers to find online information, local services or news, equally as well as sighted users. The CVAA also established the National Deafblind Equipment Distribution Program, NDBEDP, also known as ICANN Connect. NDBEDP is a $10 million a year program that distributes telecommunications equipment to low-income people who are deafblind. This program continues to provide many deafblind consumers with equipment to help them gain access to the communications network, and the ICANN Connect website is replete with incredible success stories about individuals benefiting from the NDBEDP services and programs. The FCC, through its Disability Rights Office, works with 56 different state and local organizations to provide these vital services to the deafblind. Many of the rules arising from the CVAA relate to access to video programming and related devices. For example, the CVAA requires emergency information announced on television to be accessible. As many of you know, the secondary audio stream, the so-called SAP, contains audio description and foreign language audio tracks. But it also contains oral versions of the emergency crawls that are scrolled along the bottom of the screen. If you're blind and watching TV and you hear that emergency information noise, the beep, 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 these alerts tell you to activate the secondary audio stream. We all need to know when there's an emergency and if we should take action. It's important to be able to switch over to this app quickly in order to hear the emergency information. And our rules also require that a quick and easy-to-use mechanism be available to switch to that emergency information. Because traditional TV is evolving and people are watching video programming in all sorts of different ways today, our accessible emergency information rules also apply to certain cases where you're watching television on a second screen, too. For example, if a consumer is using a smartphone or a tablet to access TV programming in their homes, Cable, satellite, and fiber TV providers must pass through a secondary audio stream containing audible emergency information on these second screen devices. 
In other words, our rules require that each cable and satellite company ensure that any application or plug-in that it provides to consumers to access regular TV programming on tablets, smartphones, laptops, and the like are capable of conveying emergency information via the SAP on second screen devices. There are some limitations under the rules that are important to be aware of. The second screen requirement only applies to a cable or satellite's own networks, such as the network located in your home on the broadband connection provided by your cable or satellite company. This requirement doesn't apply if you're on a different network connection, such as viewing TV programming at a a local coffee shop or in the park. Speaking of the secondary audio stream, right now the Commission has a rule that requires the most popular channels to provide described audio on the secondary audio stream. You're an audience that's probably familiar with audio description. However, if you're not, audio... (laughs) Many people are. Okay. So you know that it is audio narrative description of a television program's key visual elements. These short verbal descriptions of action or key visual scenes in a program, such as the setting, costumes, and facial expressions, are provided to add context and are inserted into pauses within the program's dialogue. The description is usually accessed via the secondary audio stream, the SAP. Our rules now require local television station affiliates of ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox networks, affiliates that are located in the top 60 television markets, as well as the top five non-broadcast networks, which... Um, as of last July, or Discovery Channel, History, TBS, HDTV, and USA Network, to each provide 87 and a half hours per quarter of audio described prime time and or children's programming. All of that totals about seven hours per week of audio description on each of these networks. More recently, the FCC granted USA Network a limited waiver of one aspect of the audio description requirements. USA Network showed the FCC that because it airs so many reruns that already contain audio description, and the FCC's rules do not allow many of those hours of audio-described programming to count towards compliance with the 87 and a half hours, it would not be able to meet the required number of hours of audio description. This is because the rules do not permit the networks to count reruns more than twice towards the 87-and-a-half-hour requirement. The Commission granted USA Network a waiver of the audio description rules as long as it airs at least 1,000 hours of audio-described programming each quarter without regard to the number of repeats and describes at least 75% of any newly produced non-live programming that's aired between 6 a.m. and midnight each quarter. Audio description was also the topic of a report to Congress last October, which examined the amount and types of audio-described programming, consumer usage and benefits, the costs of creating described video programming, and the need for additional described programming. The report also discusses audio description and video programming distributed on the Internet, and video on demand. 
Another set of rules arising from the CVAA requires set-top boxes and all devices that play video programming to be accessible. What the rules require are accessible user interfaces for people who are blind or visually impaired and a means to be able to operate and use all or nearly all of the functions of a device that plays video programming. This includes the settings, menus, channel selection, start, stop, fast forward, and similar features. Most of this is accomplished through a screen reader. There are slightly different rules for cable, satellite, and fiber TV services and all other devices that play video programming. If you subscribe to cable, satellite, or fiber TV service, the provider usually must provide an accessible set-top box experience for people who are blind or visually impaired, except for a few exempt small rural analog-based cable companies. If a a blind or visually impaired customer requests an accessible set-top box, the cable company is required to provide the equipment at no additional charge. So if you are paying $50 a month for your service and equipment and you request an accessible box, your bill should remain $50 even if the accessible box is top shelf with all the bells and whistles and would normally cost more. Your provider has to make the process of obtaining an accessible set-top box easy and to have an accessible website that includes a contact person for further assistance. The provider's designated person has to be able to explain how to get one of these devices and how to use the accessibility functions on the device. Many of you already may have an accessible device to watch video programming, but I encourage you to reach out to others to ensure they are aware of their option to obtain accessible devices. It seems that many people do not know that the devices are available or that the current device that they may have in their home already has accessible features that simply need to be activated. It's important to note that cable companies do have some flexibility on how they can achieve accessible user interfaces. Depending on who your provider is, some companies have set-top boxes, while others use an accessible tablet app that controls the set-top device. Still others provide a different add-on. The companies are allowed this flexibility, but at the end of the day, the interface has to be accessible and usable. The Commission has other accessible user interface rules that cover any device that plays video programming, like TVs, smart TVs, tablets, smartphones, removable media players, things such as Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Fire Sticks, computers, and even minivans, if your minivan has a screen that plays video programming. (laughs) If your minivan can play video programming, it must have accessible controls. Please note that video programming is described as programming comparable to traditional television programming. The accessibility rules apply to these devices and to any pre-installed apps or video players that come with the device. The rules also apply to apps or players that a user is directed to download from the manufacturer or seller. So the accessibility rules are not applicable to any old app you can find in an app store, but many of these devices come preloaded with hundreds of apps. 
These devices must be accessible if they're manufactured on or after December 20th, 2016. So you can now find newer, accessible, off-the-shelf TVs from multiple manufacturers virtually anywhere, along with accessible DVD players and, if they're still making them now, VHS players, if that's your thing. (laughs) All of these devices must have a simple and easy-to-use mechanism to activate the secondary audio stream, something like a button key or icon. This capability to activate the SAP is especially important if you're trying to access emergency information, as I described before. Needless to say, the last 10 years have brought about significant changes for the better in providing accessible communication services and devices. So what comes next? Uh, We are busy at DRO preparing a notice relating to the biennial report to Congress on the accessibility of communications technologies, which is due on October 8, 2020, the 10th year anniversary of the CVAA, as required by the Act. The notice will ask detailed questions about the extent to which accessibility barriers still exist with respect to new and existing communications technologies. And we encourage you to provide input Common due dates will be announced via access info at FCC.gov, the FCC's disability-specific listserv that will keep you apprised of all the FCC's disability-related work. And I encourage you to sign up for that listserv if you haven't already. It has a lot of very valuable information. A a reader of that, I'm glad to hear it. The CVAA gives the FCC authority in 2020 to also expand the number of television markets where TV stations must provide audio-described programming. We hope to have more news on that later uh, in the coming months. Last but not least, I want to mention the Commission's Disability Advisory Committee, Uh, The DAC provides advice and recommendations to the Commission on a wide variety of disability-related issues within the FCC's jurisdiction. The DAC is in its third two-year term, and Will Schell, who's here today, is quite involved as uh, the FCC's main liaison with the DAC. It provides a means for stakeholders with interest in accessibility issues to exchange ideas facilitates the participation of consumers with disabilities in proceedings before the FCC, and assists the Commission in educating the greater disability community and covered entities on disability-related matters. Tony Stevens is the designated ACB representative for the DAC, and we appreciate his help on the DAC. And the next DAC meeting actually is this Wednesday, February 26th. You're invited to attend in person, if you wish, at the FCC, or you can watch it live on uh, the web at fcc.gov backslash live. We'll be launching a new working group at that meeting that will examine best practices for audio description quality. Stay tuned for more details about that initiative as well. You can ask further questions by emailing dro at fcc.gov. We can answer your questions, or you can go to our website, which has lots of really great information about these rules and more, at fcc.gov backslash accessibility. 
Finally, I want you to, I again want you to monitor our disability rights activities by signing up for a listserv. You can send an email asking to subscribe to accessinfo at FCC.gov. We look forward to continued collaboration with each and every one of you. Thanks for making a difference in, with your work in the accessibility space. And uh, we welcome any questions that you might have. Thank you. Hi, my name is Vicki Ratcliffe. I have a quick question. Maybe this is a little bit out of your spectrum of what you would do. Um, I got an LG Smart TV last year. I really like it, and it does talk. But I could not set it up because the speech did not come on until after um, it was set up. I got Comcast. Well, maybe I better not say anything. <laughs> but any, anyway, all of what, that would, needed, that would be needed to enter was the username and password. And even if manufacturers could um, even have app, an app on your phone, you could log in and pair it that way and set it up. It would really be great because um, I had to wait for somebody to come even though I had the TV, and I wasn't even setting it up on the wall, just on a little stand. But, um, you know, I couldn't set it up by myself. Thank you for your uh, feedback on that. I know those are complicated issues, and uh, we'll, we certainly value your feedback on how difficult it might be to set that up. We'll take that under consideration. But you should know, if you do have um, complaints about things, in that instance, it sounds like it was a difficulty setting it up, but there should be people who are able to help at the companies um, that I know, that <laughs> in theory, uh, who, uh, especially for accessibility issues, that you should be able to contact, who should be able to help you if you have a cable or satellite provider. But the FCC can help as well if, if you want to contact us. Okay. This is Steve Bauer from California. My question is, uh, we've got a cable provider which is, in fact, passing through the SAP programming on all the required um, channels, the, the top four, top five. Uh, PBS is not one of those, and uh, we're being told that they're not required to pass through the uh, description for PBS. I'm wondering if, as a consumer, we have any recourse in that situation. Well, um, I think it really depends on what market you're in, <coughs> excuse me, as to whether... Oh, okay. Well, uh, in that instance, if PBS is, in fact, transmitting the audio description in the SAP channel... The cable, or, or I'm sorry, whatever your multi-channel provider is, assuming it's a satellite or cable provider, has an obligation to pass through the information that's in the SAP channel that's being provided. So uh, to the extent that that's not happening, that's something you might want to contact our, the Disability Rights Office about so perhaps they can look into that more because it sounds like it should be happening if it's being transmitted by the station. My question is, what do you see as the best way to facilitate continuous change? Is it the modifications of the federal regulations, or is it the expansion of the enforcement of those regulations? 
Well, uh, that's a very good question. I think that uh, the CVAA was forward-looking in giving the FCC authority over a variety of new technologies, which it did not have authority over before. But there are limits, of course, because um, it could not anticipate everything that was going to rise, and a lot has changed in 10 years. So um, I think that from the standpoint of the Disability Rights Office, it's important to keep us informed about changes that are occurring and areas where you, per- where you perceive gaps. And I think that one of the opportunities to talk about that will be in this upcoming notice that I mentioned where every uh, two years the FCC is, uh, launches a proceeding to examine new accessible technologies or technologies that are not accessible and then report back to Congress on that. So I would encourage you, to the extent that you have concerns about where there might be gaps, to uh, have comments filed in that proceeding so we can be made aware of it and report that to Congress. Yes, I am from Orlando, Florida, and three of our cable companies, two of the three, offer accessible television talking remotes, set-tops, et cetera, et cetera. The company that I'm with, and I brought this to Will's attention last year, AT&T has done nothing. And we're in Orlando, Florida. What is our recourse? Well, I'm, I'm sure Will has a good answer for that. Uh, <laughs> Hi, uh, this is Will. Uh, excellent question. Um, the uh, AT&T U-verse, or, uh, or I assume you're talking about AT&T U-verse. So um, specifically, it is my understanding that AT&T U-verse is using a tablet app, uh, which you can download on your uh, iPhone or on your Android device, in which that will provide the uh, screen reader in order to access some form of online program which will change uh, and, and do all of the necessary things that are in our rules in order to manipulate the set-top box. AT&T, under our rules, is allowed to use those types of uh, alternative ways of providing an accessible set-top box so the box itself doesn't necessarily have to be uh, have the screen reader built into it. I think it is... Uh, clearly not as usable, but it, it certainly meets our rules. And I think as these uh, companies, the cable companies, as they upgrade their systems, they tend to um, integrate the screen reader into the set-top box. Uh, if AT&T upgrades Uverse, uh, my hope would be that they would uh, make it a, a more user-friendly experience. We still have some more time. I can't believe that there are no, no there's, there's more questions. Okay, good. Hi, it's uh, Mike Moran. I, uh, I don't know if there's much you can do about this, but uh, there have been several occasions uh, where people I know have called their cable provider, and the people at the call center or service centers didn't know anything about uh, providing the, uh, the free access and the free boxes and... They've even talked to supervisors 
who didn't know about it and had to go through so many channels before the supervisor could become familiar with uh, the rules and regulations. Is there any way you can send out a letter encouraging the providers to uh, spread the word better? Thank you for uh, that comment. I think that's been a perennial issue that has come up. And there are accessibility contact people that are supposed to be listed for these providers so that they would be uh, probably a better place to go than uh, just calling the regular uh, uh, customer care number. Because I, I think you're right, there is um, a lack of awareness sometimes at the customer care center. So um, maybe going through the accessibility contact person might be a more fruitful way to go. It, well, there's a, a registry that the FCC has that lists all the contact names for each of the providers, and that's updated annually. It'll be updated again in, uh, I think it's April, April of 2020. Uh, so that's one easier way to find it. I hope that helps. Um, my name is Shri, and I want to piggyback off the last question. Um, you know, I had, I've been having, you know, I've had fiber services for a few years, and my provider used to have a hotline for the accessibility um, service, which they took out. So now I'm calling as a regular customer. Uh, the second question is, I know it's a very competitive market with all the providers out there. Is there any recourse for us when we sign a contract if another provider has a better accessibility that we can get a waiver to be able to switch? Uh, good questions. I, I think that probably the best thing would be for Will to get your contact information, and we can look into that because um, I, I wasn't aware that there are contracts um, that, well, I guess there, there must be contracts that tie you to a particular provider for a period of time um, for video programming, so... We'd have to look into that. Good morning. This is Carl Richardson. How are you? Um, I'm Thank also you. a member of the DAC. Thank you for helping on the DAC. Um, <clears throat> I wonder if you could just let um, the room at large know about the potential future in, in what is commonly known as next generation television and how that might impact audio description. Well, uh, ATSC 3.0, next-gen TV, has a lot of possible features that could be helpful. I think one of the things in particular for uh, the blind community is that it doesn't suffer from the same challenges as uh, existing television where you've got the SAP channel that has to be shared with foreign language programming and audio description on the same channel, which leads to all kinds of different issues. Um, The next generation television would be a new iteration of uh, TV broadcasting that would not have the same limitations in theory, at least, that the system that we have out there today does. 
So I think that it does have the promise of having more dedicated audio uh, lanes available for serving blind consumers. Um, and it's just more flexible, I think, than the existing system today. It, as far as other accessibility issues, the uh, DRO is paying close attention to make sure that in the changeover from one type of system to the next, that there is no diminution in the accessibility of any of the programming that's available. I hope that answers your question. Uh, yes, this is this is Merrill Schechter um, from Windsor Mill, Maryland, and my question is. I was told um, by the same cable provider that Vicki has <laughs> that um, they do not have an accessibility number to dial for questions, and I find that very um, surprising. Well, there, there should be a contact number um, for people to call. So if there isn't that, um, please get in touch with DRO and we can look into that. Yeah, <laughs> we, have, we have five more minutes of Diane's time. So if there are any more questions... Good morning, Diane. This is Sam Yale. I, I'm going to try to sneak in two questions as well. They're both related to waivers, though. Um, you did mention that the playback requirements for video programming does apply to vans, but the commission recently granted a waiver to Honda, exempting them from those requirements. And so I wanted to ask for the commission's reasoning around granting that waiver and how they plan to make sure that Honda is in compliance with those regulations. And my second question is around the video game industry, because I know that uh, they were granted waivers as well from the advanced communication services requirements. And so I was wondering if you could explain the commission's reasoning around granting those waivers and what we can do to ensure uh, that the uh, communications features of video games are accessible and uh, what progress is being made around that and how we can get those requirements enforced. Thank you, uh, Sam, for your questions. I, I think that the CVAA is not absolute in some respects, and I think that some of the waivers fell under um, the provisions of the CVAA, but were time-limited. So, um, you know, some of this, I think, is going to change over time and already has changed over time. I'm not as familiar with the um, minivan example because that was handled by a different bureau than um, ours. But I think that in that instance, it also is limited in time um, as well. So, uh, you know, these are probably new requirements that perhaps car manufacturers weren't as aware of um, when this all was being developed. But I'm sure they're aware of it now. Is there any... Susie, do you have anything to yeah. add to that? Okay. Yes. Um, hello. My name is Marie Brinius, um, Fairfax, Virginia. Just point of clarification for a question that was asked earlier about these TVs that are available now that, you know, have, um, you know, features that, you know, um, like my friend Vicky says, you know, that, you know, talk. But 
not out of the box. So calling the accessibility office to get help won't help because they're going to walk you through screens. But if it's not, um, it's counterintuitive because you can't can't see it anyway. So. Um, like Apple, when they first came out, you know, I had to hand my um, iPhone to my sister and walk her through. But now they have the triple click home where you can do it and go from there. So these TVs that offer that kind of have to be ready out of the box. That's what my friend was saying. And it's, that's not um, true as of yet. Thank you for, for that and feedback. Yeah. And we have time for one more question. I just wanted to give the Comcast accessibility number, 855-270-0379. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dan. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Susie had one point of clarification. Hi, this is Susie speaking. And I just wanted to add to Diane's comment in response to the video game question. So I'm pleased to share that the waiver did expire uh, in December 28th, or 2018, sorry, December 2018. So if you have experienced any issues with accessibility of advanced communication services with video gaming, Please do let us know. Thank you. Thank you so much, Susie. Um, Thank you so much, Diane. That was really helpful. We appreciate it. We're going to go ahead and take a 15-minute break. Before we do so, though, I know Will Shell. uh, You were referenced a few times. You're a great ally to ACB. Do you mind standing up and indicating where you are so if people have any questions, maybe clap your hands. Thank you. You're on the air live. Well, hi, everybody. (laughs) Um, So I hope that you had opportunity to listen uh, yesterday to some of what we talked about for membership growth. But I just want to encourage people that if you have questions about either joining the American Council of the Blind, rejoining the American Council of the Blind, whether as a member at large or through one of our state or special interest affiliates, um, or any other questions about ACB, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Call me at 612-345-9036. That's my direct line, 612-345-9036. And if I am not in the office, leave me a message. I promise you I'll get back to you. You can always email me as well at cvanwinkle at acb.org. That's C-V-A-N-W-I-N-K-L-E at acb.org. So, and I uh, am also willing to help any affiliate with their membership drive efforts. So, uh, as your affiliate looks at wanting to find ways, whether it's even at the chapter level, to reach out to new people, to grow your membership or to reach out to people who have been members in the past, please uh, connect with me and allow me to support you. So again, call me at 612-345-9036 and I'm on Central Time, 9 a.m. through 5 p.m. in office uh, in Minneapolis. Thank you. Hi, Zelda. Well, hi. 
How are you? I'm doing fine. Good. Why don't you introduce yourself first? I'm Zelda Gebhard, and I live in Edgeley, North Dakota. I happen to be the president of the North Dakota Association of the Blind, and it's been my privilege to come to D.C. for quite a number of years. I can't actually remember how many. That's okay. (laughs) So the first question that I wanted to ask you is, what is something new you've learned at this legislative seminar? Well, th- this morning, it just got going. Um, I hope to, to learn more, but um, I got, we heard from, from the, the RSA um, director, and I really think we need to connect and work with our, our state offices. Um, and as he said, the resources are minimal, so we need to pool our resources to get the best results for our people. And has there been something that really stands out to you this legislative summer, seminar? That, like, What's your favorite uh, thing that's happened so far this seminar? You mean this weekend? Well, sure. We'll okay. take that. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> well, um, it's always beneficial to, to hear the speakers. Um, as well as to converse with our peers that were sitting around the table and bumping into the into into the hall, um, and finding out what's happening in their world. Um, we have very similar issues, and um, we with similar issues we can have similar solutions too. So it's it's really good to get those connections going, and be able to share our experiences with one another. Are you excited about? Uh, meeting up with your congressional members on the Hill tomorrow? Always. It is such a privilege to be uh, living in a country where we have the ability to to have access to, to our elected officials and to have our voice be heard. Um, as they say, if these walls could talk, it is. it gives me the chills every time I, I go into the, to the buildings where um, our elected officials reside. Um, to think of everything that has gone on before and what will come after, and that we're a part of that. We get that opportunity. Uh, we have access to them. Um, it's important, and, and they listen. And has this experience inspired you to want to do more advocacy on behalf of people who are blind or visually impaired? Well, there's always more that we can do. And yes, I always get a, a, a shot of, of um, inspiration, so to say, and it, it does enthuse one to, to do more, to be more, and to connect more, and um, do what we can to make things better. What would you say to the person that's thinking about coming to the legislative seminar next year? It's a life changer. It really is. Uh, it's an experience that we can't fully um, pass on to you. Uh, we, c- we can try this morning, Cindy. <laughs> but um, it, it is something you have to experience to, to fully appreciate. All right. Thank you so much, Zelda, for taking time to speak with me. It's been my privilege. Thank you. Hi, everybody. You're listening to ACB Radio Mainstream. And, of course, that was Cindy Van Winkle and Zelda. What's Zelda's last name? 
Gebhardt. Yeah, I keep forgetting Zelda's name. Zelda Gebhardt. She was so funny yesterday. We were missing one of the microphones at the end of the day. And uh, Zelda came up to me and she said, uh, I saw one of the little kids that were here um, grab something. I was walking around with one of the microphones. So she said, when you look for it, just look low. And I, this morning I was walking around looking for stuff and I looked under where her father was sitting and sure enough, or his father was sitting and sure enough, there was the microphone on the floor. So, so anyways. Yes. Um, so Cindy, as long as we've got this opportunity, why don't we, uh, why don't we chat a little bit? Sure. So I, I've heard some, uh, some incredible feedback about your session yesterday. Exciting. Um, I, I, I just don't you get the sense that the energy level has really picked up this year? I do. I feel like um, when you know we're introducing some new things that we're doing around membership, and people are so receptive, and so that energizes me even more. Uh, and and I think that if if anybody could take away something, just one thing from my presentation yesterday. I hope that they, and and actually from many of the presentations yesterday, it would be that they recognize that ACB is a partner and um, we're here to work with uh, and for, on behalf of our membership, our affiliates, uh, the affiliates chapters, everyone. So, um, you know, that's that's probably the one takeaway. If, If you could take, you know, anything, that's what I want you to uh, our listeners and those that were here yesterday to know that we are we are here for you we're here to support you we are your partner we're we're not against you we're for you and um, yeah that's it folks this is our five minute warning five more minutes until we will begin programming but you know the message I think is getting through very clearly uh, about uh, the role that you're Providing to, to the whole organization, I I think you know, Cindy, you yourself uh, have. Everyone, just, come out to the mini mall. We only have a few more totes, and you'll never see these totes mall. again. So come out and buy a couple of them. They're marked down. Uh, hey, we Mike, may, Michael, we we're gonna have, we're gonna have to save you for the next okay. break, Michael. Wait. That was Michael Talley who was supposed to interview. We're going to do him next break. But I just want to say, Cindy, while we're wrapping up here before we go, that uh, congratulations on all the work that you've done. Oh, I think, thank you. I think, you know, you, you should feel good about a lot of the things, a lot of the response that we're getting in the organization. I think a lot of that is a direct result of a lot of the work you're doing. And, uh, uh, and I, you know, I, I was talking to some to Eric about it the other day, and, Rest assured, it's being noticed. Well, so. I appreciate that. You know, it's a, this has been a really good fit for me and I think for ACB as well. Uh, it's, you know, taken me from a, a member for over 30 years uh, to, so I've been passionate about ACB. Um, and I can honestly say that my work life, uh, I've never been in a more empowering work culture than here at ACB. And, and Eric really is so supportive of my ideas, even if they kind of sound a little, you know, uh, maybe harebrained, I don't know. Um, he still says, go for it. If that's what you want to try, you think it will work, let's do it. And we've been trying some new things, and 
I just appreciate that level of support that he has given me. Um, so we're we're going to keep on rolling and try to do and, and try new things and do more things and listening to people and learning from our membership and other leaders and it's it's a we're a work in progress so yeah, thank one, you so one much of the things you did that i was very impressed with at the board meeting was you know your roadmap for how affiliates get supported in the yeah. organization yeah and, and i mean that makes a big difference that kind of stuff makes a big big difference i mean as dan would say you know we take things that we've always known instinctively need to happen but but it, 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 it makes them intentional all of a sudden? Absolutely. And that's I think that's my role. You know, we've never had a dedicated staff member, at least not for a very long time. And even 12 or 13 years ago when we did, I think the role was very different. The, the landscape is different today than it was then. And, you know, we could do so much with social media. We could do so much with the Internet and with uh, email and conference calling has really bridge the gap um, we don't have to be in the same room and it doesn't matter how many miles apart we are so I, th- I think the landscape has changed but now I'm here and you know I obviously can't do it all I brought other people on board to help me but um, you know we're all about trying to make a difference make an impact and uh, grow ACB so, now, I, I've got a yeah. question for you about okay. your posse <laughs> yeah are you accepting applications I, for posse members? I am, and, and in fact, after my presentation yesterday, heard from an, I received an email from someone. So anybody interested, write me at C. Van Winkle. Now, do you have to be a woman to be no, in the posse? No, you don't have to be a woman. Have you had any, any I have, guys? I've had one. Uh, I've heard from one of my posse members of a man uh, who is interested, and I will be contacting him. When I return home. Because, so, I mean, Eric yeah. said men are, are right, right? Always right. So, <laughs> so you, you need to get him to, to deliver on that, right? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. Well, well, we can train men, too. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it's, it's a big job, and the job is only going to get bigger for my posse, which is providing outreach through sharing support and engagement. And if people are interested, it really is a, a big commitment, about an eight-hour-a-week volunteer opportunity. Um, and there is writing involved, talking on the phone, organizational skills is a must, ability to be able to navigate Excel. Um, but if, if it sounds of interest to you, please call me or send me an email, and I will contact you, hook you up with one of our posse members, so you can just talk to one of them and learn more about it. We'll probably, you know, do a, a few things to um, make sure that, you know, it, it's the right fit for you. But, boy, would love to hear from members. Um, membership is, is definitely required. That's now, the you blew by the acronym. I didn't realize the posse, posse was yeah. a, is an acronym. What is it? it is. We'll be getting started in just a couple of minutes. What is it? Providing outreach through sharing, support, and engagement. Cool. Now, you yeah. had another acronym, too, that you are talking yeah. about the other day. What it, was it? It's ACB CARES. Yeah, ACB CARES. Yeah, That's so right. it's, it's if I get this right, um, it's uh, AC, ACB Connecting, uh, Connecting, oh, my gosh, what is the A? Oh, my <laughs> gosh, sorry. you did that to I me. Did, I didn't mean to put through you rela- on the spot. See, Connecting um, something through relationships. 
by engagement and support, right. and I can't remember what the A is, but it's that is our um, affiliates. Affiliate uh, connecting affiliates. affiliates. Thank you. Yeah. Oh my word! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am kind of under the weather a little bit today, so I'm going to use gonna that. Okay. Word, what you, what connecting affiliates that, through relationships by engagement and support, and that is our liaison program from our board of directors to our affiliate president. So. Uh, yeah, that's I love I love acronyms. People. If everybody say that. can take your seats, we're going to get started with our next panel. Okay. That if there's an acronym, a word, a catchy word or phrase, I'm going to find it. Anyway, thank you, you so much, Rick. Yeah, you're very well. You and Debbie Hazelton are very, very much a kindred spirit. Nancy Becker says, "Be quiet." <laughs> okay, everybody, we'll go right back now to the program. Thanks. Great. Okay, we're going to get started, everybody. I'm really excited to introduce our next panel. We'll be talking about accessible air travel and flying dogs. So we'll be talking about what's going on at Department of Transportation and the Federal Aviation Administration. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our four representatives from uh, DOT, which we're really fortunate to have. So we have LaVon Chapman, the Chief Aviation Civil Rights Compliance Branch from the Chief Aviation Compliance Branch from Department of Transportation. We've got Alex Tate. Did I say it right? Yes. Yay. Uh, the Supervisory a Analyst from U.S. Department of Transportation. And two senior council members, uh, Rob Gorman and Megan Johnson. Um, we're really excited to have them here today. They work very well with the American Council of Line. I know anytime I've had any questions for DOT or the FAA, they're just an email away. So we really appreciate the work you guys are constantly doing with us. And we're really excited to hear what you guys have to say. I know one of the big topics that's going to come up today is the NPRM for service animals on airplanes. And they graciously brought their two senior counsel to talk about that issue as well. Um, so without further ado, we're going to start uh, with LaVon, I'm assuming, and we'll go down our four-person panel. Thank you. Well, good morning. Uh, thank you for that wonderful introduction, Claire. Um, Alex and I have been coming by and uh, speaking to uh, ACB for a number of years now, and uh, a testament to our long friendship, Claire, is that um, you called me by my old title. <laughs> I, um, for about a year now, I've been one of uh, two deputy assistant general counsels in the office. I still have as part of my portfolio uh, civil rights and, uh, in particular, um, access, uh, Air Carrier Access Act-related uh, issues, uh, which is certainly a point of uh, passion for me and everybody else that's up here. Um, with me. Um, as Claire noted, I'm here with uh, Alex Tate. He has, uh, for about a year now, too, assumed a new title, uh, Director of uh, Civil Rights Advocacy. Um, and we've got uh, our two um, service animal experts in the office. They do the lion's share of uh, the service animal work as it relates to our enforcement priorities uh, final statement and uh, the service animals, uh, ANPRM and NPRM, and um, likely, of course, uh, final rule uh, this year as well. So we've got Rob Gorman and uh, Megan Johnson, who are both, both uh, uh, valuable um, senior attorneys in our office. Um, I've been with the department for about 15 years now. I can't believe it's been that long. And uh, currently in this office uh, since uh, 2007. Um, 
as I noted uh, just a moment ago, Alex and I have been coming to this event for I, I don't even know how long anymore, uh, but we always enjoy it and uh, look forward to your questions and interacting with, uh, with this group. Um, I've, I've always enjoyed um, working with your leadership. Your leadership is top-notch. Um, they are zealous advocates and uh, very effective at what they do. Um, and uh, we've enjoyed, uh, as a result of uh, their advocacy, uh, an excellent relationship that um, um, I, I really want us to uh, continue to, uh, to have as we work toward our shared goals of uh, trying to make uh, the air transportation system uh, more accessible to everybody. Um, just as a reminder about who we are as an office, um, we are the Office of Aviation Enforcement and Proceedings. I like to think of us as a very slim other side of the coin to the FAA, where the FAA has safety authority, we have uh, economic authority. So um, we deal with uh, consumer protection-related issues uh, that would, of course, include uh, civil rights issues and Air Carrier Access Act issues, which is a, a component of that. Um, currently, we're about 30 people, I believe, in the office. Roughly half of the folks are attorneys who are responsible for uh, enforcement, for rulemaking, and for outreach activities. Uh, the other half of the office is uh, comprised mostly of transportation in industry analysts who um, serve as the main face of the office. They do the lion's share of the interaction with members of the public and uh, airlines. Uh, they provide um, information to members of the public uh, through various means, telephone, uh, email, um, and uh, they in assist uh, consumers with uh, investigating uh, complaints and assist our office with uh, investigations as well uh, uh, against their airlines. Um, I'll turn it over to Alex in a bit to talk in greater detail about uh, how we handle complaints, but I did want to uh, first make just a brief mention and then get out of the way and let you listen to what you're really here for um, service animals, um, but mention really briefly about some of the things we're working on. Um, most of you, if not all of you, are likely familiar with the uh, FAA Reauthorization Act of uh, 2018. Um, that piece of legislation um, provided um, a great deal of uh, action items for our office. Uh, there were more than um, 30 uh, provisions in there that required our office or require our office to uh, conduct such things as um, advisory committees, uh, reports, studies. Um, Claire, of course, is on our Air Carrier Access Act Advisory Committee. Uh, we're very pleased uh, to, to have her as part of that. Um, we put out a notice last week uh, announcing the first meeting, uh, which will occur uh, March 10th through the 11th of the Advisory Committee. Uh, just by way of background, quickly, uh, Section 439 of the FAA Reauthorization Act required us to stand up this committee. Uh, it consists of representatives of passengers with disabilities, airlines, airports, and others, and is tasked with identifying uh, and assessing, among other things, the disability-related access barriers that are encountered by individuals with disabilities. Uh, the first meeting will be held in Washington, D.C. at um, the Washington Plaza Hotel. Uh, it is open to the public, and um, there's a lot of work that's been poured into it so far, and we're looking, uh, very much looking forward to a very productive uh, and informative meeting. Um, I'll touch briefly on uh, just uh, some of the rulemaking activity that we've done. Um, Megan and Rob have been um, really outstanding on these, in these efforts. They are the primary uh, drafters 
of, uh, of these rulemakings. Uh, the first uh, that I'll mention is um, an NPRM on accessible lavatories on single-aisle uh, aircraft. Uh, that's a notice of proposed rulemaking, um, which proposes um, improvements um, that would uh, be part of uh, the interior of existing lavatories and additional services that airlines would uh, provide with respect to lavatory access. It also includes training requirements and, and proposes uh, improvements to the onboard uh, wheelchair. Uh, that comment period um, closes uh, very soon. It's fast approaching. Uh, it closes next week on March 2nd. Um, following that, we expect to issue soon a advance notice of proposed rulemaking that would solicit comment and gather updated information on the costs and benefits of requiring airlines to make lavatories on new single-aisle aircraft large enough uh, that equivalent to that currently find on, found on twin-aisle aircraft um, to permit pa a passenger with a disability um, with the help of an assistant if necessary to approach, enter, and maneuver within the aircraft lavatory as necessary to use all the lavatory uh, facilities and leave by means of the aircraft's uh, onboard wheelchair. Finally, um, we will talk um, in greater detail about uh, a NPRM on service animals. Um, the NPRM proposes um, to amend the definition of a service animal um, in air transportation and include safeguards to ensure safety and reduce the likelihood that passengers wishing to travel with their pets on aircraft will be able, will be able to falsely claim that their pets are service animals. Uh, the comment period on this rulemaking closes on April 6th, and um, I did want to note that um, because this is an open rulemaking, um, we can talk about what's already public, what's already in the NPRM, and that's what we intend to do. To the extent that uh, you have separate comments that you would like to offer for the department's consideration, we kindly ask that you please uh, post those to the docket, um, which is uh, where we will look to uh, review uh, all of the comments that we receive um, in considering um, next steps going forward with respect to uh, service animals uh, and, and, and rulemaking with regard to that. So um, uh, with that, I will turn it over to uh, Alex Tayday, and he'll talk about complaint handling and types of complaints we receive. All right. Thank you, LeVon. Sorry about that. As LeVon mentioned earlier, I've also received a new title. I'm now the Director of Civil Rights Advocacy. Um, while the title has changed, my duties still fundamentally remain the same. I oversee our transportation industry analysts and handling of our civil rights-related complaints, including our disability complaints and uh, alleged violations of Part 382 and the Air Carrier Access Act. Um, on general, we get about anywhere between 1,200 to 1,500 complaints a month, um, but that's um, in all categories, refunds, flight delays, as well as our civil rights complaints. Our disability complaints roughly are about 8% of those on a monthly basis. Um, we strive to process these as quickly as we can. Um, we do have a little setbacks like last year when we had the um, government shutdown, you know, the 35-day thing. While the government was shut down, we were still receiving complaints. Um, we, we came back to about 1,200 complaints um, 
that came in during those those five weeks. And our staff did a very good job processing those, and we had all those processed and, and under investigation within two-week time frame. Um, as I mentioned before, while we do have complaints along the whole range, I deal mainly with the civil rights complaints. And from those, we are mandated to investigate each and every one that we receive. And we do our, our, our diligence. We work well with, with Rob and Megan and the other attorneys of our staff to process those as quick as we can and get resolutions as, as much as we can. I know everybody is very interested in service animal complaints. So before I turn it over to Rob, um, we do keep track of kind of the top five complaint areas that we receive. Um, their failure to provide um, timely wheel wheelchair assistance, failure to provide timely other assistance, um, seating accommodations on aircraft, um, damage or delay to assistive devices, as well as service animals. Um, our service animal category has always been down to the you know number three or number four of the most complaints that we received, but for uh, 2019, um, it did creep up and actually moved into the number two slot. And <laughs> Um, since, since I started keeping the, the, these records from 2008, it is actually the highest number of service animal complaints we've received in a given calendar year. Thank you, Alex, and uh, good morning. I'm going to give myself a total of six minutes uh, to talk so that we can uh, also have time both for Megan's presentation uh, and for uh, questions that you have. Uh, so as uh, LaVon had mentioned, our office has both an enforcement component and a rulemaking component. I'm going to talk right now about the enforcement component because uh, we still are enforcing the current uh, existing service animal rule. And until that rule is amended through a final rule, the existing rule will, of course, remain in effect. So we are in the process of amending the rule, but until that rule, new rule becomes final, the old rule remains. Uh, so... Because of that, um, we have had a number of questions that have come up over the past couple of years about the scope of the existing rule, how it should be enforced, how it should be interpreted. And uh, these issues were particularly um, coming to the forefront in light of the fact that in recent years a number of airlines have taken uh, steps on their own to impose certain types of restrictions on the carriage of service animals. Uh, taking lots of different actions on a lot of different bases. And the question became, questions came into our office in terms of, are these things uh, that airlines are doing consistent with the uh, current rule? And how does the department enforce and interpret the rule in, uh, these ver in various ways? So because of that, we issued at first a advanced uh, statement of enforcement priorities in May of 2018 where we indicated our uh, proposal for what we considered to be the proper interpretation of the existing rule and opened it up for public comment. After receiving about 100 comments, mostly from advocacy organizations and airlines, in August 2019, we issued a final statement of enforcement priorities uh, regarding service animals. That final statement is meant to do two things. One is to let the public know about the department's interpretation of the existing rule. So in that sense, it's guidance in terms of what we believe the current rule says and what it means. Uh, 
Second, it's a statement of our enforcement priorities indicating that as an office with naturally uh, some limitation on our resources that we are going to prioritize certain types of uh, violations and less of a uh, less inf- uh, less uh, priority uh, on others. So in that light, we then issued um, a statement that included about uh, 10 different statements about various aspects of the existing rule. Uh, the main, I'll just cover a couple of highlights here. Um, the first one being species limitations. As I'm sure you know, uh, the air carrier... <laughs> Access Act does allow for a broader variety of species of animals to be transported on board aircraft as service animals. That is written into the rule, and until that rule is changed, it can't be changed. So we did indicate that, of course, um, there is a remains a broad variety of species that uh, can be accepted and must be accepted for transport as service animals, but... We said that uh, we are going to ensure our priority, as an, as an enforcement office, we're going to focus our efforts on ensuring that dogs, cats, and miniature horses are accepted for transport. What that means is that if an airline refuses to accept other species, they will be in violation, such as rabbits, for example, uh, they will be in violation of our rule, but as an enforcement matter, we are going to focus our efforts on ensuring that dogs, cats, and miniature horses are accepted for transport. People always ask about miniature horses. Uh, There is a reason that they are prioritized, but in practice, they're almost never brought on board aircraft. Uh, And another big question that has come up has to do with um, the breeds of dogs. Um, Certain airlines have uh, imposed restrictions on breeds such as pit bulls. We did indicate that our current rule uh, prohibits restrictions based on breed. So, uh, and that is because uh, there is there is no there is no uh, we view a limitation based exclusively on breed to be not allowed under the service animal uh, regulation. In part because it's inconsistent with the mandate that dogs as a species be accepted for transport. So that is uh, another one that has taken uh, quite a lot of, gotten a lot of uh, press. Um, the, the next one that is probably of greatest um, interest has to do with documentation requirements. Uh, airlines have, from time to time, imposed some of their own uh, documentation requirements when flying on an aircraft. Things like asking for veterinary forms, asking for behavior attestations, training forms, things like that. Our rule is silent about whether airlines can uh, require those sorts of things or not. Our rule doesn't say anything one way or another about any of those types of forms. What the rule does say is that airlines are allowed to determine whether any animal poses a direct threat to the safety of individuals in the cabin. But the rule does not indicate how airlines can, may, or must uh, make that assessment. As such, we have said that uh, we are not going to take enforcement action against airlines for asking users of any type of service animal uh, to present documentation related to vaccination training or behavior 
as long as it's reasonable to believe that the documentation would assist the airline in, in making a determination as to whether the animal poses a direct threat to the health or safety of others. This is an issue that we are continuing to monitor and uh, one that we are monitoring closely. Uh, the enforcement statement does cover a number of other issues, such as containment of an animal on board an aircraft, uh, the number of animals that uh, must be transported of, uh, as service animals. We indicated that we would only take action, that we would not take action if airlines limit the number of emotional support animals to one, uh, even though there's no um, specific number limits anywhere in our rule. Uh, and the final enforcement statement does cover a, a broad number of other categories. But since my time is up and those are the highlights, uh, I will at this point uh, pass the baton to Megan to talk about the amendments to the rule, proposed amendments to the rule, and then we'll have some time for questions. Thank you. Thank you again for having us. Um, I'm going to start off talking a little bit about um, the proposals that we made, to, the proposals that we made to the service animal rule. Um, as you all are probably aware, we currently consider a service animal to be any animal that is individually trained or able to provide assistance to a qualified person with a disability, or any animal shown by documentation to be necessary for the emotional well-being of a passenger. Under the proposed NP or under the proposed rule, um, we have um, proposed a definition of a service animal to be a service animal would be defined as a dog that is individually trained to do work or perform tasks for the benefit of a qualified individual with a disability, including a physical, sensory, psychiatric, intellectual, or other mental disability. Now, I know you guys are probably familiar with that definition in large part. It's very, very similar to the, the ADA definition of a service animal under the Department of Justice's rule. Um, the difference, though, with our rule and the ADA version of the rule is that the word qualified disability is in our rule, which is consistent with our language in our current Part 382, where we discuss qualified individual with a disability. So that's largely the only change. Um, also in the NPRM, I think the most popular aspect of the NPRM is our treatment of emotional support animals. We are now proposing that airlines would no longer be required to recognize emotional support animals as service animals. <laughs> this is just a proposal. So <laughs> um, uh, we are eagerly awaiting... Um, to see the public's uh, opinion on uh, this proposal, and um, I'll, I'll get into the number of comments that we have received thus far at the end of uh, my summary, but um, that probably, as I said, is uh, the, the, the most popular provision that I anticipate that we'll receive the most comments about. Um, the third um, area that uh, we discussed in our rule that I think also is pretty popular. We've received comments about this area uh, for years, going back um, at least since prior, prior to our 2008, our large 2008 amendment to Part 382. Um, but it's the fact that, or our proposal that psychiatric service animals would be treated the same as other service animals that are individually trained to do work or perform a task for the benefit of an individual with a disability. So as you guys probably know, under the current rule, um, individuals traveling with both 
emotional support animals and psychiatric service animals um, have to provide or airlines can require them to provide 48 hours advance notice prior to travel and check-in one hour before the check-in time. But for psychiatric service animals under the proposed rule, that would no longer be the case. They would be treated, um, individuals with traveling with psychiatric service animals would be treated um, the same as all other service animal users. So that's a big deal. Um, with respect to species, as Rob mentioned, our current rule has a very broad species requirement. And our, under the proposal, airlines would be permitted to limit service animals to dogs only. So that's also another major change. With respect to forms, um, Rob also talked about um, how our current rule is largely silent on a lot of the new forms that airlines have started to implement under their new service animal policies. And under our proposed rule, airlines would be permitted to require passengers traveling with the service animal to provide a completed U.S. Department of Transportation service animal air transportation health form, and they would also be permitted to require passengers to provide a U.S. Department of Transportation service animal transportation behavior and training attestation form. That's a large, a long title for two forms, but those are the, um, the two forms that every um, individual with the, traveling with the service animal would, uh, airlines would be required to, um, or uh, permitted to allow them to, we permit airlines to require those forms from individuals traveling with service animals. Also, on flights eight hours or longer, Airlines can also require passengers traveling with service animals to complete a U.S. Department of Transportation service animal relief attestation form. So um, these forms are pretty unique, and this is the first time the department has done anything like this. They're basically U.S. Department of Transportation forms that we know that there we've received a lot of input that, and we discussed this in the NPRM, that there are a lot of different forms out there right now, given the service animal policies, and in order to bring some uniformity to the, to the process the department is proposing to allow airlines to require these forms and these forms only. With respect to the number of service animals that airlines are permitted, um, or that airlines can limit, um, airlines would be permitted to limit the number of service animals to two passengers traveling with a single individual with a disability. Large service animals. To two. Two animals. Oh, I said two people. I'm sorry, two animals. Let me repeat that. <laughs> airlines would be permitted to limit the number of service am animals traveling with a single passenger with a single, with the disability to two service animals. Two service animals. I apologize. Sorry about that. Um, airlines would also be required to um, would be permitted to require a service animal to fit on the handler's lap or within the handler's foot space on the aircraft. And with respect to control, again, uh, Rob mentioned some of. Um, what our current requirements are. Uh, airlines would be permitted to require that a service animal be harnessed, leashed, tethered, or otherwise under the control of its handler. And those or that proposal is, again, similar to what I'm sure you guys have seen in the uh, DOJ version of the ADA rule. Service animal breed or type. 
airlines would continue to be uh, would continue airlines could continue to prohibit or airlines would be prohibited from would from refusing to transport a service animal based solely on breed or generalized physical type as distinct from an individual assessment of the animal's behavior or health. Um, we understand that there might be concerns about um, that certain breeds might be dangerous or the type of animal um, might be dangerous because of its jaws or the size of the animal and the department is again encouraging comments if, in order to suss out those concerns. And finally, with respect to check-in requirements, airlines may require a passenger, well, we propose that airlines be, um, may require a passenger with a disability traveling with the service animal to check in at the airport one hour before the check-in time for the general public. Um, but if an airline does this, um, an airline must have a person um, at the airport that would assist that individual prior to prior to the um, time, or would assist that individual um, to promptly assist the individual with the check-in process. So those are the major proposals in the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking. Um, at this time, to date, we've received approximately 10,400 comments on, this, on these proposals. So um, this is pretty popular. I think when we issued the notice or the advance notice of proposed rulemaking in May of 2018, we received a total of 4,000, a little over 4,000 comments. And so um, us, for us to receive um, over 10,000 comments is pretty remarkable at this point. The comment period, as LaVon said, is um, open until April 6th of this year. So we are eagerly awaiting all of the comments that you guys have on the rule. Um, again, there are some very uh, popular provisions that we, and we are looking forward to your comments. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, we're running low on time, unfortunately, so I think we can take one question from the audience. And then I'm sure if it's okay with our uh, DOT guests, they can take questions um, off to the side. But unfortunately, we are running low on time. Um, hi, this is Vicki Prien. I, I'm curious. Um, many European countries have passports for specific um, service animals. Have, uh, have you all ever considered doing that? Because that would simplify a lot of things. In the NPRM, we, we do not um, discuss or consider uh, passports for animals, but we do talk a bit about documentation and the ease of uh, availability of fraudulent documentation and proliferation of it that's out there. So to the extent that you um, are proposing to um, comment for the department's consideration, passports similar to um, uh, what uh, European countries may be doing, that would be something that we would like to see in a comment. Unfortunately, you guys, we are going to have to move on. We just have a lot packed into our schedule. But very brief question. I'm coming towards the back, Penny. Thank you. I will be quick. Uh, I just want you to know that Guide Dog Users Incorporated, our comments should be arriving at your docket today. Um, and I want to urge all of our members to submit comments as well. I'm wondering, once the deadline passes on April 6th, can you anticipate how long it will be before the um, 
new rules are implemented and improved, approved. We haven't put a schedule on yet, right? Um, I don't have a date yet, um, but what I can tell you is that um, service animals um, is a high priority for the department. Um, so Megan up here has got her work cut out for her. Um, <laughs> if we're at 10,000 comments and we still have um, a month to go, um, there'll be a lot to read. Um, but what we're planning to do is um, uh, try to utilize our resources as best as possible to um, review and consider all of the comments that we get as quickly as we can. Uh, um, after reviewing the comments, that puts us in a position to uh, discuss uh, internally um, up the chain um, what um, comments we received and what proposals we may want to move forward with uh, in a final rule. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. You're very uh, we're welcome. Thank you for the question. Excited about your harmonizing the ADA definition with the FAA definition. Um, Great. We're Thanks. not thrilled with all of them, but we're very uh, grateful to you. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Department of Transportation. We're so appreciative. Um, we're happy when you come every year. Um, we're going to go ahead and jump into our next presentation if the speakers can come up while the next speakers are coming up. Again, we encourage all ACB members to submit comments for the notice to propose rulemaking. And if you guys have any questions, feel free to contact Clark or myself. We'd be happy to send you out some information. And if you have any difficulty submitting your comments, call the office. We will help you submit them. We don't want that to be a barrier to you submitting your comments. Okay, so we'll go ahead and introduce our next speakers. We're really excited to have them here today. We have Maggie Hart from Washington Lawyers Committee, as well as Jim Jimmy Behrman, I hope I'm saying your name right, from Shepard Mullen. They have been working, I'm sure many of you have seen through our announcements that have come out about the legislation that just moved through in West Virginia to provide for accessible voting via absentee ballot. Um, so we're really exciting. We've been working with them for a while on this, and they're going to briefly go through what happened, what it looked like, and um, what's going on. And I'm especially excited to introduce Maggie. She and I, once upon a time ago, were colleagues together at Disability Rights DC, so it's fun to be working with her again. So Maggie and Jimmy, the floor is yours. Hello. Hi, I'm Jimmy Bierman, and I'm with the law firm of Shepard, Mullen, Richter, and Hampton. Uh, we provided pro bono uh, assistance on this case in West Virginia, a case that we thought was going to go to litigation, but that uh, by some grit and a lot of luck uh, ended up being... Uh, we ended up being able to get a bill through the West Virginia legislature to um, to allow for private independent voting for individuals who are blind. Um, we're very excited about it. I, when I got on this case, had not really uh, done any work uh, on disability law. Uh, I had to rely on Maggie, who's going to tell you a little bit about the actual law behind this case. But uh, I brought something to it, which was a knowledge of politics. So first she'll go over the law, and I'll go over the politics. Thank you. Hi, good morning, everybody. Thank you for having us. So my name is Maggie, and I'm from the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs, um, where I do disability rights work. 
Um, and this was a really great collaboration, and we were happy to work with um, you know ACB as well. Um, and so what what we did was we took a, a look at the status of the law and the right of individuals with disabilities to vote privately and independently, which includes voting privately and independently in the absentee voting process. Um, as I'm sure you know, several states use paper ballots only in their absentee process, which are inaccessible um, for people with various disabilities, including people who are blind or low vision. And so, um, you know, we were looking at Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which prohibits public entities from excluding from participation or um, denying the benefits of a public program. Uh, voting is, of course, a public program um, run by the states, often with federal funding, um, and so Section 504 would apply too. And so um, in West Virginia in particular, they were using a paper-only uh, absentee voting process for individuals with disabilities. Um, they had a pilot program for uniformed and overseas voters that used a mobile voting app, actually, that had a lot of accessibility features or could be used with an individual's um, appropriate individualized assistive tech. And so what we did was, um, essentially with Jimmy, actually wrote a very eloquent and persuasive <laughs> letter to the Secretary of State explaining the law, explaining the right to a private independent ballot, um, explaining how Title II works and applies, explaining that 504 applies, um, and advocating for them to expand the use of the mobile voting app um, for individuals with disabilities in the absentee voting process. Um, and because the law is on our side and clear, um, and because West Virginia is in the Fourth Circuit where there was case law out of Maryland saying that online ballot marking devices um, or electronic you know, transmission of the ballot is a reasonable accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, we used those two things <laughs> um, as deftly as we could to um, explain the law and the affirmative obligation to provide accessible absentee voting to individuals with disabilities to the West Virginia Secretary of State and the legislature. Um, and that's really, that's really it. I think Jimmy can explain a bit more of exactly how we did that and who we approached and how it went. So I guess you could say I was a little bit overconfident and a little underconfident. <laughs> I was underconfident because even though we had West Virginia dead to rights on the law, um, I don't trust federal judges. Uh, and I thought even with the law being extremely clear, we still only had a 75% chance of winning and it would take a long time with lots of appeals and everything. However, I was overconfident because I thought we had a real opportunity to work with, um, with the Secretary of State's office in West Virginia because they appeared, even before we met with them, to be very willing partners. Mac Warner, the Secretary of State uh, in West Virginia, is a West Point grad, and I believe his son was in the military, which is how he piloted this program to use a mobile voting app um, to allow overseas voters to vote. And in the pilot program, there were a number of um, military folks and also like Peace Corps folks and people who were just overseas who voted. Well, if they could use the app, why couldn't people who were in West Virginia use the app? And 
We, uh, you know, Maggie helped, uh, wrote a memo that explained all this law. We drew, we drew up a complaint. We started finding plaintiffs, which is, is really important to have plaintiffs whose stories, uh, make sense. I think my favorite was, was one individual who basically said to us, um, I voted for Barack Obama in 2012 in West Virginia. I didn't want anybody to know who I voted for. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, so we reached out to the Secretary of State's office. Um, we, we reached out to the Secretary of State's office, and, and we got really lucky because they actually listened to us. And we went down to Charleston and met with the general counsel of the Secretary of State, a guy named Deke Kiersey, who was really great to work with, um, the Deputy Secretary of State and the Chief Elections Officer. And we sat him down and we said, hey, this is really an opportunity for you. This is an opportunity for you to be at the cutting edge of potentially mobile voting that will help a lot of disabled individuals. And you don't actually have to do something all that new and they were they were actually quite um sympathetic at first to that and they were looking at a potential lawsuit and we made clear that if they didn't do something we were going to sue them um which which always helps so we thought that meeting was great, but then, of course, we got back uh, a letter saying essentially that the Secretary of State's office didn't think it had the power to offer this under the current um, uh, current uh, election code. Sorry, um, under the current election code. So that's when we got the memo. The memo we wrote to them basically said, "Well, actually, you could do this under the current election code," and we laid out some reasons. But by the way, if you don't do this under the current election code, you're still going to get sued and you're still going to be dead to rights under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, That worked. They uh, immediately uh, jumped into overdrive. It was very funny because when we initially met with them, they said that they don't usually work on legislation, but they jumped into overdrive, wrote some really good legislation, let us have an impact on it. It actually extends uh, this voting option. Uh, originally, it was going to be for voters uh, who were blind or had hand dexterity impairments, couldn't use paper, but now it's for anyone who uh, qualifies as disabled under the Americans with Disabilities. Act. And then we worked with them to shepherd this through the West Virginia legislature. Again, the real key was having great partners on the ground, but it ended up, in the end, we ended up having some funny battle lines drawn. Uh, The West Virginia governor is a Republican. Both houses of the legislature are dominated by Republicans. And in the Senate, this bill passed unanimously almost immediately. But then there were folks in the House, some Democrats in the, fo- in the House, who thought that this was some kind of power grab by the Secretary of State. So we explained to them that actually the Secretary of State had written this law because otherwise they were going to get sued. So it was the opposite of a power grab. So that worked as well, and we were able to get both uh, get it through the House 40 to nothing, through the Senate, uh, sorry, the House 93 to nothing, through the Senate 40 to nothing, and then Jim Justice signed this bill. So um, I'm going to kick it back to Maggie here to talk a little bit more about where we might go from here and uh, the state of the law right now again. Yep. So as Jim said, uh, Governor Justice signed this bill into law. Um, An accessible electronic voting option should be available in the primary for voters with disabilities. Um, As you also alluded to, we, in the course of doing this, we 
uh, took a look at the definition of a voter with a disability under West Virginia's law, and it was um, unique um, <laughs> and, and extremely limited. So we did we did broaden it, um, uh, you know, uh, to all individuals with uh, a physical disability and with consistent language with the ADA, which um, is is much further and more broad, not as not quite as far as I would love it to go, but we were able to do that in addition to the absentee, um, accessible absentee voting option. Um, the other thing that I think was critical here and will be critical for moving forward with uh, voting rights issues across the country is those stories on the ground and your local partners. Um, so our the third kind of partner um, with us who was not able to be here today was Disability Rights West Virginia. So the Protection and Advocacy Organization for West Virginia. Um, they were absolutely essential in, in moving this bill through um, from the very beginning. And they helped to collect stories of people um, in West Virginia who would benefit from the use of an accessible um, ballot option. Uh, they also, you know, attended all of these meetings with us and, and worked with the Secretary of State's office to get this through. Um, as I'm sure you know, the, the PNAs are an indispensable resource for people across the country, and um, we were exceedingly lucky to partner with such, um, such capable, um, knowledgeable advocates and attorneys down there. Um, so many states are expanding accessible absentee voting options, um, and they are also expanding electronic voting options for overseas voters. Um, I think that states that have the option of electronic uh, balloting for overseas voters but not for voters with disabilities are particularly vulnerable on this issue. Um, the fact that West Virginia had that app and had used it and had used it successfully and securely was essential for our argument. Um, and so I think if people are interested in in looking at this issue in their own state, you know, look at what's available for overseas voters. Um, talk to people in your state. Start collecting those stories. Um, you know, connect with local advocates and attorneys um, and. I guess contact Claire and Clark and they can kind of connect you to me and I'd be happy to talk strategy with you in detail. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much, Maggie and Jimmy. We really appreciate it. We're running a little bit behind, but I think we can take one question if anybody has a burning question for Maggie and Jimmy. Um, this is Chris Hunsinger from Pennsylvania and I'm curious, why did this get limited to people with definable disabilities? Is it a volume issue, or do you think disabled people are a little bit more, um, or a little bit less likely to break laws and, and try to manipulate votes? And what does the Iowa caucus issue, um, how, how badly that was managed, how, how will that affect other states' um, positions on this kind of a, of a system? And is electronic, is electronic ballot delivery um, any better than electronic uh, voting? So, unfortunate, so unfortunately, the day the Jim Justice signed this bill into the law was the day of the Iowa caucuses. <laughs> 
It's a different app. It uses blockchain technology to preserve uh, votes and to create a um, a different thing that can be not cannot be changed and can be used for auditing later. It actually kind of has nothing to do with the Iowa caucus app. Uh, but yes, that is absolutely a challenge. And the challenge we have right now is that there obviously is a, an extreme amount of concern about election security. Um, I remember when we were first meeting with Jim Dixon uh, talking about this case, and he, he, he joked to us, he said, election security, the original election insecurity was stuffing ballots into a box. So um, being able to fill out a paper ballot is no help for us and no help for our community. And that, I think, still rings true. And we still will want to make that, uh, that argument across the state levels. Now, to your point about uh, ballot delivery versus actually voting the ballot on an, on an app. So the original case that we used, this, uh, this case out of Maryland, in Maryland they have something called an online ballot marking tool. It electronically sends the app to the individual, allows you to use technology to mark the, the, the ballot, and then you print it out and have to send it in yourself. Now obviously that presents another additional step that is harder uh, for individuals who want to vote in independently and privately that way. You have to fold, fold up your ballot. You have to have a printer. You have to get a stamp. Um, but the thing is that that remains 100% necessary in the Fourth Circuit under the case law. They can't get around that. And so West Virginia, we think, has a real opportunity to use this mobile voting app uh, situation. But even if uh, security concerns grow too much, there is always a fallback of an electronic ballot marking tool that simply electronically transmits the ballot. So either way, we think that we're expanding uh, access to this, types of, this type of voting. Great. Thank you so much, Maggie and Jimmy. This has been a great partnership. Um, just to let you guys know, Maggie and Jimmy will be sticking around for lunch, so if you guys have any questions, they will be here. Um, I also just want to thank the Washington Lawyers Committee. They've worked with ACB for years now on many issues and will continue to do so. Um, and one of their other attorneys will actually be speaking later today. So thank you so much to the Washington Lawyers Committee. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I hope everyone's in enjoying the lunch today. Uh, I'd like to get started with our, our lunch presentation. So it's, it's my pleasure to introduce to the ACB membership, uh, someone who's been a, a friend of ACB for a number of years now. Uh, his name is Charles Cooper. So I first met Charles a few years back when I was still with National Industries for the Blind and actually a, a mutual friend of ours and of ACB's and ACB's. He tried to get away, but we pulled him back in. Um, Tony Stevens was part of the crew that um, brought Charles and his firm on as a consultant at National Industries for the Blind. And that relationship with Charles has carried over to doing some uh, advocacy work with ACB as well. Um, so Charles is the, the chair of Signal Group's um, advocacy practice, and he serves a wide, diverse range of clients, both in the private sector as well 
is in the, the nonprofit space. He has extensive history and background on Capitol Hill. Uh, so please give a warm welcome to Charles Cooper with Signal Group here to provide a 2020 political outlook. Thank you very much. Can everybody hear me all right? Yeah. Great. How about this? A little bit better? Well, thank you for having me. And I really appreciate the opportunity to, to be here. Thanks to Eric and Clark and Claire and everyone else for inviting me. Uh, I'd especially like to thank, I think it's table number nine or ten, all the Floridians in the room from my home state of Florida. Uh, well, I thought, uh, I thought I, would, I would give a quick presentation a little bit on an update on the House and Senate elections, uh, an update on the Democratic primary, a preview of the general election, and um, maybe a few thoughts on what all this means for policy in the coming year, if that sounds okay. Uh, we are not far from the election. We're 253 days away. And maybe some of us are already tired of it. I don't know. Uh, well, for, for folks who are too tired of it and don't want to listen, I'm going to give you a quick executive summary of what I'm going to say. Basically, uh, I think we really expect a roller coaster going forward until November. And secondly, the only thing that we can actually predict, and I will make some predictions, but generally speaking, the only thing that we can really predict is that lot, a lot is going to change between now and November. Candidates, polling, and policy position. So expect a, a little bit of everything, but why don't I start with a, a brief overview of the House of Representatives. So as you all know, Democrats currently have a majority. It's a 33-seat it's a 33, 33 majority in the House, which is pretty substantial. There are currently 21 seats that are considered toss-up seats. Most, the majority of those are actually uh, held by Democrats because Trump won uh, a number of states, uh, a number of districts that are currently held by freshman Democrats. So out of those 21, 15 are held by Democrats, six are held by Republicans. I would say that, you know, it's really tough to, to pull back a 33-seat majority. So if I was to guess today, I think Republicans have a possibility of gaining some seats back, but generally speaking, it looks at this point like the math is trending towards Democrats keeping, keeping the House. And some of that, of course, will, will depend in some of these districts on how, how uh, candidates above them on the ballot uh, perform. So if, if Donald Trump performs well in those districts, the Republican obviously will get a boost out of that. If the Democratic candidate will, the Democrat will get a boost out of that. But, but generally, summarizing here, the House is... Uh, is trending towards staying in the Democratic majority. Interestingly enough, a new Gallup poll came out today that uh, for the first time since 2012 says that six out of ten Americans want their, their representative in Congress reelected. I don't know if that's representative of this room, but um, I think generally speaking, that's not the case. There's a, there's a large anti-incumbent 
uh, sort of belief come election season. And for the first time since 2012, that's changing. So I think that also sits well, frankly, for, for Democrats in office. Uh, for the U.S. Senate, it's a little bit different. Republicans control the Senate majority currently by six seats, which basically means they need to, to flip, th- Democrats would need to flip three seats uh, if, the, if there's a Democratic president, because the, that president will, will be the tie-breaking vote. If uh, there's a Republican president next year, they'll have to switch four seats. So that's not out of the realm of possibility. There's, there's really five seats considered uh, to be toss-ups right now. Arizona, Colorado, Maine, and North Carolina, all held by Republicans, and Alabama held by a Democrat. But generally speaking, these are, these are states where the performance of the presidential candidate will be super important. So I think if, for those of you in any of those states, Alabama, Colorado, Maine, North Carolina, and uh, Arizona, a lot of it rests on who wins the presidential uh, election. And that will flow down to the Senate seats in those states. And obviously, uh, except maybe for, for Maine and Alabama, those are all s- states that are, that are trending more purple than red or blue. Uh, so at this point, I would say, again, a, a very early prediction that Republicans will probably hold on to the Senate. They may lose a couple seats, but they'll be able to hold on to the Senate majority by a narrow margin. Uh, I know that's not as exciting as the presidential, so... I'm going to move on to, to talk a little bit about the Democratic primary, which uh, is trending more interesting every day. As you know, three uh, primary states are finished, or close to three, I guess, depending on how, how we're judging Iowa. But Iowa, Nevada, and New Hampshire are finished. I think um, we have uh, the, the current numbers. Our Sanders leads with 39 uh, delegates, followed by Buttigieg with 25, followed by Biden with 13, and Warren and Klobuchar have 8 and 7 respectively. So it's still really early. You know, you need over 1,100 delegates uh, to get the nomination. The, the one interesting factor that we are closely monitoring is that there's a little bit of a discussion whether a majority of delegates matters or not among the Democratic primary. And with this many candidates in the primary, you know, you could, you could basically have the most uh, delegates without necessarily having a majority, which would then, if something wasn't worked out, would, be, would take that all the way to the, to the uh, convention in Milwaukee. So that's a little bit concerning for all the candidates, candidly. Um, there's, there's generally a move to get a lot of candidates out soon. If that doesn't happen, it's going to be tough to get a full majority of the, of the delegates. Uh, so the next, the next uh, primary state is South Carolina, and that's this Saturday. Do we have any South Carolinians here? They're all campaigning back home. But, um, but I think, uh, you know, S- Vice President Biden has a lead there. Candidly, it's being narrowed by, uh, by Bernie Sanders and uh, who seems to be moving really strongly. Biden, uh, Vice President Biden's going to get some key endorsements here in the next 24 to 48 hours, which I think will, will help. But, but he, he obviously needs to win South Carolina, and uh, it looks like Bernie Sanders is going to remain strong there. After South Carolina, 
uh, we move on to Super Tuesday. There's a, a number of Super Tuesday states here in the room, so uh, I'm sure you'll be back by March 3rd to, to uh, participate there. But Super Tuesday is essentially 14 states plus uh, American Samoa and uh, Democrats abroad. So it's a big, it's a big group of uh, really important states. It's an, interesting, it's an interesting election with so many people in there. Right now, uh, if Sanders performs strongly in, during Super Tuesday, which in the early polling states, it looks like he's, he's competitive in almost all of them, uh, his momentum will, be, will continue and it will be hard to, he'll be hard to beat going forward. I think there's a lot of concern amongst the other candidates about uh, a positive performance by Sanders in Super Tuesday. Uh, Biden, Klobuchar, Warren, and Buttigieg really have to perform well on Super Tuesday. They, they're both, they're all uh, obviously still in the race, but without a good performance Super Tuesday, it's very hard to see a path where they could gain enough uh, delegates to be a serious contender. Interestingly enough, uh, you know, we're all hearing a lot about Bloomberg on the news, and uh, there's one Bloomberg fan here, but there, we're hearing a lot of Bloomberg on the news. He hasn't even been on the ballot yet. So the first time he will be on the ballot is on, in the Super Tuesday states. That was sort of his move that he would spend a lot of time uh, on those states. He has spent $160 million on TV ads in those states alone, which, which is significantly larger than anybody else. Um, and so I think for Bloomberg, he obviously can afford to stay in as long as he wants to. He's paying his staff through the election, so there's not a budget concern there. But after spending $160 million on states that, that he's been narrowly focused on, if he doesn't perform well, I think, I think there's a question of what his, his electability will be going uh, forward. But I expect him to, to move forward. Uh, on to the general election. So obviously there's... Tuesday will tell us, or Super Tuesday on March 3rd will tell us a lot. Um, but then we, we're obviously going to move into the general election where there's a whole new dynamic to, to look at. Uh, the reality is, is Trump is going to talk a, a ton about the economy, and he's going to talk about national security almost exclusively uh, if they stay on message. The Democratic nominee is probably going to run on the economy not working for the middle class and health care both of which are issues that are currently uh, pulling through the roof, potentially more even than just generally the economy. National polling, which I, I don't think really matters, so if anybody, if anybody out there focuses too much on national polling, I want to warn you that national polling doesn't take into any account for the Electoral College. So at the end of the day, national polling is, is who is up nationally, not who's up in the important states. But... Um, the national polling doesn't consider the Electoral College, so I'm not too concerned about it. But uh, it does currently give about a six-point lead for the Democratic candidate, regardless of who that candidate is. Some people are, are studying how much uh, people are spending, because back, you know, traditional thinking was the, the candidates that could raise the most money and spend the most money would win. I, I think that in the 2016 election, that was proven wrong. Trump... Uh, spent, I think, a, about 600, 600 million, 650 million. Clinton spent over a billion dollars all in with parties and everything. And obviously the, the election didn't, didn't show that. Currently, Trump and Bloomberg 
are both over $200 million in spending and money raised, which is a considerable, considerable amount considering we still have 253 days left to go. Excuse me. So I think there's, this is going to be a non-traditional election like the last one was. I think it's very hard to predict what happens. There's a lot of national trends that are conflicting with each other. What I would say is it's important to, to not watch necessarily what the messages are because I don't think this is going to be a policy-heavy election. <coughs> Excuse me. I think what we really not, need to watch for is who's getting their message out. Who's louder? Who's on TV more often? Who's on the radio? Whose ads are penetrating? And I think if you look at the model from last year, you can't ignore the power of social media. And as it stands right now, just as an example, not making any judgment, but Trump has 72 million Twitter followers. Uh, the, next can the candidate closest to him on the Democratic side is 10 million. So the ability to get your message out and get it out quickly and get it out to a lot of people in a very expensive, costly, advertising-heavy election, you know, people need to pay, pay attention to those things. So that's the, the election and how, uh, how interesting it may be or how frustrating it may be, depending on what side you're on. I wanted to, to close with something we've been spending a lot of time on, which is looking at how the 2020 election is going to impact policy. And all of you, or most of you, are headed to Capitol Hill tomorrow to talk about some really important issues. And those issues uh, obviously could be impacted by the election to some degree. So I wanted to talk a little bit about why I actually am predicting and feel very confident about this is going to be a very different year for policymaking than a traditional presidential election year. Traditionally, everybody would look like a, at an election year like 2020 and immediately think nothing is going to happen in the, on the Hill or nothing is going to get signed into law and you'll have to wait till a non-election year. You know, I think that there's uh, traditional thinking is probably right on that. This year is going to be different. The reality is we're seeing a ton of election activity happening. We're seeing, I'm sorry, policy activity happening. If you just look at the th past three months alone, all 12 appropriations bills to fund the entire government were passed on a bipartisan basis and signed into law. The entire policy for, for the Department of Defense was, thank you, was uh, passed and signed into law. A massive, re the largest reform of retirement security was passed into, and signed into law. There's a whole host of issues that were passed into, and signed into law towards the end of next year and the beginning of this year, that just shows that I think this is going to be a very different year. And here's why that's happening. Despite the fact that this could be the most partisan Congress in our history, and hyper-partisanship on both sides of the aisle is at just record levels, there's a lot of bipartisanship happening behind the scenes. And it seems like parties are working on a parallel track where they fight very viciously publicly, and they go behind the scenes and they work on the issues that I refer to as sort of below the fold, where they're not, they're not a, a key issue in the press, but they're a big deal, and Republicans and Democrats come together behind the scenes to work on them. There's a ton of stuff like that happening right now, not only between Republicans and Democrats, but Republicans and Democrats in both the House and Senate all working together 
towards a common bill. And these are significant pieces of legislation. So I would say that, first of all, tomorrow your, your day on the Hill is really important because this will be a heavy policymaking year despite what others may say. And even tomorrow on the Hill you may, you may hear somebody say, ah, you know, we're not going to be able to do a lot before the election. I, I think that's wrong, and I think the last three months have shown it. I also think that, you know, it's, it's even that much more important to stay engaged with policymakers. Policymakers in an election year, every House member that you meet with tomorrow is up for election. A third of the senators that you meet with tomorrow are up for election. People need wins back home. They want to hear from constituents. They want to hear what's happening. They want to hear what's important. And they want to be able to go home and talk about the, the accomplishments that they've had. And in a Congress that doesn't pass or get bills signed into law, that's very difficult. There's a real incentive for a lot to get done. So I would expect an active first half of this year at least through, uh, you know, through June should be really active. And I'm really excited that you're here. You should be really uh, proud of yourselves for, for not only making the trip to D.C., but being committed to talk about these issues. And it's you know, coming to D.C. For, for everybody. You know, people don't, aren't, aren't necessarily all believing in D.C. these days. And to be able to come here and your willingness to meet with your representatives and senators is really important and a really big deal. I commend you for it. Thank you for having me here, and I'll take some questions if uh, anybody has them. Thank you. <clears throat> Mr. Cooper, this is uh, Ray Campbell from Illinois. Um, thank you for that very good presentation. Um, based upon the current crop of candidates and your analysis of them and you know, kind of what's all going on, do you see anybody that, if they don't get the nomination, might come out as an independent, which could really sway things? I really don't. You know, we, we actually had this conversation this morning at my office. I think it's, the reality is the, the nomination can extend a fairly long period of time, and there is a cutoff point to get on the ballot. And so I don't see that happening. People have talked about it. Where, you know, people have theorized that with a Sanders or a Bloomberg. I think Bloomberg would have done it before entering this if he wanted to. And Sanders is obviously in the lead, so he's going he's gonna to be in there for a while at least. So I, I personally don't see that happening. And, and I also think an independent candidate would probably do more harm to Democrats and Republicans if I was to guess. Um, so that's where, that's where things uh, in my mind stand. Any other questions? Thank you. Uh, it's Paul D'Addario from Virginia. I'm curious your expectation for turnout. That seems to be a word that comes up in many elections and uh, if you see the trends changing or expect them to change this year, for example, the elderly people tend to vote in a higher percentage than um, younger voters. Appreciate your thoughts. Yeah, th thank you for that. It's a, I think turnout is a little hard to tell with just three, three states reporting. Um, I think turnout is not at record levels, for sure. And I haven't seen the breakout amongst a variety of demographics, but I think this needs, to, for both sides, it really needs to be a big turnout year. For, for on the Democratic side, the, the party is fairly split in the primary, even though Sanders has a significant lead. You know, that's, that's split over seven or eight candidates in all of these states so far, with a new candidate emerging in these Super Tuesday states. 
On the Republican side, you know, the the entire party is not is not uh, expressed a willingness to vote for for President Trump. So both sides really need a fairly strong turnout model to win, and turnout's going to play a big role. But but I don't really have an assessment this early on on where that's going. But that's a really good question, Paul. The Bloomberg machinery that's in place. A lot of people are saying if he doesn't get the nomination, that he intends to turn that machinery over to whoever the candidate is. What is the likelihood of that happening or the candidate accepting it if that offer is made? That's a good question. Um, maybe best asked to, to Mike Bloomberg. But I, uh, my, my guess would be this. I think anybody who's currently – I think people are pretty sincere that anybody on the Democratic side that's currently running and that's a viable candidate will try to turn their, their operation over to the nominee. And, and frankly, in this divided of a primary, just, just as it was on the Republican side in 2016, I think they need it. So I anticipate that happening. I don't really, you know, Mike Bloomberg has mentioned that. I don't really know what that entirely entails, turning over your, your operation. But I would, I would guess that he would certainly help uh, from a funding standpoint, from a staffing standpoint, and uh, from an endorsement standpoint, but hard to, hard to tell how, how the remaining debates and, uh, and fights go from here and where that ends up. But I, I would suspect everybody would be on board at the end of the day. And if, if there's one more question, we'll take one more for Charles. So I wanted to switch gears to um, more policy-oriented. I'm the um, president of, our, uh, of ACB senior affiliate, and I've noticed that in recent budgets, um, nobody seems to get cut. Um, some people are even getting increases, but blindness programs don't seem to be getting any increases. What is, well, there's a lot wrong with that picture, but what is it that we have to do to make our case such that we will sometimes be in the groups that do get some of those increases if they can, assuming we continue to have increases in the years to come and a recession doesn't change the whole picture. Thank you for your question. There's obviously a number of programs that I think you're, you're referring to, but in order of importance, the most important thing is to, be, to remain engaged and to get your friends and colleagues and, and uh, co-workers engaged as much as you can on these issues. Policymakers need to hear, not once a year, not twice a year, a continuous discussion about these issues to remain relevant. And think about, think about who else is out there. S- extremely well-funded entities that are talking about their priorities, that are, that are always here in D.C., that have, have huge constituencies. And, and the reality is we all need to compete with that. So you have a really good team on the ground here in D.C. I would leverage them as much as possible. But, but we all sort of have a role in this, in the advocacy game. And I think your role is to not only make sure that when you're up here, you're voicing those, those uh, concerns and priorities to your members of Congress and senators and staff, but that you're also doing it back home and that you're staying in regular contact, that you're making sure others are staying in regular contact, that this is not an issue that they sort of hear about once a year or twice a year. This is an issue that is, is front, of, front and center, not, not just from one person, but, but from a lot of people. So 
I know that's easier said than done, but I, I truly believe that's sort of the winning formula on getting these issues across the finish line. And the ones that you're talking about are not, you know, close to the top of the list in terms of, of funding expense. So these are hopefully easier issues for them to, to find funding for, but they, they need to hear about it often, and they need to hear about it from a lot of people. So with that, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate being here, and good luck for the rest of your stay. Thank you. Um, well, we're going to get started again because we have a jam-packed schedule. Um, so we're going to talk about going back to school. Yeah. Um, so we have a great speaker today to talk about the Cogswell-Macy Act, something the American Council of the Blind has been dedicated to for many years now. We're going to continue to work on because it's so important. So I'd like to introduce our speaker, uh, Barbara Romando. She's the executive director from the Conference of Educational Administrators of Schools and Programs for the Deaf. That's a mouthful. Um, we're really excited to have Barbara with us. She's been a great ally on the Cogswell-Macy Act movement, um, someone I, I really enjoy working with and has just a wealth of knowledge as it pertains to the Cogswell-Macy Act. Um, so without further ado, Barbara, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks, Claire, for that introduction, and thank you all for being here to learn about this bill. This, uh, First of all, I'm going to start out by asking how many of you, maybe by calling out yes, if you have heard of this bill or know a little bit about it. Oh, my goodness. Oh, okay. Well, I'll, I'll give my 15 minutes to the next person then. If I... Well, that's really great. That's a testament to the work that Claire and Clark have been doing and that others have been doing as well. And so that's, you're, you're off to a good start. So, well, if you are familiar with it, then you may know that the point of the bill is to amend the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act to better serve deaf, blind, and deafblind students. And we are doing that by leaving pretty much everything that's in place in the existing IDEA, but expanding on certain areas to really drill down where, to, to the places where our students really are left behind. So, for example, one of the key points of the bill is to make sure that students who are blind or deaf or deafblind are appropriately counted. Now, I know a lot of students who are blind, you have a, a one, one count from the American Printing House, you see another count from the Department of Education, that you feel like your, your numbers are not accurately reflecting the correct number of students who are blind in IDEA. And we feel the same way in deaf education. So often what we see is if a child has another disability, that that child gets categorized in that disability category and the blindness or the deafness gets overlooked. Now that's a real problem when you start to think about, well, what kind of resources are we going to have for these students? Are we really going to have the correct amount of resources if we're counting them at a number that's, that doesn't really represent who they are? So the count is really important. So that's one of the key points of the bill. Another key point of the bill is for states to develop a state plan to serve deaf, 
blind and deafblind students. So right now, states really do have that responsibility. Any state department of education, it's their job to serve blind kids and deaf kids and deafblind kids just the same as any other one. But we know for a fact that when we talk to people in the states, our students are not being served in the same way. We look at school districts who don't have orientation and mobility specialists. They don't have teachers of the deaf. They don't have interveners for deafblind students. They are really lacking in what they need to serve our populations. And they don't have a way of really communicating necessarily within that state. So we think it's really important that they sit down with all the stakeholders, with parents, with consumers, with deaf students and blind students, uh, general educators, different people who are involved in these educational programs and say, where are our resources? Where are our students? What do we need to do to make sure that every student gets what they need? So we really feel like that's a very reasonable ask for, from every state department of education. They're accountable for our kids, and we want them to be able to show how exactly they're going to carry out that responsibility. Another key point of the bill is on the special factors section. Now, your section on Braille is probably one of the strongest sections in IDEA. That is, students will receive Braille unless they have an evaluation and the IEP team agrees and all of that. So it's very strong language. But it's also important that students who are blind get the expanded core curriculum. So in our bill, we have sections for students who are deaf and blind and deafblind that expands on that, and, and particularly in the blind section, it talks about the expanded core curriculum and how that really needs to be part of any blind child's individualized education program. So really, as you can see from these three points that I just expanded on, the bill is really about drilling down to meet the individual needs of our students, which is exactly what IDEA is supposed to be doing right now. So in that sense, it's really only holding the states accountable for their existing responsibilities. So, Because we do hear that when we go into offices, like, oh, how much is this going to cost? Like, how much more you know, responsibility does, does this put on the state? And I always answer, well, you know, states are supposed to be doing this now. This gives them guidance and clarification on how to carry out those responsibilities. Something else that you might hear if you go into offices to talk about this is, well, you know, we're really nervous about opening IDEA right now. We're concerned that in this current political climate, we won't get a good outcome if we start opening up IDEA. The strategy behind this bill is to really wait for IDEA, the IDEA reauthorization. So... When we first started on this endeavor, it was like six years ago when we thought IDEA was just around the corner, and it really, over these years, it's just been put off and put off and put off. And to be honest, right now, nobody is predicting when IDEA is going to be open for reauthorization. So it were, it's sort of in, in a holding pattern. But this bill really includes the priorities in education for deaf, blind, and deafblind students. So we don't feel shy at all about going up and telling members of Congress, yeah, you know, well, we can wait for the IDEA reauthorization, but for now, we want you to know about these priorities for our students. And I know that some of the, uh, there are, have been some actions taken based on the bill, even though the bill hasn't passed, for example. Senator Casey sent a letter to Secretary DeVos in 2018 
talking about the lack of qualified providers for students who are deaf, blind, or deaf, blind. So members of Congress can take action by having, you know, sending letters or, or trying to advise the Department of Education. People in various states are taking language out of the bill and trying to pass state-level legislation. So if you look at this bill as sort of like um, an encapsulization of the priorities for these education areas, it's a really good tool for bringing a message to Capitol Hill and to a lot of other places about the priorities in education. So that's really the strategy, that, that we're going to have it up there. We're going to try to get as many co-sponsors as we can. Uh, in the last Congress, we were up to about 48 co-sponsors. It's in the House and in the Senate, so that's really great, because when we first started out, it was just in the House. And um, you will have, you know, I think a lot of um, interesting responses to it. Uh, some of the other groups that are working on this around this time, uh, my organization is having our advocacy day on Wednesday, so this is like perfect timing that you all will be up there being very visible, making your points and, and, and making noise about this. We'll be up two days later. The Council of Schools for the Blind is going to be up on March 25th, and they'll also be advocating on this issue. So this, this bill is really one that unites us in sensory disabilities. And we, we, just, we know that we have to work closely together because our kids, we know that they can really succeed when they have access and when they have the right teachers, the right resources, and the right tools. And that is exactly what this bill is about. So when you talk to your member of Congress, I hope what you'll say is, you know, will you co-sponsor this bill? This is really, really important for students who are deaf and blind and deafblind. Thank you so much, Barbara. Um, we have a couple, yeah, thank you. Uh, we have a couple minutes left, so if we have any questions, and I'm going to start with a question of my own. So it was reintroduced in the 116th Congress this past fall. Can you tell our members what number the bill is so we can uh, talk about it tomorrow on the Hill? Sure. So in the House, it's H.R. 4822. So that's H.R. 4822. And in the Senate, it's S. 2681. Great, thank you. We can probably take two questions. If anybody has questions, yes. My, um, this is Alice Richard, and my question is: uh, with the accountability, as far as finally getting some accurate figures, will that then also include? Because what we've, we're finding in Georgia's, it, there definitely is no count, and part of the problem with that is because if they have other disabilities, then they tend not to include the blindness into that. So, will that solve that problem so that we'll get a more accurate count? That is, that's a very good question. That is the intention, that they will be counted as blind and whatever the other category is. Because we, we don't want to undercount another disability, that's for sure. But when they're, the, the school doesn't have to pick just one or the other. We want to make sure that the, we have an accurate count of everything that's going on with that child. So that is the intention, that they will be counted wherever, wherever that disability occurs. This is Karen Campbell. Um, I just want to say that we need the, we need this bill because there are some states that have taken action at the uh, state level. Illinois is one of those on the intervener issue. We did it through rules in the school code. But other parts of the country need this um, 
need this as well. So we need to do something on the federal level. Um, so I hope that we can get some traction on this bill. Thank you. Right. So for the intervener piece, right now, interveners are not mentioned in IDEA at all. And what the bill would say is that they would be listed as a related service provider. And now, you know, like the Department of Education will say, well, you know, states can provide them. I mean, the list of related services in the law is not exclusive. It doesn't mean, well, if you're not on this list, you can't be provided. But we know what happens when it's there in black and white in the law. We have a much better advocacy tool when our children need a service. The bill numbers are HR 4822 and S2681. And the primary sponsors in the House are Matt Cartwright from Pennsylvania and David McKinley from West Virginia. And in the House, I'm sorry, in the Senate are Ed Markey out of Massachusetts and Senator Capito out of West Virginia. Great. Thank you so much, Barbara. We really appreciate it. Thank you for coming and talking about the bill. Thanks, everybody. Good luck on your Hill Day. And next, I feel like I should have some formal official presentation for our next presenter. So, do 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 do, Clark. <laughs> <laughs> How do I live up to that, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I would like to talk with everyone about one of our first legislative imperatives um, for this year. And that is the, I always have to take a deep breath before I say this, the Medicare Demonstration of Coverage for Low Vision Devices Act of 2019. <laughs> So much like Cogswell Macy, this is a bill that ACB and you all have been working on for quite some time. Um, since 2013, the 113th Congress. So last year, when I had just joined ACB in February of, of 2019, our legislative seminar ask in the imperative was to have this bill reintroduced in the 116th Congress. Well, we did it. We checked that box. <laughs> Representatives Maloney from New York and Bill Arrakis from Florida kept the bill bipartisan. They reintroduced it last summer, H.R. 4129. So we're done, right? We, we can move <laughs> on. What's, what's the next item, Claire? I mean, I'm... I'm given back a whole bunch of time yeah. here. So, no, we're not done. Um, currently, the bill, it, it, it has been introduced. It's been introduced in the House. Again, H.R. 4129. It is a bipartisan piece of legislation that would call for a five-year pilot program within the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS. Um, this five-year pilot program would allow doctors to prescribe durable, excuse me, low vision devices like other pieces of durable medical equipment. This is valued at $2.5 million a year, $12.5 million total. I mean, you just heard the numbers that Charles Cooper was throwing around for campaigns this election cycle. Um, everyone's seen the 
um, figures coming out of the presidential budget, as Jeff Tom said, the numbers just keep going up, 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 up. Twelve and a half million dollars. Like that could fall out of Congress's couch cushions. You know, you could be in the office. When you're in the office, just reach between the cushions. See if you find twelve and a half million dollars. Jeez. So the current bill, again, uh, you know, it's been great working with staff for Representatives Maloney and Bill Arrakis. Um, I think total there are seven bipartisan co-sponsors. In addition to the, the lead sponsors, there's Steve Cohen, Democrat from Tennessee. There's um, Representative Fitzpatrick, a Republican from Pennsylvania. Representative Wild, a Democrat from Pennsylvania. Representative Wagner, a Republican from Missouri. Representative Schiff, a Democrat from California, right, Claire? Mm, Just nope. making, no, Washington? California. California. All right. Good. <laughs> Caught her with her mouthful. Yeah. So not only is it a bipartisan bill, but as you can see, it's it's rural, it's urban, it's coast to coast, it's it's throughout the middle of the country as well. And the the staff and the board had some training this week, and we were talking about setting smart goals, goals that are specific, measurable, um, achievable, realistic, and and timely. And I think that this is the, an appropriate bill where ACB and our members can have a smart goal. Uh, you know, seven co-sponsors. That's, that's good. That's good. It's been higher in years past. It's never been as high as 50 co-sponsors. But I think that 50 co-sponsors here in the 116th Congress, and especially 50 offices for Claire and me to follow up with... <laughs> After everyone fills out their Hill feedback forms. Which you're all going to do. That's right. So. So we have, a, we have a number of smart goals here. And in the house. It's. Yeah. Claire and I want feedback forms. With this issue introduced to at minimum 150 members of Congress. There are 435 of them. We're not setting folks up for failure here. That's about a third. We can do that. And on those 150 feedback forms, you'll see for this legislative imperative, on a scale of one to five, how engaged and interested was your office in this bill? And if you put down a four or five, Claire and I are going to follow up with that office with the intent and knowing that they're so interested in becoming a co-sponsor that if they didn't sign up with you tomorrow, that by you all following up and by us following up, they'll be a co-sponsor by the end of the month. So, so not only do we want feedback for 150 offices on this bill, but by the end of the month, we want to have 50 house co-sponsors for this bill. So help us do that here in the House with your meetings tomorrow on this piece of legislation. One more point on this bill. There has never been a Senate companion bill introduced on this issue. There's no reason this bill cannot be bipartisan and bicameral. Claire will use those words later on here this afternoon. Uh, 
We have, we've been working with another member from New York, Senator Gillibrand, Democrat from New York, and Senator Gillibrand's staff wants to introduce this bill. They've been reaching out to their Republican colleagues. We have been working with other organizations. Um, folks heard yesterday during the President's Affiliates meeting from Matt Ader with Vispero. They support this legislation. Paul Sh- Schrader. I almost said Schroeder, like Rachel Schroeder, because it's spelled that way. But Paul <laughs> Schrader from IRA. IRA is a supporter of this legislation. Um, Orcam, another device manufacturer, they support this legislation. National Industries for the Blind, the American Foundation for the Blind, the National Association for the Employment of People Who Are Blind, NAEPB, they support this bill. And as Lee Nasahi from VisionServe spoke yesterday, VisionServe is a supporter of this bill as well because they know how important it is for folks to receive the devices as well as services as they need to remain independent and as you know, vital members of their community. And also, it's a heck of a lot cheaper to live in the community, you know, surrounded by friends and family where you have a support network in place and to maintain your independence than it is to go into an assisted living center. So our smart goal here for the Senate, we want to have a bipartisan bill. So as you fill out this form, All we need is one senator to say yes, to have a bipartisan bill introduced. So we want at least five offices that we can follow up with based off of your Hill feedback. Now, we anticipate you sharing this with many more offices, but especially those of you with Republican senators, we need you all to bring this up to them tomorrow. We need you to fill out your Hill feedback forms and share those forms with us so that we know what offices that we can follow up with to have a bipartisan Senate companion bill to H.R. 4129 introduced by the end of March. We have about five minutes before our next panel. So, any questions on the Medicare Demonstration of Coverage for Low Vision Devices Act of 2019 in the 116th Congress. All right. So there's a hand right here. Michael Talley with the fast hands. Yes. uh, Clark, uh, this is Alan. Alan Peterson. Wondering if you had any nibbles, any um, potential Republicans that you might have have shown some interest. Sure. so, for example, um, I was speaking with the, the folks from ACB of Indiana yesterday because ORCAM made an introduction to staff for Senator Mike Braun. Um, so they will be bringing this issue to his attention. Um, we've been working closely with the, the Florida Council of the Blind uh, because a Republican representative from the House introduced this bill and... Uh, at the time, the legislative um, health care aid for Bill Arrakis is now on staff of Senator Rick Scott from Florida. Um, so we thought that that was a, a natural progression. Um, however, the senator from Florida does not want to introduce any bills that have a price tag. Mm. 
even if that price tag is $12.5 million. It's not that much. I mean... So, so the, uh, the Senator Gillibrand's office is reaching out as well. I believe they, are, they would like to reach out to Senator Tillis from North Carolina. Um, I know that the, both Dakotas have Republican senators who could be good candidates for this bill. Uh, folks from NAEPB and Alpha Point have reached out to the, the senators from Missouri as well. Um, so we're, we're working with our, our partners um, here in the D.C. area as well as around the country you know, in, in contacting the affiliates uh, when we've been reaching out to folks in their states as well. Uh, but we really need all of your help, too. Do you have time for one more quick question? We got one, time for okay. one more. All right. Hang on. Here we go. Coming to you. you sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, Clark, Clark Ray Campbell here. Um, last year, when we took this legislation up, we were asked, I think it was by Senator Duckworth's office, do we have any idea of how many people could benefit from this? I know that's kind of one of the reasons we're trying to do the demonstration project, but you know, sometimes responding to numbers might be of help. Do we have any, any, any ideas on that? Sure, and, and I'm sorry, Ray, I, I don't have the numbers. Um, because the, uh, you know, the eyeglass exclusion has been in effect since 2008, and Medicare is not covering anything with a lens. Um, we, we don't have that data. I mean, we can look up data um, just as everyone else can do for their states to find the number of people, uh, you know, with vision loss in your state. And all of those people are potentially someone who could benefit from, you know, eventually removing the, the eyeglass exclusion. Uh, we're really excited today to have a few speakers on a panel to talk about accessible medical equipment, and specifically we'll use the term durable medical equipment. This was an issue we talked about last year as an imperative um, for 2019. And in the national office, we've done a lot of work on it. We're looking at it from all different angles, from a legal angle, a regulatory angle, a legislative angle. It's not an imperative this year, unfortunately, in 2020, because we're still trying to wrap our arms fully around it, but we are still totally dedicated to it because we know it's an extremely important topic in our community, um, initially looking at it for the diabetic community, but onward and upward, we're definitely seeing more and more medical equipment out there. So we have, um, we should have three panelists. Awesome. They're all here. Um, we have Matt Handley, Caitlin Banner, and Stephanie Willis, who are all going to talk about it. Um, Caitlin is from the Washington Lawyers Committee, so again, our great allies there. Stephanie Willis comes from a more regulatory background um, from a different law firm, and Matt Handley, who has been an ally um, with ACB for a long time, who's been looking at it from the legislative perspective. So um, without further ado, I'll turn it over to them, and they can each um, spend some time talking about the perspective they've been able to bring to the issue. Do 
Good afternoon, everyone. I think some of you might remember me from last year. I am from the law firm of Crow and Mooring. Um, can everybody hear me? Hello? All right. I'm going to have to eat the microphone. <laughs> so, um, again, my name is Stephanie Willis. I'm from the law firm of Crow and Mooring. I, saw, I was here last year with many of you, um, and we're still working hard on this issue, and I really thank Claire, Clark, and Eric for continuing to keep us um, as part of your advocacy team. And I know that many of you have been advocating for your own um, access to these d durable medical equipment uh, pieces in order to get access to what everybody else gets, their health care. So the problem... Okay. <laughs> Maybe I'm eating a little too... <laughs> Hello? Maybe there's feedback. I'm going to move my phone. Let's move our phones. <laughs> All right. Back online. <laughs> so the problem that we were asked to assist with, um, along with the Washington Lawyers Committee, was to how to focus the federal agency's attention on the inaccessibility of medical devices to those with visual impairments and how unfair it is to place the burden on those consumers to make, device, to make devices that are critical to the management of their chronic diseases usable. So just to give you an overview, I think I, I didn't want to go in. We, we don't have a lot of time, so I'm just going to give you an overview of the regulatory framework. Um, the FDA approves devices for use and sale to the public under the authority of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and then C CMS issues coverage and reimbursement regulations, manuals, and policies that govern how the federal government will pay for devices furnished to Medicare beneficiaries. I focus on Medicare beneficiaries only because a lot of the commercial payers will take um, the lead from Medicare. So if Medicare takes a stance on the accessibility of medic uh, durable medical equipment, the commercial payers will soon follow. Um, so we really use Medicare as a proxy because, obviously, a lot of um, manufacturers count Medicare beneficiaries as 20 to 25% of their market, and that's a huge thing for them. Um, there are regulations governing administration avenues for enforcing compliance with civil rights laws, such as the ADA, the Rehabilitation Act. I'm not going to lecture you on those because th those are part of your day-to-day -day, um, you know, lives. Um, the HHS Office of Civil Rights is the agency that I'm, that I'm most working, working most closely with um, that has jurisdiction over the enforcement of these anti-discrimination laws for HHS programs like Medicare, Medicaid, etc. But unfortunately, this administration is more focused on addressing conduct that potentially constitutes religious discrimination in comparison to discrimination against other protected classes, um, including those with disabilities. So that's been the, you know, the most disappointing um, part of this at this time. Um, but just to, as an update on the efforts that we have had, um, efforts we have engaged in with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, that's the agency that administers the Medicare benefit, um, we focused on them first because, again, if Medicare decides something, then the commercial payers tend to follow. So um, we wanted to make sure that this was something that was front and center for that agency in terms of changing policy with respect to accessibility of durable medical equipment. So the overall goal of our engagement with that agency was to encourage a regulatory mandate that all devices be accessible to those with disabilities in order to be covered by Medicare or Medicaid. So if you come with a device and say, hey, we want this to be reimbursable by the Medicare program, we wanted there to be a mandate in regulation that said that these devices must be accessible in order to obtain coverage or else you can't be, you, you, we can't recommend it to Medicare or Medicaid patients. And that's a big market um, share 
for uh, these manufacturers and they would never want to lose that market. So we thought that that would be a good incentive driver or, you know, a driver to um, push accessibility forward with respect to devices like CGMs and um, ESRD support equipment. So last year, last summer, we met with representatives of the Office of the Administrator and the Clinical um, Standards and Quality um, folks at CMS. And, you know, we focused our discussion on CGMs due to past regulatory activity related to um, there was a previous ban on the use of smartphones (laughs) in conjunction with CGMs that was lifted at that time. And it was a perfect opportunity to raise the issue to CMS that, hey, it's great that you're allowing smartphones to be used with these devices, but really you know the smartphones at least for the visually impaired community was were important to just being able to use a device and we need to incorporate accessibility as part of the design of these products rather than forcing people to use workarounds that might actually not be helpful um, in the end because when a smartphone talks to a device that is created by a different manufacturer you're, you might be missing data you might have data that is misinterpreted and that is a quality of care and a patient safety issue so that's the standpoint that we approach them with and they were very receptive to that and um, our meetings resulted in us drafting a letter for CMS to s- consider sending to device manufacturers signaling the agency's awareness of the accessibility problem so we drafted that um, notice that we, you know, and we worked in conjunction with ACB and the Washington Lawyers Committee to draft that notice, and it went to CMS last fall. Um, we've, co- you know, continued to maintain contact with the agency, but we have not received follow-up um, from the agency. There's a lot going on at the agency right now, and we'll continue to press forward, but unfortunately, the regulatory process can be very frustrating at times, so this is why the Hill <laughs> activities that you are engaging in are very important, because if you are engaging the Hill, the Hill can sometimes apply additional pressure to the agencies to address this issue. Because um, if the agency is making the excuse that, oh, we can't approach this because there's, a, there's no law that really supports us doing this, the Congress can say, okay, well, work with us to make that law happen. So we need a multi-front attack on this issue. And you know, so we're really privileged to be working with you all um, who already have a framework to make that happen. Um, and one other thing to put on your radar, CMS and, and the, another agency, the Office of the Inspector General, the, um, the OIG, the OIG um, uh, mainly oversees program integrity to make sure that people aren't fraudulently using um, Medicare program. So one avenue that we had spoken to, spoken about with CMS was that um, often, you know, rather than incorporating accessibility into the design of products, maybe manufacturers would be more willing to donate some of these um, smartphones or other adjunctive um, aids that they can populate with proprietary software in order to assist individuals with visual impairments to use the devices as they're intended. That is not a permanent solution, but it's something that is a short-term workaround that you know, would be helpful to individuals who don't have the financial means to, um, you know, buy a a smartphone to access these um, devices. And um, so, as it happens, the OIG and CMS are considering updating rules right now that would make the donation of those smartphones, smartwatches, et cetera, that could help make these devices accessible to the community more um, 
more permissible under the laws. Um, many manufacturers are supportive of these rules because they want to donate things and make themselves look good in front of populations. So um, we are closely monitoring the progress of those rules. I am not anticipating those to be released until the fall. But um, as drafted right now, they would be able to use, to donate free or low-cost smartphone devices that could be populated with this type of software to support the use of CGMs and other devices for you know specific populations such as um, uh, uh, individuals with um, visual impairments. So more to come on that, but that's a more recent development that you know, we're following very closely. Um, and one last thing before I turn it over to my other co-panelists. The Food and Drug Administration, um, th- like I said, they review the you know, safety and clinical data related to the devices and approve them for use and, and sale to the public. Um, So right now, our overall goal is to encourage a regulatory mandate that all manufacturers incorporate accessibility features into the design of new devices or upgrades to existing ones prior to FDA approval. And if they don't incorporate those accessibility um, features, they would have to justify to the agency directly why they haven't done so, and that would be you know, sort of a disincentive to them um, not doing so. So obviously a little weaker of a mandate that we're de- going to with the FDA, but that is because the, their, the, the pathway between the anti-discrimination laws with respect to individuals with disabilities isn't um, as clear with the FDA as it is with CMS. Um, other ideas, um, I know that the Hill is deeply, you know, is in the nascent stages of considering uh, the 21st Century Cures Act 2.0. Um, so that's Diana DeGette, and I think she's part of the Di- Diabetes Caucus, right? Um, it's kind of been quiet now, but um, they issued an RFI for ideas on the issue earlier, um, well, uh, sorry, earlier in the fall. Um, but obviously those that could take one to two, year, two years to actually um, result in a bill. So we're following those efforts as well. And as I said before, pushing on the Hill to maybe incorporate some stronger mandates with respect to the ADA, Re- Rehabilitation Act of 1973, um, and pushing the agencies to, uh, you know, to ask to find ways to strengthen um, disability, you know, disability-related protections with respect to medical devices, um, the 21st Century Cures Act might offer that opportunity to do so as well. So if, as we hear anything from the Hill, we'll update the ACB on whether there's opportunities in the future. There's none right now. Um, if there's opportunities in the future to push forward um, this type of mandate or legis- um, legislation that's part of 21st Century Cures 2.0. So um, thank you very much, and I see a question in the back, but I, I don't want to run over other people's time, and I'll, we'll make sure that question gets answered. Um, uh, and if we don't have time to address any questions to my piece here today, please feel free to reach out to Clark and Claire, and they can send questions to me, and I can answer them. So thank you very much again for the opportunity, and I hope that this regulatory update was helpful to you all. Please hold your questions, and we'll try to see if we have any time after all three panelists speak. Okay. Um, hi, uh, good afternoon, everyone. This is uh, Matthew Handley, and it's a real pleasure to, to be back amongst you all um, again. And normally I like speaking here because I, I, I love talking about like the good news that's happened over the last year um, and the successes that we've had. And um, unfortunately, Claire and, and Clark and Eric asked me back to, to be a little bit more sobering on this one and to... to really highlight the need for why 
um, an additional legislative solution is, is necessary for many of the same reasons that Stephanie just said. And I thought that it might be helpful if I put it into context of, of the obstacles that I have faced as I have tried to analyze this issue for ACB and its members and to figure out is there some sort of enforcement mechanism by which we could make medical devices accessible. And so taking, you know, one, taking a step back, as, as a lawyer who you know, tends to represent people who have been victims of wrongs, we like to think that every wrong has a remedy. And so we take it from that. That's, that's sort of our, our jumping off point is, okay, here's a wrong. Now, what, is the, what law provides us the right remedy for that? And um, you know, over the last 50 years, accessibility laws have grown and been passed in such ways that there are many, many, many aspects of our daily lives that are covered by um, now existing accessibility laws. We have Title III of the ADA that will affect places of public accommodation. We have the Communications and Video Accessibility Act that will cover certain types of devices, devices that communicate with each other. Um, we have other titles of the ADA that, that protect our places of employment or that protect um, uh, our government services. We have the Fair Housing Act amendments that protect, protect us from, uh, that provide accessibility or guarantee it when we're in our homes. But there is still very much a gap when it comes to the accessibility of things. And medical devices um, are, in many ways, things. And it, it is, there is not a, necessarily a clear enforcement mechanism as it exists right now that would require um, manufacturers of these devices, for instance, the continuous reading glucose meters, to necessarily make those things accessible without other, ty without other types of sticks or carrots involved in the law. At least that's my opinion. The... Um, you know, there, there are certainly, um, there are certainly things that one can do that would encourage them to be accessible. For instance, the market for them is huge. The fact that um, diabetes is one of the largest, if not the largest, causes of blindness would, uh, would make you think that a manufacturer of a glucose meter would want to make them accessible. But that doesn't necessarily seem to be enough to force them um, to make them accessible without some other additional push. Um, and I, in some ways, I fear that if we try to shoehorn um, the requirements that currently exist under the law into making uh, medical devices accessible, it might prompt our legislatures to, legislatures to not act. Um, and, the, and as an example of that, I, I give sort of the, the lack of regs that we still do not have when it comes to website accessibility. We were, you know, we, we were promised for years that the Department of Justice would eventually promulgate regulations that would um, codify, so to speak, what exactly it means for websites um, to be accessible. However, that kept getting punted and kept getting punted. And one of the reasons I think it kept getting punted is that they pointed to a sufficient number of successes by lawyers in cases that were able to um, apply things like Title III of the ADA to websites 
And so therefore, there weren't really, it wasn't really necessary to promulgate additional regulations to make, to, to ensure that, that uh, we know exactly what it means for a website to be accessible and what it meant for it not to be, or what it meant for it to be usable or not to be usable. And so I think um, even though we could certainly try various avenues for enforcement on some of these uh, inaccessible medical devices by making administrative complaints, by possibly going after employers who use these medical devices by saying you're, as an employer, you're not using an accessible device for your employees, by potentially going after like a False Claims Act claim against the um, against the manufacturers who are selling them to government contractors and are not making them accessible. But I think all of those are going to be very, in, very insufficient compared to a legislative fix that, um, you know, that, that Stephanie alludes to also. And, um, you know, I've certainly reviewed the, the proposed legislation that ACB has propounded, and, and, you know, there are others out there too. And I think it's sort of incumbent on all of us to make sure that, um, that our representatives know that accessibility of medical devices is, is, is a gap in the, in the law right now and one that needs to be filled. Hi, everyone. This is Caitlin Banner from the Washington Lawyers Committee. I have the very um, great privilege of going last, which means I don't have a lot to add to what my colleagues have said, and I get to turn it over for questions in just a minute. Um, but everything, sort of everything that both Stephanie and Matt have shared today, I agree with and I, I support. You know, this is an area of the law that there are not really great legal solutions or cases that we see are going to move this issue forward. And so really concentrating on the legislative and the regulatory changes, I think, are going to provide us with the most comprehensive solution to really get manufacturers thinking about how to have out-of-the-box accessibility. So not these workarounds, not being dependent on others, but really designing um, designing their products with a universal design so that they are accessible right away. Um, one thing that I will say before I turn it over for questions, because I know already that there are some in the audience, um, is one that... This is a problem that a lot of people are not thinking about. So having gone to some of these meetings, um, as, as you have with legislators, with folks um, in the regulatory agencies, um, a lot of times it's education is going to be the way to change people's minds because folks have not sat down and thought about what it means for these devices to have um, to be screen-based and what that means for people who are blind or who have low vision. And so that's something that um, that you all can continue to do to share your stories um, with Claire and Clark, to share your stories with your representatives, to explain the types of workarounds that you need um, that you or your communities need to engage in in order to make these devices workable and, and, and to share with the people who are making decisions so that they know that this is a priority and that this is a real problem that they need to solve. Um, and then second... Um, is that uh, continuing to think about, and um, we're continuing to explore, and, and maybe we'll be here next year with a different update, but continuing to explore what are the legal options. We know that the legislative and the regulatory um, areas can be really hard, and so we are continuing to think about different legal theories or how to put pressure on these manufacturers to understand um, that they have an obligation and they need to um, think about how to make these products accessible. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to questions. I'm happy to mic run or if somebody else is available to do so. Great. Thank you so much. We have about 10 minutes for questions. Um, do we have a mic runner out there? Yeah. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you.
Yeah, good afternoon. It's uh, Chris Gray from uh, Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, I'm glad all three of you are up there, and I, I hear a lot of what you're saying. Um, I appreciate all the work that's been done. I've been part of the sort of di- diabetes task force that's met many times over the last year. <clears throat> and um, while I appreciate the difficulties, I think we have to do even more to find some solutions to move us forward. Um, ACB has worked on this issue off and on since 2002, and we've gotten absolutely nowhere. We really spent a lot of effort this last year working on it, and we're still nowhere. Now, I know uh, it's a tough issue, and we don't have the Telecommunications Act to fall back on and so forth, Um, but I tend to believe that tremendous progress has been made in website accessibility, and whether or not that has impeded regulation uh, is, is speculative. It may be true, but the reality is that website accessibility is far more a reality today by pushing the envelope uh, with the ADA. And I think that we just have to do something in that arena to move this in some way. We're, we're not moving it now, and I would hate to come back in a year and still be where we are today. Now, if the approach is that we get some legislation written and try and get it introduced or try and get it sponsored, that's fine. It's an approach. But we have got to have an approach. I'm not, Mr. Gray, I want to make sure that I respond to to your um, concern. I, I, too, am frustrated by this. This is not something that, you know, I went into health law to do more of this type of work. And I think that, um, unfortunately, a lot of this is due to the change in administrations since 2002. I think that between 2002 and now, we've had a lot of receptive administrations and administrations who are, and who put people, put judges on the bench who were amenable to uh, making decisions in favorable of, um, that, that, that were favorable to the rights of um, individuals with um, visual impairments, physical impairments. And now um, the, the anti-discrimination environment has been shifted to other items and, unfor- and unfortunately with respect to a lot of the judicia- judicial appointments, things have um, shifted in a different direction than I anticipated as, a, you know, as, as, as being in this law, uh, area of law for you know, about 10 years now. So I agree with you, pushing on the legislative front is really important at this point. It, um, the bill that you have, um, that ACB has developed, is a, the right step in the right direction. And we'll continue to, con- to apply pressure on the regulatory side. And, um, and I know that Matt, Mr. Handley and Caitlin are really looking at um, other legal avenues as well. And um, just as a commentary on the website issue, um, I, when I was at the OIG before going into private practice, we enforced Section 508 of the, um, you know, Section 508, which related to um, 
accessibility of websites. And when I was there, there was a lot more accountability with respect to that. And even my colleagues who are at OIG now, Section 508 um, uh, actions have gone down significantly. So um, unfortunately, the website issues, even though there have been improvements, um, there's less action in that regard. So. Um, Anything, you know, I think, again, reinvigorating that approach um, is probably a good idea as well. Sorry, that was a long answer. <laughs> so, and this is Clark from the National Office. Chris, thank you, as well as Jeff Bishop, Tom Tobin, uh, for working with Claire and me, uh, helping us think through this issue. Um, that, that's been really helpful for us. Uh, we did submit comments to representatives Upton and DeGette. Uh, back in December as they were seeking recommendations for Cures uh, 2.0. Um, the, again, the reason that this issue is not, is not a legislative imperative for us this year is not because it's not important. It's just currently we do not see a legislative path forward in this election year. Um, again, with six months, roughly six months before everything in D.C. switches to campaign mode. So this is still an issue that we will work to educate members of Congress on. Um, like Stephanie said, the, the Cures 2.0 process will take time, and we will certainly be engaged in that pro process. We will also keep continuing to push those regulatory channels, as well as raise this issue with our corporate partners um, who may be able to lean on device manufacturers as well. We've got time for one or two more questions here. Yeah, this is Chris Bell. Um, going to Chris Gray's comment, it seems to me that if we're really going to make change with regard to the accessibility of available technology for consumers, whether it be medical or home-based or exercise, whatever it is, we're going to have to have the kinds of grassroots work that happened with the Americans with Disabilities Act, with a person like Justin Dart that went to all 50 states and uh, got testimony from people with disabilities and Major Owens in the House that supported those efforts. Um, without this kind of grassroots swell of, of uh, intentionality, to make our world more accessible, I don't think you're going to see legislation. And that grassroots effort is going to take a long time and it'll take a lot of effort. But unless we're thinking along those lines, I don't think you're going to see the kinds of accessibility to technology and uh, you know, autonomous vehicles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, without that kind of work. Could, could I, this is Matt. Could I, if I could follow on that and Chris's question, too. Um, and, and, Chris, I know you and I have spoken about this at length, too, and I don't want to overlook it, in that I, I think that one of the issues related to one of the barriers to enforcement under the current law, or at least attempts to do so, is I think that this smartphone tethering issue has masked the problem. Like, I think it is, I think to the... Uh, to a casual observer or even a casual legislator, to the extent that such thing exists, is that, that oh, well, the problem's solved. We've, we've got, we've, 
you know, we, we have a means by which to make these devices accessible. And um, I know from talking to, uh, to many of you all in here that it's an extremely imperfect um, solution. Um, but I think more so, I think in order to bring enforcement, what we would really need, and, and, and I think it would be helpful to, for all of you to be able to tell us stories of people who do not have smartphones yet um, use glucose readers, and those are the people who I think we could probably pioneer uh, you know, an enforcement action with. And just to uh, add on to Matt's comment, that's very true, and I think that um, the regulatory um, changes that are afoot um, will help us to be able to do that because if they finalize those regulations and they allow for more donations of those smartphones, think of the data that we could point to showing that a lot of, the, a lot of these people who didn't have access to a smartphone couldn't even access their devices because of uh, a true... Uh, you know, a, a, tr a true need. You know, it's not a convenience factor. This is uh, a, a, something that should be mandated as part of coverage under Medicare. And um, so I think, I mean, the, I can tell you that the support for that portion of the rules has been overwhelmingly in support, uh, you know, positive. So I think that, you know, the donation of limited-use smartphones to support these um, these tethering, the tethering to devices will help move the ball forward, even though it's an imperfect solution, but it will allow us to have data that says, look, the fact that manufacturers have to donate these devices and do all of these things to make these items accessible to individuals who need them just to, you know, for basic usability purposes, um, will and um, fuel to the fire that, you know, we need to incorporate accessibility by design. And I, I completely agree that smartphone tethering has masked the problem. So, Stephanie, Caitlin, and Matt, thank you so much for your time with us here today. You know, folks, I, you know... We, we wish that we've had more progress on this issue as well. Uh, we will continue to work on it, and we will continue to work with all of you on it. Uh, okay, so why don't we start off by you introducing yourself. So my name is Michael Talley. I am the president of the Alabama Council of the Blind. I live in Birmingham, Alabama. I'm also on the board of directors for the American Council of the Blind. Fabulous. And we're going to start off with the first question being... What new, what is something new you have learned here at this legislative seminar? Oh my goodness, I've, I've learned a lot as, as far as initiatives that we're going to be discussing and working on on the Hill tomorrow and as far as strategies on ways to um, be able to approach legislators about it and also just kind of the, the political climate that we're in and the best way to approach it. So um, really and truly, there's several things that I've learned today that I will be utilizing tomorrow. And what has your favorite thing been so far at this legislative seminar? My goodness. So just as far as today, not killing the last three days you know, have been so incredible. The question is, the question is about today, but well, I mean, I think you could go expand. Well, I really it's appreciate weekend. Sure. I, I really appreciate the uh, acting commissioner of rehabilitation services administration coming and speaking with us. And, you know, he really did do a good job of explaining uh, his vision uh, for that uh, administration for RSA for over the next few years. And I appreciate him being willing to 
at least listen to us and hear us out and hear our side of things. I think that there were very um, some speakers at, at, in the Q and A portion that were made some very valid points, and I hope that he heard that. So honestly, while there have been so many good speakers today, I think that just the session with uh, Mark Schultz were was my uh, favorite. Very good. Are you excited about uh, meeting with your? Uh, uh, Oh, my goodness. Congressional. Congressional members tomorrow on the Hill. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) So it is so important to have that face-to-face contact with them. Um, You know, whether we've seen them uh, last year or in the last six months, whenever they recognize you and they're like, yes, it's so good to see you again, you know you're building relationships. And it's all about having strong relationships so that... They can't just hear from us when things are bad, and we're like, "Oh my gosh, this is going, you know, happening." And it, but just to be able to thank them for what they're doing, but also to increase awareness of what what we're seeking. So they need to be able to hear from us at least a couple of times a year. So I'm very excited about it. It is very important, and the more people that we have on the hill, uh, the more impact that we can have. How has your experience here uh, helped you to? maybe want to do more out there uh, advocating for the blind and visually impaired community. Absolutely. So it really stokes the fire within me. Um, I, You know, you know what goes on in your local communities in your state, but then you hear a lot of the same things are going on in other states around the country, but then you hear even more atrocious uh, issues and, and things that are happening to visually impaired and blind people around the country. That does nothing but just motivate you that much more to band together, to work as a team to work on these issues. So really and truly, this face-to-face, the networking and being able to spend time, not only just the 9 to 5, but afterwards in the restaurants and things like that, it honestly, it has just motivated me that much more. So um, over the last few weeks, I've been doing some things uh, with our situation in our state where I've been going to sleep thinking about it, waking up thinking about it, and honestly thinking about advocacy. And as strong as that is, things that have I've learned over this weekend has motivated me that much more. So the last question was going to be, what is one thing you would say to someone who is considering coming to next year's legislative seminar? You kind of already said it, but do you have anything to add? Just please try to make it happen if you can't financially. Uh, Reach out to leaders and see if we can't find ways to get you here because it is the sessions are incredible. Um, It really is, and you can learn so much. However, the networking and the building of relationships amongst our members is just incredible. It just happened last night. I mean, I felt I've. I met a fellow member who has the same eye condition as I, and she had never met someone with aniridia before. So I was able to give her even more information about that. So if you're considering it, please don't let barriers keep you from coming here. Make it happen and reach out. And uh, there's resources. There's ways to make it happen. So please, um, you know, just come, come next year, and you'll see. You'll be as fired up as I am. All right. Thank you so much, Michael, for taking time. Hey, thank you. And have a great day, everyone. And thank you for listening to ACB Radio. And thank you to Rick Morin and everyone, um, his brother Mike, and everyone doing such hard work here to, to help stream this. So thank you and have a great day. Would you mind starting us off, Connie, by introducing yourself? I am Connie Sims from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and I am the South Dakota Association of the um, Lions president. Fabulous. So, Connie, what is... 
one thing new that you have taken away from this legislative seminar? Um, it's been a wonderful experience. This is my first time here as a leadership. Um, and it, it's just a growing experience. I mean, there's so much to learn and networking with other leaders and representatives. It's just the staff has been wonderful. And I feel like I could take a lot back to my state. Is is uh, there any one particular thing that has stood out for you this well today for the seminar? You know, I, I guess nothing, one particular one. I think all of the presenters have been really good, um, very informative. Um, this afternoon with the transportation, it's always been close to my heart, so I'm anxious to hear that and work on that. Very good. Are you excited to get to the Hill and meet with your congressional members? I am. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I think that's going to be fun and interesting, and um, they've been wonderful to work with to set up the meetings. Do you feel like this experience here has, uh, you know, gotten you even more excited about advocating for people who are blind and visually impaired in our community? I would say so. I've always been a huge advocate, um, but this even just gets me more fired up. So as a first-time attendee, what would you say to somebody else who's considering coming next year to the legislative seminar? Um, I really encourage it. It's, It's so welcoming um it's you know i've been to the national conventions and conferences but this is more intimate and um you get to really know the people more and um so i it's really a great networking experience fabulous it's been nice for me too because i get to meet so many people like you connie so i'm glad you made it it's been great to meet you too cindy okay thank you so much thank you and i'm going to turn it back over to rick and we're going to start to talk about one of our favorite subjects, transportation. I know we don't have any opinions on that subject. <laughs> Hopefully we will get a bunch of questions. About 25 years ago, uh, Pat Beatty came to me and said, maybe you'd like to get involved in transportation. And uh, Pat Beatty was not the type of person you could say no to, just ask Eric. And um, so I got involved in it. I walked in the front door not knowing anything. 25 years later, worked on paratransit, bus, rail, systems. Got involved with environmental access issues, pedestrian issues, leading pedestrian intervals, e-scooters, bus stops, accessible bus stops, and all that kind of stuff. All to say, we've got a lot of great advocates out here. Transportation is very interesting and challenging. Just walk in that front door, get involved in the committees because it's worthwhile, it's where we live, and it's what we do. Um, The Transportation Committee, Environmental Access Committee, over the summer at our convention, will be giving a three-day forum in which we are going to be looking at those kinds of issues that I just mentioned. I don't think we'll be able to solve all the problems, but I, we're going to work on them. And we're going to come up with strategies that we want to help you guys take it back to your states and areas and solve some of your problems. Uh, Dan Spoon did a good job when he um, asked Becky Davidson for environmental access and Sheila Styron 
from transportation to head those committees. As we note, both capable, smart women. Nice job, Dan. Uh, they're working with Ron Brooks, and I think we're going to have a great program. So to kick off transportation today, um, I have uh, four panelists. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. And the first question I want to ask them, introduce yourselves, please, and let me know what area of transportation you're involved in. Great, thank you everyone, uh, and good afternoon. My name is Malcolm Glenn, and I lead policy for accessibility and underserved communities at Uber, based here in Washington, D.C. Um, I think people, at this point, I think when I was coming here maybe a, a number of years ago, I was introducing what Uber is, but I think we're probably at the point where people know what Uber is. is I think that's right. So I won't get into the basics of, of, of what Uber does, but I could talk a little bit about some stuff that might be relevant uh, to this crowd. Um, in my job, I do really two things. I spend a lot of time in conversations like these, working with advocates and people from not just around the country, but actually around the world who have a vested interest in us improving the accessibility of our platform. So both telling the stories of the work that we're doing, but also really listening to your feedback, taking uh, to heart the things where we're doing well and where we need to be doing better. And the second part of that job, which I would actually argue is the most important, is really translating and communicating that feedback to people internally. So making sure that our engineers and our design teams and our operations teams really understand and it is impressed upon them why making sufficient um, investment in and um, focus on these issues is really, really good for the platform and for the users of our platform all around the world. Um, Uber's nine years old. Um, I think most people are probably familiar with the Rides product first and foremost, um, but we also do things like Uber Eats, um, which <laughs> someone, is, someone is appreciative of, which is good to hear. Um, and increasingly, other things like... There you go. There you go. Someone's, there's some Uber Eats fans in the, in the crowd, which is always good to hear. But also things like, you know, folks, uh, as Pat mentioned, uh, e-bikes and scooters. But increasingly starting to get involved in other areas like, you know, what if when you open up the Uber app, you can get access to public transit information in the place where you live? So maybe Uber is the right option for you at the time, but maybe public transit is the right option for you at the time. Uh, so... Um, we're doing a, we've spent a lot of time over the last couple of years, I've been at this convening as well as the summer conference, talking about um, the various ways in which uh, we can help you and you can help us. And so um, I look forward to continuing that conversation today, talking specifically about some of the features that we've been working on that are relevant to the blind and uh, visually impaired community. So I'll stop there and pass it on to Heidi. Thank you. I'm Heidi Simon. I'm the Deputy Director at America Walks, and we are a national nonprofit that looks at helping people drive. Um, no. We, <laughs> we look, it's, it's as simple as our name says, um, we look at supporting efforts to create safe, accessible, equitable, and enjoyable places to walk and move, whether that's for transportation, recreation, uh, physical health, and mental well-being. Whatever the reason is, we want people to be able to be in their communities moving safely and accessibly. Um, and working with uh, Claire and her team, to really challenge that and find ways for all of us to be working together to create the communities um, where walking is not just the, the first and last mile option, but hopefully an option 
um, across the board. Uh, we do that in a variety of ways. You'll see our programming at the local and state level between funding community change grants, uh, advocacy and training, technical assistance, um, and then at the national level doing things like this. Uh, doing outreach and speaking to try and build our network and our movement of walkable community change agents, uh, as well as representing um, walking and other forms of alternative transportation at the federal level. Uh, so having great conversations with ACB over the past uh, several years about ways that we can partner and ally better um, in those efforts uh, and look to be more representative of the communities that we hope to create. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Eric Danko, and I lead federal affairs for Cruise. We're a self-driving vehicle company based in San Francisco uh, with partnership. <laughs> I'm not sure if that was for Cruise, for self-driving vehicles, or for San Francisco. <laughs> take it. But I will take applause at any time. <laughs> uh, and just a quick note of thanks to Claire and Clark, Pat. Uh, I see Eric over there. Uh, our partnership with ACB has been running now for a, a good number of years. Uh, we fundamentally see a challenge in transportation and think the status quo is fundamentally broken. Uh, our roads are unsafe. Uh, I think Heidi's going to talk a lot about that. Uh, they, are, they are polluted. We have unsafe streets. Uh, we have polluting cars. We have an inaccessible transportation system. And we fundamentally believe that shared electric autonomous vehicles uh, offered in a ride-sharing model at first are really can be a core uh, benefit, uh, not only to this community, but to the country, to the world at large. Uh, we see it in terms of saving lives, providing more convenience, more accessibility options. Uh, and that really infuses our product as we are developing it. Uh, I mentioned a second ago, and I'm sure we'll get into this, into the conversation, uh, ACB has really been a very long-term partner for us. In fact, our first user experience research initiative was done with the blind and low vision community, uh, and really with ACB as a, as a very core partner to help us understand what the existing barriers are to transportation uh, from a, a blind and low vision perspective and how self-driving vehicles can really provide a solution uh, within the broader transportation ecosystem. And it's a partnership we're very proud of and one we're very excited to carry forward. Great. Hello, everybody. I think you know who I am. Um, this is Claire from the National Office in uh, Alexandria. Um, I'm on this panel because transportation's become one of my big um, responsibilities through the national office. So if you have a transportation issue, please reach out to me. So what areas of transportation do I work on? Everything. So I've been really fortunate to do things like uh, work on some legislation for autonomous vehicles that I'll be talking about a little bit later in another presentation. I go to the Amtrak meetings. Very fun. Um, I've... <laughs> 
you can laugh at that. That's a joke. Uh, <laughs> um, I've helped work on different projects with all kinds of different auto industries. I've gone to the Auto Alliance meeting to talk about different issues. So you name it. I've been able to work on the Transportation ta uh, Committee as well as the EAC Committee and be able to be the staff liaison and talk about these issues. So I'm sitting on this panel because everything that the other panelists talk about are things that are important to us in the national office and we want to work on um, and if it's not brought up by the other three it's not brought up by the other three panelists but is still a transportation need that you guys want to talk about bring it to us at the national office stop me today or tomorrow and let us know because as somebody who is blind myself I understand that transportation really is one of the biggest if not the biggest obstacles we face Thank you, Claire. And I think that's important because we need to have the information out there, accurate information, coordinated approach, and make, make uh, you know, the points that we're making consistent all the way through the organization. My next question for the panel has to do with specifically, and I think they started to answer this, but I'll ask them to go into greater depth. Um, talk to me about the systems organizations that you work with and specifically for blind and visually impaired individuals what is being done within your organization to promote the uh, the access issues needs of the blind population this is Malcolm speaking uh, thank you for the question Pat um, you know I want to actually just give a quick shout out to Claire because um, we've worked with uh, ACB for a number of years now and have had some really amazing engagement. And one of the things that we've been doing uh, the last number of years is putting together a sort of cross-disability conversation around all different parts of our platform and how we can make it better. And uh, one of my colleagues always says in those meetings, uh, Claire is the very best project manager we could ever have because all of her ideas are things that uh, we, we, we recognize are super valuable contributions to thinking about how we can improve the experience for people who are blind or visually impaired. Um, and so as, we were as we've been talking, and actually Clark and, and Claire and I got on the phone a couple of weeks ago to talk about an issue that, that, a, that a user brought up in the world, um, I told them at the time, but I want to tell this room as well. So we're actually hiring a product manager to focus on, I think, a set of areas that are, I think are relevant to this group, which is accessibility and city infrastructure. So what we hear oftentimes is there are challenges with the app experience, uh, and that's one kind of bucket. But there are also challenges navigating to find your driver in the real world. So you're connected, it all works well, but then how do you actually communicate and facilitate you finding the right car, getting in the right place, and being on your way? And so there are a number of different areas that are involved in that, um, but we, we are actually bringing someone on board, and um, I can coordinate with some folks uh, in the national office to make sure that that job listing gets out to everyone here because we would love recommendations for the types of people uh, who may have experience in, in product management, um, particularly people who may have experience um, navigating the world um, who are blind or low vision to, to throw their hat in the ring. So um, we'll be in touch more around that, but I think that's a really exciting opportunity to combine two areas that I think have come up a lot in the conversations I've had with folks in this room. <laughs> Anybody but Claire, right? <laughs> hey, no, I didn't say anyone but Claire. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, we we'll, always, we'll always welcome Claire as an advisor, um, <laughs> even though she's, she's, she's an ACB person at heart. Um, so that's one thing we're working on. In addition to that, we're starting to build out a team 
of people focused on questions that are relevant to people at the, at the city level. Um, this project manager will sit on that team, but there will be a broader team that will start to really focus from our product perspective on accessibility. Um, what has historically happened and has sometimes been challenging is uh, folks will raise issues to me, and I will try to track down the right people internally, but it's not always clear who those people are. So we, there will be a dedicated team now <laughs> focused on the accessibility of all of our apps that will start to be able to really focus on making sure that we're mitigating issues before they actually take place. Um, there are a couple of new things that we haven't talked about in the past that I want to make sure this group knows about. So are there any folks here from Arizona? Just one. We'll, we'll I'm not just talking to that one person. I'm not talking to everyone, but there might be specifically relevant to that one person. So one of the pieces of feedback that we've gotten over the years is uh, just around the uh, dexterity and the challenges that people have navigating the smartphone. Of course, there's the requirement that we have to make sure that that app is accessible. But even if it is accessible, sometimes it can be challenging to navigate on voiceover or talkback. And so as of about two weeks ago, we have introduced a pilot program starting in Arizona that allows you to request a ride via phone. And that means you don't have to actually navigate the, user, the Uber app at all. And you don't even have to have the Uber app downloaded. So you can actually use any mobile phone. It doesn't even have to be a smartphone. It just has to be a mobile phone uh, that is able to accept SMS messages. And you call up a number. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a 1-800 number, but we have a 1-833 number. 1-833-USE-UBER. <laughs> um, you can dial it anywhere that Uber is offered in Arizona. And you're connected with a customer service agent. If you don't already have an Uber account, you can give your credit card information to that person over the phone. They request a ride for you. And you get information via SMS text message about where your driver is, what um, their name is, uh, and how far they are away, their ETA. Um, we've just started piloting it. Um, and it's very, very early in the process. But early signs are very positive. And our suspicion is that if we continue to see positive traction on 1833, use Uber in Arizona. It's something we're thinking about bringing nationwide. So we'll keep you all posted on that. I think there's really exciting opportunities for um, people who are blind or visually impaired who are more comfortable talking on the phone rather than using an app. But in conjunction with that, we're going to continue to invest in making sure that we're making the app accessible as well. One other thing I wanted to just briefly touch on was, which is I know a big issue that comes up regularly in these meetings and outside of these meetings is service animals. And so... We have, exactly, we have uh, continued to work to try to improve uh, the, both the quality of and the frequency of our communications with drivers around their obligations surrounding service animals, in addition to making sure that we have very aggressive, punitive action on the back end when drivers continue to uh, not accept drivers with service, riders with service animals. We recognize this is an ongoing issue. Um, and I think things are getting better, but they're not where they need to be. And so one of the things that I'm starting to work on, and it's actually with um, uh, some folks who, uh, who may be uh, here in, for the legislative seminar, is figuring out how we can create even more robust materials around this uh, by people who are blind and low vision. So people who can give guidance on what re messages will resonate best, and how to communicate them in a way that is most effective. That's something we want to continue to do both on the rider side and the driver side. Uh, so as those conversations uh, expand and go forward, um, I will absolutely look to ACB for their continued engagement because we recognize that this is still an issue and one we want to continue to improve upon. Um, there's, thank you. There's, there's lots more I could talk about, but for the sake of time, I'll stop here and again pass it on to Heidi.
Thank you. Um, so obviously, it shouldn't surprise anyone that for us, walking is at the foundation of mobility independence and that if someone is not able to navigate their community by walking or moving, um, that that infringes upon that independence and that basic human right as we see it at America Walks. And so I think one of the opportunities that we've had over the past several years in working with ACB and other groups is looking at what that independence looks like for different people, um, people of different ages, abilities, and backgrounds, whatever the case may be, and making sure that our efforts reflect um, and celebrate those differences. And I think with ACB, it looks like uh, shared advocacy uh, around issues that we uh, can collaborate on, whether it be... Um, you know, mobility devices uh, like scooters and um, the e-bikes on sidewalks um, being left all over the place as a, a hazard and a barrier um, or any other of, of issues. But also um, working with the team at ACB to help inform our network of advocates, planners, uh, decision makers, uh, to be more aware and more informed of issues that uh, might... Uh, be representative of the, the ACB community that they are not aware of or as knowledgeable. Um, for example, uh, at the meeting over the summer, um, I was having conversations with a variety of people um, repeatedly about leading pedestrian intervals. And at America Walks, for a number of years, those sound great to us. Yes, let's get them going. Um, and the, the conversations quickly made it clear that we're not doing them right. Um, and that our advocates need to be talking about them differently and asking for them differently and judging them and assessing their use differently. Um, so that's just one example of how we were able to go back to our network and say, hey, let's rethink this a little bit um, so that we are creating communities uh, that, that are that safe and accessible um, that our mission is, is based on. Sure, and this is Eric again. Uh, it's a great question, Pat. Thank you for, for asking the panel. Um, when we think about accessibility, we start with the premise that there's not a one-size-fits-all approach to solving, you know, quote-unquote, accessibility. That it's important to recognize differences both between and within communities. So that's true with the blind and low-vision community, people who are deaf or hard of hearing, who have ambulatory uh, issues or cognitive disorders. And we've really taken an approach of trying to learn from community partners, ACB chief among them, in terms of, on the one hand, understanding what are the core challenges inside of today's transportation ecosystem. Uh, we are fundamentally redesigning an option from the ground up in terms of reimagining the in-vehicle experience from calling a vehicle on your app to drop off to destination wayfinding. And what we found through a number of user experience research initiatives are different areas where we would really be able to uh, through reimagining what that experience looks like, really create more accessibility at every stage in the process. So that's true with respect to making an accessible app, for instance. It's true even before that, right? If you're, our vehicle model is that of what we call level four technology, which is to say that it is completely autonomous, completely self-driving inside of a geospaced area, which means that you as passenger have no need to ever take control of the vehicle. In fact, there will be no steering wheel if there's no steering wheel, it means you don't need a driver's license. And so immediately, you're cutting down on transportation barriers. And then you build on that, right? No more turning away service animals. The animal is welcome inside the vehicle, just like any one of our customers is. 
And then in terms of accessibility throughout kind of that, that supply chain, right? From calling a vehicle to wayfinding, uh, to in-vehicle experience, communication inside the vehicle, how much is too much, how much is too little, where are you in real time with respect to your destination? And then once you get to the destination, right, what does the curb look like? How far are you from, from the destination? And really trying to figure out what that balance is um, in terms of working with ACB and other partners to really create a more accessible user experience from start to finish. Uh, it's something that we are incredibly committed to uh, and something that truly uh, is motivating to, to us on staff. Um, we fundamentally, I said this before, we fundamentally believe that the existing status quo of transportation is broken. Uh, every single day, 100 people die on the roads. That's 700 people a week. That is quite literally the equivalent of two 737s falling from the sky every single week. And somehow, as a society, we've just accepted it as the cost of living in a motorized community. That does not need to be true. Transportation is the single largest polluter by sector in the United States. That's bad for our environment. That's bad for our health. That does not need to be true. Transportation is today inaccessible to far too many people. That does not need to be true. And that is fundamentally what motivates us uh, as a company, as an industry, uh, and really in our partnership. Because we don't we know enough to know that we don't know the answers to every question. And it's only through partnership that you really start to evaluate and you can really make choices that help you create a more accessible product at the beginning and then to iterate on that over time to make a continually more accessible product. Great, thank you, Eric. I, the, when you were talking about bringing service animals in cars, I had a, an image of my service animal calling up her own uh, autonomous vehicle and going somewhere. So as long as we don't get to that point, we're good. Ask me. Yeah. Yeah. So what are we doing at ACB in the autonomous, uh, or excuse me, in the transportation world, AV being one of them? What are we doing in the transportation realm? Um, again, we continue to work on all kinds of things. Um, ACB is a member of what we call the, is the Consortium of Citizens with Disabilities, or CCD. It is an organization of almost 100 different disability advocacy groups. And I have been fortunate for the last year and now will be again this year, one of the co-chairs for the Transportation Task Force. Um, so we're constantly working on all kinds of transportation-related issues. For instance, we were invited to sit on a bipartisan, bicameral committee to talk about new legislation surrounding AVs. Um, we are constantly responding to any notice of proposed rulemakings or other comments out there. So it's been a great uh, situation for us to be in where we can get input to all kinds of issues going on and have allies in the disability community. So if they hear of something that we haven't heard of first, we can immediately be brought into the fold and have our input put out there. So that's been a great, great um, tool for us at ACB to use in the transportation realm. Um, I think somebody mentioned earlier that I will now be a member of the Air Carriers Access Act Advisory Committee. We have our first, thank you. <laughs> Uh, we have our first meeting on March 10th and 11th. Um, like was said earlier today, it's open to the public. People, please come and attend if you're in the Washington area. Um, so that's going to be a great place for us to talk about 
access for persons who are blind to anything related to airlines. So, of course, one of the most commonly discussed issue is bringing our service animals on. Um, but other things, too, you know, entertainment in the planes. Um, even just one of the issues I brought up when they asked for issues that we experience is just getting customer service on and off the plane uh, is a big issue that I've personally experienced. Um, again, we continue to sit on an advocacy group that meets quarterly for Amtrak. I know we all laugh at Amtrak, but it has its, its, its difficulties, and we're going to continue to advocate for accessibility, for instance, with the website slash app to buy tickets. Um, and again, if you guys are having any other transportation-related issues, let us know. Um, with literally without transportation, we can't get from point A to point B, and there is no one major form of transportation. We all move around in different pla different ways depending on the region we live in. Um, and I always like to stress that no one form of transportation is more important in the blind community. If you need to walk, we're going to work on it. If you need to take the train, we're going to work on it. So we're not going to prioritize any one type of transportation. Thank you, Claire. A couple of things that stood out for me there. <clears throat> One, uh, in the Washington, D.C. Area, area, we are starting same-day service. Mm -hmm. One of our providers is Uber, and so it would be interesting to do the use Uber um, uh, portion of their uh, 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 product in Washington, D.C. The other thing, and I shouldn't say this because I'll probably get kicked out of a committee or two, <laughs> leading pedestrian, pedestrian intervals. I was wondering why all those sighted people were crossing the street three or four seconds before I was, was not aware that they had the light to do it. I just thought they could see real good. <laughs> um, so, you know, and, and I've been doing this stuff for a long time. So, yeah, LPIs are important. It gives us three or four seconds more that can, that can uh, be a safety issue. In Montgomery County, since January... January, we've had four pedestrian deaths. Five. Correct me, yeah. You know, and things like floating bus stops and things like that, I, they all, it's a pedestrian and a bicycle transit issue. So, next question for the panel. We have, um, we, uh, there are areas that we're working on. Uh, there are areas that have challenges. What are the areas within your organization that you would like us to help with, that you have questions on, where we could step up to the plate and help you make a difference in what you're doing? Thank you for that question, Pat. This is Malcolm speaking. And I think it's so important because I think about so many of the areas where we have improved over the years. And we certainly have a great deal more in which we need to continue to push forward. But in the areas where we've made progress, so much of it has become the case as a result of engagement with organizations like ACB, but in reality, principally, an organization like ACB. I think about a recent feature we have introduced in, uh, in the context of safety. We've worked really hard to improve our messaging around safety over the last couple of years. But a lot of people, including folks in this room, came to us and said, a lot of your messaging is, for, is, is exclusively for sighted people. And so one of the things we recently introduced, in large part because of the feedback that we got from folks in this room, was an opportunity for you to optionally have a PIN number that you have to match with your driver before you get into the car to make sure that you're getting into the car with the right driver. Um, again, that's the kind of feedback that we get from folks like Claire and Clark and ACB. 
Uh, but we recognize that's just one form of communication that's taking place. I sit here in Washington, D.C. and have a lot of conversations with folks in the national office, but recognize that there are all of you out in your various states and cities around the country um, that could probably stand to benefit from similar conversations with a number of our local policy teams that are spread out around the country. And so um, as there are efforts that you would like to see, uh, areas that you would like us to try to improve upon, uh, I would really encourage you to connect with folks in the national office um, because I would love to help you all I think we're the facilitators here in the Washington, D.C. area, but we would love to help connect you all with folks around the country who can help you with local issues. Um, we recognize that a lot of things are consistent across the various areas where you, you work and live, but we also recognize that there are some uh, city-specific or state-specific issues where we could be useful. Uh, so I would just really encourage you to continue to uh, give us your feedback, help us, think about how we can inform our platform in a way that's going to make it more accessible. Um, and if we can con continue to keep those lines of dialogue open and going even further, start to facilitate those connections at the local level, um, I think you will continue to be huge um, contributors to the improved accessibility on our platform. Thank you. Um, I think for us it's helping inform our organization as well as those at the local and state level that we work with about what walkability and movability looks like for each of you, um, for the people you live and work with, for the people in your community, because we can't address what we don't know. Um, and having that representation at the meetings, um, you know, people raising their hands and speaking up for what we want our communities to look like Takes, takes all community members, and so helping to inform our advocacy efforts um, across the board. And then at the, the federal and national level, uh, tapping into the networks and coalitions that we represent, um, you know, it's been a, a struggle on our part to even get walking mentioned in the transportation conversation oftentimes. Uh, so I think um, coming together and making that voice even stronger is something that uh, we need to be doing together. Hi, this is Eric again. Um, wonderful question. Thank you, Pat, for it. Um, I've referenced now a few times our user experience studies, and I, I don't want to give the impression that this is a one-and-done or a static experience. Uh, in fact, these are ongoing conversations that we have with ACB and with others around the community, and it, frankly, in a variety of communities, to understand where improvements can be made inside of transportation accessibility. At its core, where we started was with, uh, with existing transportation options and actually went on ride-alongs uh, with individuals who are blind or have low vision and uh, engaged in a narration of the experience, right? Tell me what's happening at every stage. How are you problem-solving? What barriers are being faced right now and what's being navigated? And then working collaboratively with our product design specialists in co-design sessions we're then able, over the course of hours and multiple, uh, multiple iterations, to really start building potential solutions that could help solve some of these issues. And so at a very high level, what we found was that when you're breaking down the, the rideshare system, uh, which is the, the space we intend to operate in, you can break it down to a few different high-level elements. Um, and I know Malcolm can speak about this uh, significantly better than I can. Um, but you're talking about calling the vehicle from your app. You're talking about finding the vehicle, the level of communication inside the vehicle, arriving at your destination, and then finding your destination. 
right? So at a very high level, there are five elements, each of which can be improved in some fashion in terms of making for a more accessible experience. And so that's really where we start all of our conversations. We assume zero knowledge, uh, and we look to you, to, to the community, to experts, to really help us understand the challenges and then to work with our teams to co-design solutions around that. And we think that's just a very powerful partnership when you're bringing together industry with community that ultimately does create a better product. Because what we found is that when we build with accessibility in mind at the beginning, everybody benefits. So obviously this question is shaped a little bit differently for me since I'm inside ACB. Um, but because of that, I'm just going to kind of turn this question the other way and say, those of us in the national office want to hear from you guys at the state and city level on what transportation issues need to be assessed. We live in kind of the D.C. bubble. We know what's going on in our region. And because of our relationships with great organizations like these at the table, we do have a lot of information about what's going on around going on around the country, but we don't have eyes and ears everywhere, so we want to hear from you guys on the different issues, and we even acknowledge that a lot of times the solutions to those issues are not a one and done, not a one-size-fits-all, that sometimes the solutions are going to have to be um, geared and um, formulated based on the city or state that you live in, so we want to work with you guys. We want to brainstorm ideas to help you guys um, address issues in your own region, and again, we also want to hear from you guys about what's going on so that we can know what's going on. Be our eyes, be our ears, help us know what we need to, to work on. Thank you, Claire. A couple things that stood out for me. One, when Heidi talked about uh, pedestrian issues and safety, getting involved. Uh, Charlie Crawford, uh, six months ago, got involved with an organization called Vision Zero, which worked on transportation pedestrian issues within our area here. Uh, guide dog user, blind person guide dog user, when he walked into the room, they had no idea what Charlie's issues were. Uh, he was able, because of his experience, to educate a whole room full of people. There's still more work to be done, but my point is, one person does make a difference. You don't need to be an expert. You don't have to have 10 years or five years or a study or this or that, the other. It's just walking in the door with your experience and your attitude, advocacy, and go towards it. And you'll find answers. And, of course, you've got a lot of us here that can help. Last question for the panel because I really want to open it up to you guys. Um, going forward... And I think this is more of a future type of question. Do you see, what do you see as the future designs and transportation going forward for blind people? That's a wide open question. I'd like to teleport myself, but, <laughs> but then a lot of people in here would like me to teleport myself too. <laughs> so this is Malcolm. I, 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 Pat, I concur. Teleportation is the dream, but uh, there's some steps that we need to, to, to cross before we get there. Um, listen, I won't spend too much time on this one, I think, in particular, because I think uh, uh, crews and, uh, and other organizations in the autonomous vehicle space are doing uh, really great work around this, but we also see a world where a meaningful part of the transportation pie will be made up of autonomous vehicles that are built accessible from the very ground up and have accessible features engaged in them in large part because of the feedback and input of organizations like ACB. And so as that technology matures, 
And there's a lot of maturity that needs to happen to that technology before it gets in the hands of real people. But as that process happens, I think there will be huge opportunities to make sure that it is informed by the experiences of people who are blind or visually impaired. There are also really interesting things like eVTOLs, electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. As our, as our streets get more congested, for all of the reasons that folks on this panel have spoken about so eloquently, uh, there will be an opportunity to uh, push electrification into the sky. Um, again, that is technology that is not yet mature, but is an area where we are working, uh, where we think there's real opportunity, uh, of course, much, much further down the line. And then, of course, I think there, we should not um, dismiss the integral nature that a sort of more legacy transportation um, uh, efforts will continue to play. Certainly walking, and Heidi can speak to that, of course, um, but also transit. Uh, we believe that transit is still always going to be an integral part of the transportation ecosystem, and we want to help people better connect with transit in the place where they are. We want to help facilitate those transit rides, even if it's through a, a different mechanism than they're used to. And so you will, over time, increasingly see transit integration in the Uber app. And in some cities, we're already starting to work with city agencies to allow you to actually purchase your ticket through the Uber app. We're doing that in Las Vegas and Denver to start and plan to expand it elsewhere later this year. So we think the transportation pie is going to be bigger over time. We think it is going to give more options to more people depending on what they're trying to optimize for. And we're hopeful that we can continue to play a meaningful role in making sure that all of those options are accessible as well. Thank you. Um, you know, walking and moving are the original forms of transportation. Um, we've gotten pretty good at it uh, over the past several thousands of years of evolution. Uh, but I also think it's the future. Uh, and I don't think that's just because that's what my work wants me to say. But I, I truly believe that unless maybe you can jump in the air and fly, which I didn't realize was coming down the pipeline. But until that option gets to us, any trip is going to start and end with a walking trip, even if it's just a few steps out your front door. And if that piece of the trip is not safe, if that piece of the trip is not accessible, and if that piece of the trip is not enjoyable, then your community is failing you and your transportation system is failing you. And so if we don't get that piece right, we're not going to get the rest of it right either. Um, and so while it's not the, the end all of transportation systems, it is a critical piece of, of that transportation pie. I would, I would even just build on to that. Um, it, it is very much in keeping with, uh, with our mission statement at Cruz. We like to say that we're working to drive life in cities forward, and we really see self-driving as one piece of that larger ecosystem. And so what Heidi described and Malcolm as well are absolutely accurate, right? If you don't feel safe getting out of your, your front door to walk to wherever you need to go to take public transit or whatever mode you're taking, cycling, et cetera, um, then the city really has a responsibility to improve that. Uh, we fundamentally see a role in this world for self-driving. Uh, we think that the human-driven internal combustion single-occupant vehicle that has defined the 20th century has failed us uh, as a society. It had enormous good attached to it, um, and it has come to a point where we as a society have reached an inflection point and are looking at what's next, what's coming over the horizon. Uh, Self-driving, all-electric, and shared 
we really think can go a long way to improving road safety, to making the air cleaner, the environment more sustainable, the transportation system more accessible, and the streets less congested. And so we really see a very strong role for self-driving moving forward. Uh, We are very much still in the testing phase. That is absolutely accurate. Uh, We test our vehicles 24-7 in San Francisco, in Arizona, uh, in Michigan, and uh, we are actively working towards being able to put forward a commercial service that we hope will start to address each of those core tenants uh, in terms of safety, accessibility, the environment, um, and really see it as one important piece of a larger transportation ecosystem. Um, I feel like I could talk about a million different things, and I think every individual in the room would would echo that in the blind community as far as what we think about with design in the future. But I wanted to um, highlight one area of design for the future that I think is really important for the blind community, and I think we would all agree is important, is designing transportation outside of the, or I should rather say, designing transportation that accommodates people in all regions of the United States. I know a lot of us, uh, a lot of us who are blind or visually impaired often feel obligated to live in certain areas where public transportation is better because that's their only choice. I grew up in Southern California where everybody gets a car when they turn 16 and you have to drive everywhere. So I intentionally left because I just felt very stuck. Um, and I, I moved to a city with more public transportation. And if that's your choice, that's great. You have that choice. But that shouldn't be, you shouldn't be obligated to have to do that. You should be able to live wherever you want, whether it be a very small rural town or New York City. So finding different ways at, with the you know, growing form of transportation, like Malkin's talked about um, and Eric's talked about with the you know, invention of new uh, autonomous vehicles and technology and ride shares, um, it should be able to serve people in more rural communities. I've heard groups talk about like first mile, last mile, AV services if you live more in the suburbs and you just need that extra mile to get you to uh, to the bus stop or the, the subway stop or what have you. Um, working on more infrastructure for safe streets and sidewalks. So if you live in the suburbs or rural area, you can actually walk to and from somewhere and be safe and not be you know at a place where you just can't leave your home because there aren't safe sidewalks. So just really finding ways to accommodate and um, bring new technology and new infrastructure infrastructure and those kinds of things into the future so we're not it's not dictated where we live thank you very much um i think i could take a couple of questions my favorite actually is acb rockets <laughs> i want to fly now rocky yes. balboa let's go um <laughs> th- thank you very much cloud migration 101 um do we have a couple questions quick yeah, we have like a hundred up right like now. Like a hundred. There you go. I knew it. Hi, this is uh, Carrie Muth from Coos Bay, Oregon, one of those small communities. Thank you, Claire. I chose to return after living in Portland five years because, likewise, you drive or you're stuck. Um, lots of advances. So my question is primarily for the Uber representative. So in our community, um, our paratransit just stopped running before 8.30 a.m. You know how much that affects everybody trying to work, right? And not just those of us with visual impairments, all different disabilities, people trying to get to their dialysis appointments. Our taxi waits will be two plus hours. 
And I have had at least a dozen people tell me they are interested in driving for Uber, but Uber is not in my community. So how do we make that happen? So those are three, I think, three points that I'd like to briefly touch on. Um, The first is I totally hear you on the the limiting of the paratransit service option. It's something we're seeing increasingly more and more around various places uh, across the country. One of the things that we've actually been trying to do is we've now built a transit team that's looking to partner with paratransit organizations uh, whereby if they feel like they can't sufficiently fund those services, maybe they can partner with us and we can help um, help them at times when otherwise uh, paratransit services are challenging. So I think there's an opportunity to connect, to connect there. Uh, you mentioned uh, healthcare appointments. That's a huge part of what we're thinking about going forward. We actually have a product called Uber Health that has disproportionately grown over the last year in rural areas where we recognize that folks getting to and from those non-emergency medical appointments um, is especially important. So I think there's lots of effort there. Uh, And then the last thing is, uh, and I'm not familiar with the specific regulatory um, environment in in Oregon, but in a number of places we actually run into uh, a bit of a regulatory challenge around whether we're able to operate outside of specific cities or in areas um, that are more rural. In an optimal world, we would allow anyone who wanted to drive and went through the requisite background check process and had their car checked be able to turn on the app and start taking requests anywhere. Um, unfortunately, that's not always the case. Again, I'm not sure whether that's the case in, in Oregon specifically, um, but um, if we can sort of facilitate getting contact information, we'd love to connect you with some of our local folks to help you answer some of those questions. Another question. Hi, my name is Anthony. This is a problem, right? Primarily for Uber as well. Um, I many things I could say, but I think the first thing that I'd like to say is that you guys keep asking us what we can do to help. What, how can we help you? And I think we, money, everybody in this room would say that we already are. A, we use the service, and we use the service, I think, at a much higher rate than a lot of other communities out there. But also, B, we take, we take our experiences and bring them to the platform. And sometimes when it doesn't work, bringing it to the platform, we bring it to social media. And I think one of the biggest concerns right now that I'm curious about, which, by the way, you guys have partnered with New York City Paratransit. You're doing an amazing job there. But the backdoor discrimination to those of us with service animals, whether it be they leave us there and then don't cancel the ride, and so we're stuck for a long time, or paying the $5 cancellation fee. And secondly, that they don't tell you or try to tell you, and you have to fight with them about a cleaning fee for your animal when our animals are probably the cleanest and most well-behaved animals that they're ever going to encounter. So if you could just speak to that yeah, I appreciate that, those pieces of feedback, and um, you're certainly not the first person to tell us that. I don't think we're sort of asking you to, to give us feedback in ways that we don't recognize are valuable. I think our request would be to continue what you're doing because it's already made huge impact. I made some examples earlier, but I think there are tons more that would speak to the degree to which you all have helped inform positive platform improvements. As I also mentioned for, I am... I suppose probably more cognizant than anyone else about how much more work we need to do. And um, I think there are some efforts underway and I think it's a specific focus on hiring people to be explicitly engaged on these issues internally that will help facilitate some of those improvements. But the one last thing I would just say is um, we, we do need to know about these things when they happen. And so please do continue to reach out to us. There's both the in-app in-app ways in which we can do that. But as I mentioned earlier, I think there's a real opportunity to start to facilitate better relationships with folks in the company and other parts of the 
uh, increasingly country and world. And so as we can be helpful in helping connect you with those folks at the local level, um, I think that can be really meaningful in starting to decrease some of the, uh, the, the ways in which these issues are taking place. But I appreciate your feedback. Thank you. Two more questions. Hello, this is uh, Trampus Brown from North Dakota, and I'd like to thank all the panelists for being here. Uh, transportation is obviously a huge thing for everybody in this room. Uh, first off, um, addressing Amtrak. In North Dakota especially, we need Amtrak. It is not even a question. I can fly to Washington, D.C. cheaper than I can fly from Minot to Fargo, and that's 270 miles. So and I can access Amtrak and I can go round trip from Minot to Fargo for $84. So we absolutely need to make sure Amtrak is still functioning and accessible, uh, especially in our flyover states. Um, back to uh, Lyft and Uber. I, I currently use Lyft more because it came to our market first, uh, but I use it around 75 times a month. It's, it's a little expensive, but... Uh, and this is actually addressing the rest of the room. I use my rides with Lyft to advocate every single ride. There's nobody that I ride with that doesn't know about service animals. There's nobody that doesn't understand the difference in visual disabilities. And I take every ride, and anybody that knows me, I'll talk to you all day long. So my Lyft rides probably tell me, why don't you just get out here? You're close enough. <laughs> Thank you. And my last one, just to, do, to the cruise uh, representative, if you want to test a vehicle in cold, freezing, 20 below North Dakota, <laughs> let me know. I'll, I'll be your first to sign up. All right. Thank you so much. Last question. Kelly's got the last question. All right. Hello. This is Debbie. And um, first of all, I wanted to say that we got an email saying that that Uber call-in thing is also available in Florida. So I don't know if that was jumping the gun or if it's really true. And then before I relinquish the mic, I was curious to know if people have special needs, is there any way to put that in a profile? For example, I have a friend who uses Uber a lot, but she has very great difficulty getting in and out of SUVs. And she would like to request every time she goes a sedan. And finally, what I wanted to say is, some of us need to communicate in English or a language because, because and this, this has nothing to do with anything other than we can't point, we can't say turn left up there. And the, the other day I got a wonderful driver, Hispanic gentleman, and he tried so hard and he asked everybody he knew to, to point him where I needed to go. And so what I was just curious to know is, if we need to communicate in English or a, or a specific language, for example, for totally honorable reasons, or we need a certain sort of a vehicle, is there a way we could put that in a profile so that when we put a ride in the app, it would just know? Thank you. This is Malcolm speaking. I'll be very, very brief because I think maybe there's desire for there to be more conversation. Um, on the first question around you hearing about a pilot in, in Florida, so we are doing very, very, very small pilot efforts at, 
at sort of senior centers and specific locations in a couple of places around the country. The only widespread one right now is Arizona. So you may have gotten wind of one of those very, very small ones, but those are very localized and for people who are living in very small communities. Um, On the question of broader communication, just to sort of uh, loop it all together, that's something that we're working on uh, is being able to more explicitly communicate what your needs are prior to the trip happening or automatically having that communication be sent to the driver so the driver knows when they arrive what they need to expect and how they can help. Um, So I would just say stay tuned because that's definitely something that we're going to be working on very soon. Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for the panel. They were great. Thank you so much. This is wonderful. You guys are wonderful too. Thanks a lot. I want to remind everyone that the mini mall is outside. We only have four more totes. We have SD cards. They are on sale. They are marked down. Probably more than she really wanted to mark them down. And we also have luggage tags. And you want to make sure that luggage gets to your house. So come check us out. So our first imperative uh, deals with a lot of the issues that our panel just touched on and just spoke to. So leading pedestrian interval signalization and the use of accessible um, pedestrian signals, you know, having access to sidewalks and pedestrian right-of-ways that are clear from micro and shared mobility devices like bikes and scooters and so on. Um, also, we heard some folks discuss about paratransit in either in their regions um, or around the country that are experimenting with uh, kind of like ad hoc ride share type, type models. Um, and we have an opportunity that this year that we can try to make all of these things a reality around the country. So there's the, what is it Claire? The, the Fix America's Surface Transportation Act, also the known as Act. the FAST Act. So this is a surface transportation bill that has to be reauthorized by September 30th, 2020. So the previous authorization for transportation and highway funding that deals with safety, um, infrastructure investments at the federal level, that authorization is going to expire in 220 days, September 30th. He didn't do the math himself. No, thank you Politico Pro that has the daily countdown. Just have to keep him in his place. His math isn't that good. <laughs> oh, uh, some, somebody's, somebody's just spunky. Like she had a Coke with lunch or something. <laughs> yeah. All right. So with, with the FAST Act reauthorization, um, there's an opportunity for our federal legislators our elected members of Congress to hear about priorities that are important to their constituents relative, relevant to this bill. Many of these issues have been raised by ACB members in forms of resolutions at the ACB conference and convention or by the transportation and environmental access committees. Um, you know, the ones that Pat mentioned are planning a transportation summit for this year's conference and convention. So these are the issues that we want to bring forward. These are the issues that we have a uh, legislative imperative backgrounder about. And 
and that, that's, what, that's what we're going to do this year. Um, all of you, as we just heard during Q&A, all of you have personal stories and experiences about transportation, uh, access situations that are beneficial to our community, and as well as hardships for our communities. And it's those personal stories that will help make these points to our members of Congress. So, and Claire, anything you'd like to add on the surface transportation imperative or jump right into the next one? Yeah. Um, so just to echo off what Clark was saying before we jump into the third imperative, um, just we want to use the FAST Act or the Surface Transportation Act as a conduit to uh, build things in that could benefit the blind and visually impaired communi- community as it pertains to transportation and infrastructure because we believe, and like Clark said, you guys all just brought up so many issues that fall under that category that could have a huge impact on the lives of those of us who are blind or visually impaired. So again, just really emphasizing to your representatives that through the FAST Act that has to be reauthorized, it absolutely has to be, um, so knock on wood, it goes through, um, that we can use that as a vehicle no pun intended, um, to to move these transportation issues forward. Um, Now we'll talk about the autonomous vehicle imperative, um, our third and last imperative we'll talk about. Um, For those of you who attended last year, you know that this is an imperative we talked about last year, and we're going to keep pushing forward. We're going to keep driving it forward. I'm going to keep the puns coming. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Um, because we, as was talked about today, there's a lot of work going on in this, in this um, realm and something that I think all of us can agree is really important. We're also pushing forward on this issue because there has been some movement in the 116th Congress. We currently don't have a bill that's officially been proposed, but there has been action, and ACB has actually been fortunate to play a role in that language writing and the discussions and what have you. So if you guys recall, in previous sessions of Congress, we had the AV Start Act and the Self-Drive Act, and those unfortunately did not make it through. They were proposed, um, did get a little bit of sponsorship, but weren't successful and didn't make it all the way through the process. Um, so in this, in this current session of Congress, that hasn't happened. It hasn't officially been put out. But uh, ACB had been invited to the table with several other disability advocacy organizations to lend our two cents, our comments, our thoughts, our concerns about language that several members of Congress have been working on for future autonomous vehicle legislation. Um, So it was a bicameral, bipartisan group of Congress members who are talking about language that would apply. And we've been able to lend our two cents on things like making sure that the development of these automobiles are accessible from the get-go, that they'll have, for instance, um, accessible human-machine interface, or HMI, so that those of us who are blind can actually use them, because heaven forbid AVs are developed and they're not accessible and then we're left behind again. So we've been able to make comments on things like that, that the language should include accessible HMI, um, making sure that language would say that persons who are blind do not have to have a license because that's unnecessary with autonomous vehicles. So we've been able to literally sit at the table and put our two cents. They've since drafted language, and we've had the opportunity, I want to say three times now, to redline the language and give our comments back. We've done that both through ACB independently as well as through the Consortium of Citizens with Disabilities, and again, redlining the language and uh, 
telling them whatever edits they need to tweak or make to make the language uh, more beneficial to our community or what have you. So um, again, no language has officially or no uh, bill has officially been um, put out. But just this week, three days ago, we put in more redlining. So it is moving forward. So when you go up to the Hill and you talk to your Congress members, talk about the fact that we know there's language out there and that as the language is being developed, we want to make sure that it benefits the blind community. And then that the bill actually gets put out there soon that hopefully it won't you know, linger for a long time, but that we'll actually see the bill sponsored in the near future. And like Claire just stated, as well as Eric Danko from Cruz, uh, this is important legislation for them as well. They want to make sure that our community is able to use a service that they're going to provide, you know, a little bit selfish. They want as many customers as possible, and we want to be those customers, darn it. Uh, but we also need to make sure that these autonomous vehicles don't require a driver's license if there are no pedals and steering wheels. We don't want our people to be precluded um, even before the service gets off the ground. So that, that's another important piece of this legislation as well. Like Claire said, we are involved in this process, but we need all of you to raise this with your individual members, both in the House and in the Senate, so that as this process moves along, um, there are no efforts to strip out any accessibility provisions from this legislation, that everyone knows how important it is to their constituents in their home districts. Do we have any questions on either the FAST Act or the autonomous vehicle um, language that's out there? Um, do you want to talk about sure. the FAST Act? Yeah. So the ask for the FAST Act, uh, and this is in the imperative backgrounder, uh, it's to raise the issues uh, of accessible pedestrian signals whenever LPI signalization is used. And this is an issue that we're not only looking to solve legislatively through the Surface Transportation Bill, but the PASS Coalition out of New York that drafted and submitted an amendment to the NCUTCD, uh, the Uniform Traffic Control Devices Manual folks. And they've accepted that amendment, but that still has to run through the amendment process. So if we can have legislation fix it, why not do it that way? Uh, you know, it's... Policy work is, you know, you throw a lot of stuff up against the wall and you see what sticks. So if the amendment doesn't work, we're also working on it legislatively or vice versa. With micro and shared mobility devices, we had a resolution this summer calling on ACB members and affiliates and chapters to work at the local level. Well, here at the federal level, we are asking you all to make sure that your members of Congress know that this is an issue. And if there are going to be federal dollars tied to infrastructure improvement projects, we want to make sure that there is the appropriate infrastructure so that micro and shared mobility devices are not used on sidewalks, that they have appropriate places to be parked, not in front of a wheelchair ramp or an emergency exit, you know, or at a curb Or in the cut. middle of the street. <laughs> exactly. And then on the, uh, the paratransit and ride shares, again, there are already some jurisdictions that are experimenting um, by offering you know, pretty much not, not just same-day scheduling, but call it when you're ready, just like a rideshare service. Or in, in some cases, they're subsidizing through coupons or credits the use of Lyft or Uber. And we think it's important that policymakers know just how important um, same-day service, 
where you don't have to schedule it a week in advance, where you can take more than one ride within a span of 90 minutes, how important that flexibility is to people who are living full and active independent lives in their community. So we really want to encourage the paratransit systems to partner or offer rideshare type services. So those are three main things to highlight. If you have other specific transportation issues that are unique to, well, they probably aren't, aren't unique, we're probably all facing the same thing, but that are specific to your part of the country, please raise those as well. Hi, my name is Deborah Allen from Boise, Idaho. And uh, not only do they park their scooters on the sidewalks, they're allowed to ride them on the sidewalks there. It's a huge issue. But my question is um, roundabouts. Uh, recently, a small nonprofit um, cross-disability group in Idaho, they did a survey of accessibility, and we have a whole bunch of brand-new roundabouts that have been built within the past few years and not only were they inaccessible for people who are blind and visually impaired, but for people who use wheelchairs and other devices. Um, does the FAST Act address um, standardizing uh, accessibility for roundabouts? I'm sorry, that specific issue I, I am not sure of, so I, I don't want to steer you in the wrong direction. Uh, but please share that with your members. Chris Hunsinger from Pennsylvania. Um, I was just wondering uh, what part of, uh, who are the Congress people that we should be mentioning when we say, we hear there's a bill um, for, uh, Good question. you know, for uh, the audio, the, uh, I'm sorry, not the, yeah, the autonomous, the autonomous vehicles. Sure. So the, the autonomous vehicle legislation, um, it's both Senate and Republicans in, excuse me, House and Senate, Democrats and Republicans, mainly staff from the House and Senate Commerce Committees. So it's being worked on at the committee staff level. So... When you're speaking with your members, you can tell them that you know that the House and Senate Commerce Committees are working together on autonomous vehicle legislation. And a couple of the major names that you'll hear that have come up with this language or legislation, or language for the legislation, are Wicker and Thune. So if those are the states you guys come from, those are definitely some, some important um, people to talk with. Claire and Clark. Um, this is uh, Ray Campbell here. And with the autonomous vehicle legislation, I, I understand the language around licensing and you know trying to make sure that we don't have to have uh, a license to operate these. Although I think you're going to get a lot of pushback in the states on that one. But um, secondly, but the, another just as important group. Uh, and I'm wondering if they've been around the table is the insurance industry because I could think this could be a real nightmare for insurance. They are one of the players that's been putting their two cents out there um, with a lot of concern. So that is one community that we have heard from and continues to put their two cents into the conversation. Yes, and the trial. I just heard someone say trial attorneys. They have definitely been part of the conversation. Sean, Theo, quick question, and I apologize if everybody else knows this but me. 
what are LPI things that you're talking about? Leading pedestrian, I'm not familiar with that concept. Could you please explain? Yeah, no problem. Thank you for asking. We want everybody to ask. Um, So leading pedestrian interval signalization, I always trip over my tongue trying to say that, are the additional seconds that a lot of, not all, but a lot of intersections now have um, incorporated LPI technology to give pedestrians a few extra seconds. Um, So I've had sighted friends describe it to me as, I guess you see a little hand or a little person, um, but it, it says it's your turn to walk. But that happens before your parallel cars start to surge. So for most of us in the room who have had orientation and mobility, we've been taught to cross the street when our parallel cars surge and we know it's safe to cross. Well, with LPI intersections, you actually get extra seconds to cross before your parallel cars even go. Um, And for the longest time, I didn't know this, so sighted people would start to cross, and the parallel cars hadn't gone, and I went, are they just really brave? Do they not care? Um, And so that's what it is. It's giving you four to five uh, extra seconds. And for those of us who are blind, and we know trying to cross especially really big intersections, that's huge, because that gives you a lot more time to get out there and get through the intersection. Thank you so much. And we have time for one more question. Yes, this is Barbara from Indiana. Uh, With the LPIs, are so that is with okay. Let's let's fuck up with the APS. Will that interval be automatically? I mean, is is it? Will it be audible? Yes. Is it something that's going to have to be added to the APS? Yes. Sorry if that wasn't explained well. Okay. So the push is that if intersections use LPI technology, they have to be paired with accessible or audible pedestrian signals. So if sighted individuals are getting that feedback, you can go ahead and cross. They need to be automatically paired with an APS so that we, too, get the information to know that we can cross the street. So it's not an adaptation that has to be done with APS that are existing? Yeah. So with the with the LPI, um, when people when folks who can see get that few seconds head start, we want to make sure that accessible pedestrian signals, both with an audio tone and the vibration feedback, are installed as well, so that people who are blind, deaf, blind somebody looking at their cell phone and not paying attention. We want to make sure that they also have the same advantage of knowing as folks who can visually see that that signal has changed and that pedestrians can safely enter the crosswalk before the parallel traffic is released. It makes folks more visible. It makes sighted pedestrians more visible. And it makes people with disabilities more visible as well. So it's just a new form of, or not even new because it's been around for a while, but it's an alternate form of data, either like Clark said, uh, auditorily vibrating both that you can cross the street instead of just having to go old school and read traffic like we all grew up learning. We're going to start introducing one of our sponsors. I know you heard from some of our sponsors yesterday. um, And we were, Eric gave us a list of those who have helped to put on this weekend. And without the sponsors that we've had, the corporate sponsors, we literally would not have been able to do what we did this weekend. Um, So we're really fortunate to have one more of our sponsors introduce themselves and tell tell us a little bit about what they're all about. Um, So we are honored to have Charlotte Glass come and talk to us from 
Envision America. Um, it's their first time here um, during the leadership conference, but Envision America has been at the national conference and convention as a sponsor many times in the past. So we're very thankful. And Charlotte is going to share a little bit about what they're doing with us. Thanks, Charlotte. Hello, my friends. So, uh, so as she said, my name is Charlotte Glass. I have been with Envision America for about 15 years. Um, but for the last year, I'm just going to take this out because I'm too tall. Uh, for the last uh, year, I actually have been in a new role um, as public policy and community outreach liaison, which is a fancy way of saying if you have questions about accessible prescription label legislation, I am here for you. Um, I am also continuing to be the IDMate database manager. So if you have complaints about that, you can also talk to me. <laughs> um, in that regard, I just wanted to first say a big thank you to ACB with your uh, resolution and um, all the work that Margie Donovan did in getting Trader Joe's to work with us for the IDMate. So if this is the first time you heard it, um, we do have a Trader Joe's database that is an adjunct database um, because they have a lot of um, carryover or duplicate numbers as Schwann's. So we didn't want to just add it into the database um, because then it would delete some of the Schwann stuff. So if you want Trader Joe's 2, uh, if you have a Quest or uh, IDMate Galaxy or Summit, we can do an adjunct database. Just call us and we'll get, to, get that to you. Um, Secondly, for the last year, I've been working with uh, Oregon Council of the Blind, who has worked very hard, um, James Edwards, Pat Wallace, Art Stevenson, and Carrie Muth, to get their own accessible prescription label legislation passed. And uh, yeah, congratulations, you guys. Um, and that has just went into effect um, this January, and we're just in the process of um, having it implemented and the, the Board of Pharmacy decide how they want to enforce it. Um, so we, that means that now we have two states with different accessible prescription label legislation because Nevada was two years ago. Um, so I am here for anyone who wants to work on this kind of legislation in their home state. Um, it's, it's pretty exciting and I think we're making a little bit of headway um, other states that are working on it right now are Ohio, Pennsylvania, Colorado, Minnesota. Uh, Massachusetts has some bills, but they need a lot of work. Um, nobody, no, not there. Uh, anyway. There are two bills, actually, in Massachusetts, but they're not going anywhere. And then, <laughs> um, you know, sometimes we just have to keep working on it, so... As somebody else said, we had to throw enough mud at the wall until something sticks. So uh, since this is my first year, I really wanted to come learn from all of you guys. You guys have so much experience. Um, make a trip to the Hill. Thank you, uh, Ray and Karen Campbell, for taking me on <laughs> that journey tomorrow. And um, so that's pretty much uh, what I wanted to say. If you would like to work with me, you want me to give you some materials or brainstorm with you or, you know, um, I have a lot of advocacy contacts and so I can be a, you know, like a middle person to try and pull people together for testimony or whatever. So feel free to call Envision America if you want to work on that.
Thank you, Sharla, and thanks. Uh, Envision America, excuse me. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, getting confused here. Envision America uh, for your partnership over the years with ACB in providing accessible prescription labels. Once again, we'd like to thank all of our sponsors. Um, so at the, the presidential level, the J.P. Morgan Chase and Cisco Systems, at the congressional level, Charter Communications and Vispero, and at the ambassador level, along with Envision America, uh, the Cruise Automation, who you heard from earlier today, Sprint, we had a, a representative from Sprint who is here for most of the day, um, Ira, who is lighting up this hotel, as well as the office buildings on Capitol Hill for tomorrow, um, and Uber. Malcolm was a very popular guy here today, but um, Uber has also made a promo code available to ACB members, and this was in the information that was sent out prior to the, the legislative seminar and president's meetings. Um, but for folks, you can go into your Uber app while you're here at the hotel, go into menu and payment. And down at the bottom, there's a button to add a promotion code. And that code is capital A, capital C, capital B, 2020, ACB 2020. And this will give you 50% off two rides, either starting from or ending at this hotel. So if you need to use it to go to dinner tonight, and that's what, how you want to use it, that's, that works. If you're using it to get to Capitol Hill tomorrow. Because you're all going to Capitol Hill. Yeah. If you need it to come back to the hotel from Capitol Hill or to catch a plane here at the end of the conference, leaving from the hotel here. You know, they've made that available, and we want to make sure that folks know about it. I mean, you can pull out your phone, and you can activate it right now. I, that would not be a bad use of time. If you um, need assistance, even let us know, and we'll help you. Yeah. And then finally, um, you know, we will have volunteers on the Hill tomorrow. Now, unfortunately, we, don't all, we do not know them all by name, but for example, um, Charles Cooper from Signal Group, he and a couple other of his colleagues will stop by the Rayburn Cafeteria and offer assistance to help get folks to meetings for a little while. Um, Heidi yeah. Simon from America Walks will be helping us. Exactly. <laughs> she yes, will be walking. She will have her comfortable walking <laughs> shoes on. Um, but then also we have... Um, we had one woman here yesterday and two folks, Ian and Fred from Verizon Communications from their D.C. public policy office. And they'll have folks on the Hill tomorrow helping us out as well. Um, so just some other great partnerships and friends of ACB who are supporting the work that you all are doing here this week. So before we get to everyone's favorite Tell Claire Everything, um, Kim Charlson would like to talk about a a specific item of advocacy here this year. Stand. <laughs> thank you very much. All right. Thank you, everyone. I, um, I have a few moments on the agenda here to talk to you about the 2020 census um, and why it's important for all of you to become advocacy partners in the 2020 census process and to take some information back with you, to share it, um, so every 10 years, as you all probably know, um, it's required by the United States Constitution that the um, U.S. Bureau of the Census 
um, take a complete count of the country's population. And that's been a requirement in the Constitution since 1790. And the Census Bureau collects that data for statistical, um, for statistical analysis that helps them um, working with issues such as, let's see, my, my battery's dying, so it's getting in the way. Excuse me. Statistical purposes, um, and they use it for things um, such as um, redistricting, um, distribution of federal funds. Um, it, it impacts the, the congressional districts, as you all probably know. It has a significant impact on that. Um, it impacts like almost $900 billion annually of federal funds that are dispersed um, by the government to the states and municipalities. So the importance of counting every single person is, is major. And people with disabilities fall into the under, significantly undercounted population, which I can understand why that happens. Um, and every individual who does not get counted costs their state an average of $2,300 in lost federal funding. So every individual... So responding to the census will help ensure that our communities, um, our, our living communities and our community of people who are blind or visually impaired um, have a better chance at getting that critical funding for infrastructure issues, for public transportation, for all of those programs that are so important to people with disabilities. So the census um, impacts all of those things, as I mentioned before. So uh, the census day is April 1st. That's when the the census will actually kick off. But something is going to happen initially um, the week of the 23rd of March. So every household, and the census is taken by household. It's not taken by individual so if you live in a household with two people, one of you will complete the census. Not both of you, but you, one of you will be the head of the household who completes the census for your household, and you will count all the individuals in your household on April 1. So April 1 is the very important date. That's when you calculate it. But that third the, 23rd, the week of the 23rd of March, there's going to be a mailing going to every household. I don't know if it's a postcard or an actual letter. And it will explain about April 1 being the kickoff date of the census. It will also have an identification number in it for your household. So it's not absolutely essential that you have that number, but it would help you when it's time to take the census, if you have access to that individual identification number that comes in that correspondence that you will receive, yes, I'm afraid to say, in print, the, the week of the 23rd of March. So after that, they, there are 
multiple ways that you will be able to respond to the census beginning April 1st. That process has been a little better thought out for all people. Um, this year is the first year that the, cen- the census will have the opportunity, anyone responding, it has an option for responding online. And the online option, I have been told, and so have Claire and Clark been told, that the website is accessible. I have not been able to test it because they're not letting anybody at it until it's released because they don't want anything to get out. But they say that it's 508 compatible. (laughs) It should be accessible. So there will be information on how to access that website. I don't even have the website address yet. It's so top secret. Um, There will also be um, telephone lines, toll-free telephone lines. So you can call those phone lines and you can respond to the census if you don't use a computer or are not comfortable using a computer. You can respond over the phone and they will ask you the questions. Even if you don't speak English, they have people um, speaking and responding to individuals in 12 other languages to respond and take information and respond to the census. Um, If you don't respond by online or over the phone by the middle of April, then you will get a paper form in the mail because the expectation is that you will answer the census. So, so you're going to get a paper form. And you can fill that out, you know, the good old hard-fashioned old way, or you can still go online or use the phone and call in. Um, and if you still don't respond, guess what comes next? A person comes, knocks on your door. A census staff person will come, and they will do an, an in-person census visit to get your answer. And that all will happen by the end of June at the latest. So those are the options for having the census taken and making sure that um, everyone responds to the census. Um, The Census Bureau does say they have information in Braille and large print. I haven't seen any of it yet. Um, It's supposed to be there somewhere, but I still haven't seen it. Um, so I, I am working on that. I received a, um, a grant from the Massachusetts Secretary of State's office to do some significant outreach to the blindness community. So I will have within the next couple weeks, some, um, basic information, some files, brochures, like fact sheets that I will be happy to share with, um, our leadership list with Claire and Clark so they can share them on, you know, as, as far and wide as we can because what's really important about this information is that it gets distributed to everyone because everyone needs to be counted and everyone deserves to be counted in our community. So my message today is, you know, please do what you can to spread the word about the census because we all deserve to be counted in our community. So do what you can to help in the 2020 census. So thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Kim. 
Great. So, hi, everybody. It's Claire again. Um, we're going to spend about 15 or 20 minutes, depending on what you guys have to say. And I hope you guys have stuff to say. Um, with what we call Tell Claire Everything. If you guys recall, if you were here last year, we did this for the first time. We, the intent of this is just to hear from our members in ACB about what's going on. Um, as the advocacy team, Clark and myself, and of course with everybody else in the national office and on the board and the advocacy committee and all the other committees are constantly trying to um, do what we can to advocate for the rights of those of us who are blind or visually impaired. But we need to know what's going on. We, of course, here in our little neck of the woods, but you guys are all over the country and you have different life experiences so as a result, I want to hear from you. What's going on? How can we be helping you? What issues do you think we need to be advocating on? What might be a 2021 imperative? So this is, um, we're turning the mic over to you guys, and I'm going to take notes. I've got my Braille note in front of me. So let, let it out. Claire, this on? is Kim, and I still was sitting here right in front, with a mic in front of me. I was about <laughs> to get up and go away. But when you said that, I said, oh, I'm going to say one thing to Claire. So I promised someone that I would bring this up as my Tell Claire issue. So my Tell Claire issue on behalf of a member is, do, do you guys all know um, the service called Click, Click and Click and Go? Click and Ship, excuse me, Click and Ship. It's a service from the U.S. Postal Service where you can go online and you can buy postage and you can ship a package and it's all done online. So, and the service used to be quite accessible and quite usable and then it got a little less accessible and a little less usable and guess what's happened now? It's not. It's not usable or accessible anymore. So, so the complaint is... It's the U.S. Postal Service. Shouldn't their service be accessible to us? Got it. Thank you, Kim. Thank you. I had heard another postal service issue, so we're keeping a list now. Thank you. And as we have our mic runners okay. go, out, go out into the room, I just want to say last year, um, accessible exercise equipment came up during this session, so that was put back on our radar, as well as um, Medicare covering prosthetic eyes. So those, so those are still on our radar. So those are on our radar. Um, so yeah, let's have more things like that. Okay, um, Jill Noble from Ohio. And I've done a little bit about this, but um, just kind of want to give you guys a heads up. We were talking about, you know, the transportation issues, Amtrak, other things. Good old Greyhound. <clears throat> um the Dayton area, I've been traveling back and forth from Cleveland, Ohio to Dayton, Ohio for many years, and they recently moved their bus station, and not only is it not accessible to a blind person to get to the bus um, from the bus station, you have to cross two parking lots, um, not any sidewalks, huge holes in there. I don't see how a person in a wheelchair or using a walker could ever make it there safely either. Um, I contacted Michael Turner's office. I contacted Nan Whalen, who is the mayor of Dayton's office. And I've contacted Greyhound about it. Um, what happened is they had a, an agreement with um, the RTA system in Dayton. 
and that agreement wasn't renewed to share their location. And so they put it in an old CheckSmart um, building, um, which, like I said, that building itself is not accessible or either getting to a bus is not accessible. So just some ideas about that, as well as um, lately, um, you know, the person who mentioned Amtrak in North Dakota, um, uh Greyhound is one of the only games in town to get, you know, from one part of the state to the other. Um, And it now has been taking me, and I'd probably say this has really, really gotten worse over the last three or four years, um, 10 to 12 hours to get from Cleveland to Dayton and and back. And it's only a three... hour trip by car and to fly there you there's not any direct flights so it's really you know it's crazy it's just crazy and greyhound is only getting worse it's like who you know who do you contact for monitoring them i that's part of my question okay well thank you and uh, just to let you guys know i know you guys all have a lot of struggles and i know we could vent about it for hours but we just want to get as many ideas out there so it's uh yeah all right. Uh, Claire, uh, Ray Campbell here. I'm going to tell you this one, but I think it's something we all should be aware of, in, especially in larger areas where the taxi cab lobbies are kind of strong. In Chicago recently, they have, to help, help with their budget, they put some pretty onerous taxes on rideshare services in the city. I have heard uh, actually from drivers that uh, they're, and they're, they're going to not serve, no, do provide as much service in the underserved communities because of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think all of us and, and you guys, uh, you know, maybe at the national level also need to be aware that of the, the way that tax policy can affect our ability to get around and stuff like that. And not putting the same rules on taxi cabs, but they're putting them on mm-hmm. uh, rideshare and uh, that. Um, the uh, second uh, issue is. Um, uh, that I wanted to bring up is uh, also around rideshare, and that is I'd like to see us, um, and this maybe has to be done at the affiliate and chapter level more, um, put some more consistent um, and, and more easily t- to find where the pickup areas are for rideshare. For example, Chicago Union Station, it keeps moving around. And it's and and you have to cross the middle of the street, and it's not traffic controlled. And uh, we'd like to, I'd like to see us uh, work towards and maybe at the fellow chapter level um, on making that a little bit more uniform and consistent and easy to find. And I, just as a plug, I love hearing that you say on a local level, we definitely want to help in the national office, but we always encourage state affiliates to be advocating too. But thank you. This is Alice Richard, and I'm going to be short and sweet. <laughs> At one time, ACB was helping with publics with, with prescription labeling, or made the attempt to help with prescription labeling and Internet access. It's gotten worse, not better, and because they didn't want to do structured negotiations, we seem to have just dropped it. But yet Publix is going into more and more places, and where they're at, I still need to be able to access it. So I'd like to see something happening with that. Got it. Thank you, Alice. And this is Clark. Dan and I just had a conversation about Publix with one of our speakers earlier today. So thanks for bringing that up. 
This is Kenneth Simeon Sr. from Texas. Uh, go, let's go back to United States Postal Service. They offer a great service that I, I like. Uh, it's informed delivery where you would uh, know how many pieces will, of mail will be coming to your home on a given day. And you can know in advance uh, to check your mail or you don't, whether you don't even have to check your mail. Oh, wow depending on how you receive it. But lately, it, it used to read and tell you what was there, but now it's not. But it does say you have three pieces, you know, uh, by using voiceover on my iPhone. But uh, I believe that should be considered when you're looking at other things about the United States Postal Service. Got it. Hi, Gabriel Lopez Cafati from Miami, Florida. I believe this is something you may be addressing already, um, Quest Diagnostics. We are indeed working on that. Okay, yes, because the only way you can check in now is through the inaccessible tablet. And um, I'm from a part of Miami where um, I go to my local Quest where there's a whole bunch of older Cuban ladies who hang out at, 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 at medical offices and they trip over themselves to help me but I do not feel comfortable giving my date of birth address, phone number and any other medical condition that I need to disclose to anyone else so I, I know you're I can tell you, we won't uh, say everything right now because it's in the legal processes, but Matt Handley, one of the attorneys who spoke today, is working on it. He's been great, and it is moving along. Perfect. Thank you. Yes, I would. Thank you. This is Margie Donovan from California, and I would love to see the national office address patient portals. I have three different patient portals that are totally inaccessible, and it's my thinking that if they take Medicare, they're in violation of 508. Thank you. Thank you. Question, Patrick? Uh, it was asked which ones. Does anybody have specific examples? I can guess, but. Epic. Epic, yep, that's what I thought. And then also with medical forms, like if you have to have a test run or something, and there's, there's instructions to have that test run, <laughs> they hand you a bunch of printed material. I've actually refused to have a test done before. Oh, wow. And I'm just like, that's just wrong. Oh, yeah. So medical information being you know, provided in an accessible format so you know what to do. Yep. Thank you. Running across the room. Okay. Oh, thanks. Um, uh, like Kaiser Permanente is a nationwide service, except it's not quite nationwide. Um, I know that you know Mitch has said for a while that he gets his medications, you know, with pre, uh, pres- uh, accessible pre- uh, prescription uh, information. Uh, I belong to Kaiser in the Mid-Atlantic region, and I keep asking and asking, and they don't have it yet. <laughs> dot, 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 dot. <laughs> and I was wondering, uh, you know, I mean, the precedent has always already been set. So my question is, how do we get Mid-Atlantic to, you know, to talk to California and figure out what the hell they're doing? Yes. Sorry, Charlotte, will you please say that on a microphone? Yes. <laughs> this 
goes for Kaiser Permanente and any other pharmacy. Call and let us know who you are, what pharmacy you're interested in or that you're waiting on. We keep track so that when we reach check back with them, we say, okay, now we have this many people that are waiting for the service. Now we have this many. Now we have this many. So we keep them informed and keep putting the pressure on. I know that Amanda is working with that contract on Kaiser. They're these big companies that takes a long time. But the more people that we know, the, the easier it is for us to put the pressure on them. And also, then we know to follow up with you as soon as it is up and running. Great. Thank you, Sharla. Hi. I have, I have a couple things. Um, a couple friends of mine have told me there are a few buildings now that have elevators with only touch screens. Mm-hmm. No buttons at all. The other thing is... Um, the shuttle driver at my condo said, there's a bank now, luckily I'm not a member, but the security guard just stands outside of it, and inside is simply all kiosks. Do you know what bank that is? Bank of America, he said. Okay. Again, I can't, I can't verify that, but I said, are you sure? He said, nobody's in the bank, the guard just stands there and lets people in, and it's all kiosks. That's what he said. Again, I, I can't verify it, but I hope this doesn't happen. What town is it in our city? Uh, Alexandria. And do you know, are they AT, accessible ATMs, or they're just touch? I, I don't go to that bank, okay. um, but it's over in Bradley if you want to. <laughs> uh, okay, we'll, we'll investigate. Thank you. We have about five more minutes to tell Claire everything. Claire, it's Connie Sims. Hi, um, so... When you talked about touch screens, it reminded me of a couple things. We have been discussing this with our state agency, too, but a lot of the vending machines mm-hmm. that are all across the country are all touch screens. But um, one of our members works for an international company, and all of their cafeterias now are just all touch, and they are not willing to accommodate and pay or help or with anything. Do you know the name of the business? Citibank. Citibank. Or Citicorp. Okay, this is Artis Bazin. I wanted to um, mention something with Amtrak. Um, I know when you go online to book a ticket, if you have two of you that are disabled, you cannot mark both of them as disabled. You could put one as a senior and one as disabled, but you can't put two of them as disabled. It won't allow you to. And then uh, Gabe had a thing about Amtrak, too. Hi, Claire. I think we've talked about this before, but um, on the Amtrak app, uh, as Artis was saying, if you go on the website, you can purchase a one disabled ticket, but on the app, I still can't do that. Also, if I'm trying to check my um, train status on the app, I have to put in the from and to cities. If I know the train number and try putting it in, it just doesn't do anything. Interesting. So the, app's, the app is pretty good, but still needs a little bit of work. And anytime you guys have Amtrak issues, of course, tell us all your issues all, anytime. But Amtrak specifically, like I've mentioned before, we have a standing meeting with them. And I know the uh, ADA guy personally, and I love to shoot him emails with concerns. So feel free to always email them to me, and we get them to him immediately. <laughs> so. Do we have time for 
We have about two more minutes. Yeah, two, three minutes. Catherine Rutledge from Austin, Texas, and I have a different perspective on Amtrak. Mm -hmm. My sister and I traveled last summer all over the United States, and I made the reservations for us. I got on in Austin. She got on in Longview, Texas. We were both blind. They knew we were both blind, and I did deal through the Amtrak uh, reservation person. But we went to uh, from, well, I went from here to Longview, and then we went to St. Louis, and then to Independence, Missouri, and then to Chicago, and then to Denver, and then to, uh, well, came back through Chicago and went to uh, Cape Cod and to Charlotte, North Carolina, and then back to Chicago and back home from there. And because we had a sleeper cat. We, we got gotcha. you. <laughs> okay, but. We got very good service all the way. They good. took care of us. And I, I would recommend traveling with them from anybody. But and because we had a sleeper uh, tr- accommodations, when we got to Chicago and there was flooding in St. Louis, we couldn't go on home from there, so they put us up for two nights in the hotel. But I was able to make reservations by phone and say that we were both blind and to get the accommodations for that all the way. Gotcha. Thank you. Hi, this is Mikey Wiseman. I, um, I'm just wondering what our relationship is with APD. I, I just hear for persons with disabilities who d- seems to forget blind people. I'm just wondering if there ever if there's a conversation to have them change their names so it's a little bit more demonstrative of the people that they serve. It's um, it's concerning to me that that type of agency and that federal dollars through the Transportation Disadvantage Committee is funding actual programs which, in essence, discriminate people who are blind and visually impaired and building systems and testing out systems that leave us out of the loop. Just to clarify, do you mean AAPD, the American Association of People with Disabilities? In Florida, we just call it APD, so yeah, I guess it is. Okay. Um, Maybe we can talk offline just to make sure they're not two separate systems. If it is AAPD at the national level, we do meet with Maria Town is the new president or CEO, whatever her title is. Um, We do have a relationship with her, and if we want to improve that, I'd be happy to talk to her and we can work on that. But let's touch base offline just to make sure Florida and national aren't two separate things. We've got two more hands raised, Claire. Do we have yep. enough time? We can definitely do two more. Uh, this is Chris Hunsinger. This is a little bit frivolous. But That's a couple okay. weeks ago when, when QVC updated its iPhone app, um, the uh, first screen that comes up is I, all I can see is the status bar on my phone. I can take a screenshot of it, and I know there is text under there if I then send it to my... Uh, Send it to my, um, you know, like voice stream, uh, voice stream scanner, but I can't do anything with it. And when I called QVC about it, I got a well. We'll tell somebody. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I feel like we've had uh, resolutions in past years on QVC, so we will definitely look back into that. And uh, yeah, we've had resolutions. So thank you. So I go to a lot of fast food restaurants, unfortunately, and um, <laughs> Carl. <laughs> Well, that's why I'm a big guy, you know. But one of the in the last 30 days, I've seen Panera, McDonald's, and Burger King all have touchscreen kiosks. Mm. And while there usually is help 
once or twice, they did not want to mm. do it until I started screaming at the top of my lungs saying, you've got to, you know, take my order. So it, that's just something I'm seeing um, more and more kiosks at more and more restaurants. Carl, I heard Panera, McDonald's. What was the third one? Burger King. Burger King, thank you. I've been in all three, and they all three had electronic kiosks. Did someone say another one? Okay, gotcha. I got the three down. Cool, thank you. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but I will be here afterwards, so you can always come and grab me. And as always, you can email Clark and myself with issues. Thank you all for raising these issues. Any issues similar to these, you can always email us at advocacy at acb.org as well. All right. So we we don't want to keep you all here too long. We just want to go over what to expect tomorrow. So tomorrow we'll all get up, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, have a great breakfast. I, I, the breakfast I had here at the hotel was pretty good anyway. I hope it is good for everyone. Um, and then everyone will have the Uber promo code locked and loaded in their phones. ACB staff and volunteers will be available to help people find their rides up to the hill when they show up. And if you're all going up in a delegation, you know, share rides. Make, make those codes last longer. Um, in preparation for tomorrow, uh, we do have printouts in large print and braille um, of the imperative backgrounders. You know, those are the, the three issues that we have as imperatives this year. I know many of you will have other issues that you're taking up, and you may want to speak to other issues that presenters touched on today. Um, but we do have the large print and braille for those imperatives, as well as a print copies of the Hill Leave Behind, which is intended for the Hill staff. And that's a one-pager that has a real brief synopsis of the three imperatives and the American Council of the Blind and contact information for the national office staff. That is what is in... Good question. Do we have... We will... Yes, let's... May we have Sharon, please? Yes. Um, in addition, all of these materials for this week and for the Hill Day tomorrow are available on the ACB website. So if you would like to have electronic copies of these materials and you'd like that handy on um, you know, a note taker, uh, a digital e-reader, or a smartphone or tablet, you can have them all right there at the ready as well. We are getting Sharon Lovering in here, and she will be able to... She's right here. Sharon Lovering, everybody. Woo! I have the hill drop sheets in my hot little hands up here at the front of the room at the head desk. <clears throat> um, you, 
Yes. Ohio. Um, Vicki and Jill, ha Vicki and Karen have all the ones Ohio needs. In the packets that you got, you had the two agendas, the three backgrounders, and a copy of this very hill drop. These that I have in my hand are on cardstock. These are the ones you give to your uh, Congress people or their legislative aides. Tomorrow, I will have on the Hill the feedback forms. You're, we're going to say it many times, but you yes. are going to fill out those feedback forms. We're going to have volunteers in Rayburn Cafeteria to help you fill out those forms. We have electronic copy of them on the website that you can fill out, but you are going to fill out all those forms. <laughs> yes. So, and again, coordinate with your affiliates so that, you know, if you've got six people from your state, not everyone is picking up a hill drop form for each meeting. So coordinate, take the forms that you need. Again, the, the Hill feedback forms are available on the ACB website for the, under the link for the DC leadership meetings. You can fill them out electronically and email them to Claire and me, or you can have the assistance of a volunteer fill out the paper form and leave that with ACB staff in the Rayburn cafeteria tomorrow. Another thing we're asking for as it pertains to your visits, uh, we want cards from all of the staffers that you meet with. We believe it'll be the best and easiest and most efficient way to collect the contact information for the staffers. And I guarantee they'll offer them to you. But if they don't, just in case, grab a couple of business cards from each staffer you meet with. Uh, feel free to grab one for yourself if you'd like to keep it, which is a great thing to do. But if nothing else, grab one for us in the national office. And when you come to check in with us before you leave on the Hill, give it to us. And that gives you a great opportunity to sit down with the volunteer and fill out a feedback form. Yes, and we definitely recommend picking up two cards, one for the national office and one for yourself so you can continue to build those relationships. You know, it's, it takes more than one meeting with a member or their staff to build that relationship to become a trusted constituent voice on an issue. Um, so we will do our best to do that at the national office, but we need your help to do that on the, the state level as well. There's a question. Can someone own on a mic? We, we have a few questions. I'm running around okay. with a mic. Do you guys mind if we go through with some more information to see if we answer your questions? Yeah. Okay, let's do that. So again, the, the rally room or meeting point will be in the cafeteria of the Rayburn House office building. And that is, uh, I believe it is the first floor or the zero level, formerly the basement, but the zero level of Rayburn. Um, it is on the same level as the entrance from Independence Avenue. And we will meet at the end of the cafeteria near the and pizza um, so you can meet there in the morning and pick up the hill feedback form meet volunteers and also touch base with us there either at lunch or in the afternoon before you leave capitol hill to drop off those business cards and fill out those hill feedback forms 
When you meet us in Rayburn, if you need a volunteer to help you find your um, offices of your representatives, that's where we'll have our, our home base to get that that, rep- or that uh, volunteer. Excuse me. So if you need help getting around, you have to come and find us in Rayburn to get a volunteer. So that's where we'll be camped out, like Clark said. However, as we've mentioned, our wonderful sponsor, Ira, has lit up the entire Capitol Hill. So we'd really, really encourage people, if you're an avid Ira user, if you feel confident, please use Ira to get around. I've done it many times myself. They're extremely helpful. I've I've always found where I need to go, and that'll free up some volunteers if you're an avid Ivory user. And you can always ask the office with whom you're meeting if there's someone that could help assist you get to your next meeting. Yes. If there is not a volunteer or you're not uh, an Ira user. Yes, they um, almost always have college interns who are more than willing to help you. Um, we just wanted to give you a little background on who you might be meeting with. Just You guys are all avid, well-experienced, well weathered advocates, but just in case, we just wanted to let you guys know you could be meeting with a whole myriad of different people. You might be, be meeting with an 18-year-old intern. I was once that intern. You might be meeting with an 80-year-old, well, well-weathered Congress member. So just know you could be meeting with any level of person, the Congress member themselves, more likely one of their staffers, but take it seriously no matter what. You know, we are so fortunate to have the ear of that Congress office, so, you know, be excited, but just know you could be meeting with many different variations of people. And today's intern is tomorrow's legislative aide. That's right. Is, ne- is next week's legislative director and is next Congress's, you know, freshman member. Yes. <laughs> So, and again, as you're filling out those feedback forms, be sure to let us know how the meeting went. Let us know if the, the folks that you met with, if they were engaged, if they asked insightful follow-up questions. But also let us know if you thought that they were answering email the entire time. You know, yeah. all, all that feedback is important as we try to work with the offices and find partners to collaborate with on these issues. When you fill out your forms, more information than less information is helpful. So feel free to write us a novel. We have no problem reading that afterwards. So more information, the better. Okay, questions. Yes. Uh, Sharon, Sharon has a whole plethora of them. Um, she can no, have, I don't. No, you don't have them on your They are at the office today. They will be at the Hill tomorrow. So even I only have two hands, no? You have to come to Rayburn. You cannot not come to Rayburn. Thanks, Sharon. Or, or do it online. Or um, do it online. Clark, Clark and Claire, I'm, I'm going to, this is Ray Campbell. I'm going to ask my usual question that I asked because it hasn't been answered yet, and we Uh-oh. sometimes get asked. What, NFB was here about three weeks <laughs> ago. What did they talk about in case we're asked about those issues? You know, in general, I would say they talked about the same issues that blind people face throughout the country, access to information, access to transportation, and access to services. Specifically, I think they spoke about um, some of the legislation that they have had introduced this Congress, bills that they've been working on for quite some time. You know, uh, we are working with the the Schools for the Blind and Barbara Raimondo, who spoke earlier on the Cogswell Macy Act. Uh, one of their issues is the AIM High Act um, for higher education, second, post-secondary education. Um, 
We're working on issues specific to digital access for medical equipment, for exercise and fitness equipment. They have a single bill where they threw everything into the bucket together. They call it the GAIN Act. Yes. So different approaches, but all trying to accomplish the same thing. And that's so that people who are blind can live independently and successfully in the community. Becky, I see you at the back. I'll get you after Alan. Oh, Ray, beat, Ray beat me to this question about the uh, <laughs> Federation, but I do have uh, Braille form raffle tickets to sell <laughs> <laughs> for the low, low price of $50. Shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, five of you could go together on, uh, and buy a single ticket, uh, each paying $10 a piece. So uh, see me? I got a lot of tickets. I got 99 left. <laughs> Alan, let us know how many you sell on the hill tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everybody, it's Becky Davidson. I just have a comment because I found this helpful when we were doing this stuff in New York State back in the day. Um, and one of the things that we always told people, especially first-timers, was to be polite, be respectful, but remember, these people work for us, not mm-hmm. the other way around. Yep. Yes. You are all the experts on you. Any other questions? Yep. This is Mikey. Uh, we have a very large team, and we're very organized, uh, as we are every year, and we're split up by buildings. Um, there's actually no need for a significant number of our team to go to Rayborn. Is there... <laughs> you're welcome, folks. I'll always ask the hard question. Um, is there any alternative to going there tomorrow to get the feedback forms? Can we get some here, or can we print them here for us? Like we said, the feedback forms will be online. So you can get them off of acb.org. They are already there. There. However, if possible, if you could send one person with business cards, we would love you forever. I understand we, we, if it's absolutely impossible, but if possible. Well, we will, we will mail them okay. to you when we have our postmortem. It, okay. But you're going to fill out the forms, right? Well, we always do. Okay, well, hello, you're checking. talking to Florida. <laughs> just checking. So, so yes, if... If you have folks who are unable to return to Rayburn for whatever reason, you know, if, if folks have a flight and they have to head straight to the airport, stuff happens, please mail or scan and email the business cards. Please fill out electronically the feedback form or fill out print and fill out it in paper and mail it to us at the national office. The important thing is that by hook or by crook, we get those feedback forms. I like it. If you have the chance, so please do come by Rayburn just to say hi. It's, you know, it's a day we want to encourage each other and fire everybody up. So, if, you know, if you if you one cohort is in Rayburn, come on over and say hi. This is Ann Pimley from Ohio, and my question is: Tomorrow it's supposed to rain. Can we take umbrellas into the offices? Yes, of Pass security? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. Oh. How often do you recommend communicating with the legislative aide that you meet with tomorrow over the year? 
So that's a good question. There's definitely a lot of different practices that could be out there. I at least initially always will immediately send a thank you follow-up email afterwards. So whether it's tomorrow night or Wednesday, that's the day after tomorrow, I would send a thank you email and just say thank you so much. If you guys talked about a specific issue that is, you know, actually active, you know, maybe in a couple of weeks email, but then, you know, I would do it periodically. Um, If things come up, though, always email them, you know, keep an eye out on bills that are out there, obviously the imperatives that we talked about, but other issues that might impact the blind community or impact other issues you care about. And I would respond and send emails from time to time, but definitely do an immediate email and then maybe one in a couple of weeks. And from there, just kind of, uh, you know, measure what's going on. Yeah. An immediate thank you is always a, a best practice. And then like Claire says, it, it depends on the, the low vision bill where there is a bill number in the house and we are actively pursuing a bipartisan bill introduction in the Senate. Um, you can follow up after your thank you. Give it two weeks. If you don't see that representative listed as a co-sponsor, send them another email. If another two weeks go by and you don't see him as a co-sponsor, get in touch with them again. It's, you know, it's okay to, to kind of hold their feet to the fire when there's a pressing matter. But when it's something like the, the surface transportation bill where we're still waiting to have items introduced and see the language. You know, there, after the thank you, like Claire said, um, keep a dialogue open with them on other issues. But then once we have the, the bill being introduced, that's when we'll want to definitely reconnect with those members and staff. And if they just give you a, a more broad business card with the Congress members' contact information and not the staffer-specific information, and you'd like to email that specific staffer, which I think is a lot more beneficial sometimes, you can always reach out to Clark or myself. We are very fortunate to have access to the database of their email addresses, so they can't get away from us. <laughs> Hi, this is Bob Shangleton. This is my first time doing this, and... Um, Thank you. Since it was mentioned that NFB was here recently, is there a canned answer if the person that we meet with confuses ACB with NFB? (laughs) (laughs) Like, Like most other situations, just, you know, be polite, be respectful, and be honest. You know, remind them who you are, where you're from, and the organization that you're with, and the items that you're there to talk about. So you can, you know, it is totally appropriate to acknowledge the existence of NFB, but then, you know, say, yep, I heard that NFB was up here. I'm actually with the American Council of the Blind, and here's who we are, and here are the issues that are important to us. All right, everyone. I know we kept you longer here than in years past for the legislative seminar, but we're actually letting going to let you out close to 10 minutes early. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us for the programming today. Please, you know, we'll be around here in the room as well as in the lobby here for a little while. So if you have any last-minute items or follow-up, you can find Claire or me. I think Sharon is in the hall at, at the, the like, the, registration at the registration table. table. All right.
And folks, have a great day on the Hill tomorrow.